Life is an exercise in duality. One can only appreciate pleasure if there has been pain to put it into context. The delightful taste of a knickerbocker glory is nothing if you've never staked your bollocks out over a worktop and set about them with a toffee hammer. Anyway, that's why I'm not allowed in the ice cream parlour anymore, but my point is it's time for my top five and bottom five games of 2013. Restricted as always to games I did reviews for, I'm not discounting the possibility that one of the PS4 launch titles belongs in the top five. Oh sorry, I read that wrong. I am totally discounting the possibility that one of the PS4 launch titles belongs in the top five. Well then, let's get it on. My top five was difficult this year. Four through one were fairly straightforward, but I just couldn't think of a fifth game that really stood out. In the end, I gathered before me three games that were basically good, but I was kind of meh about at the time, namely Last of Us, Tomb Raider, and Metal Gear Rising Revengeance. Then I asked myself, if I was Scott of the Antarctic waiting for oats to come back and had these to pass the time with, which would I want to play first as I digested another plateful of curried husky? No contest. Cyborg Ninja flip-outs beat dirty depressing people getting their shit ruined. On the other hand, populating my bottom five was piss easy. I barely have room for everything I want to slag off, but let's keep things uncontroversial with the number five. Star Trek. A truly miserable experience, both it and the film it was intended to market represent everything that is wrong with the entertainment industry. There is no beloved franchise it won't stab with forks and then force to dance on the forks like their little Charlie Chaplin legs. A just plain badly designed mess worthy only of the title least bad science fiction movie tie-in on this list. You know me, I hate a series that meanders infinitely on like a hamster in a Mobius strip. So I was running out of patience for Assassin's Creed. What the hell are you doing putting another fucking one out? I'd have thought after three was like watching a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special intercut with scenes from a very boring documentary about knives. You'd have the sense to consider winding this shit up. Sorry, replied Assassin's Creed. Would an exciting pirate adventure on the high seas help you stomach our distasteful attitude? Yes, you fucking pricks. Sometimes a game belongs in the top five less for its inherent dribbling awfulness and more for what it represents, and after all the unnecessary anti-consumer bullshit lately, the SimCity debacle almost seems like the least of it. Nevertheless, behold my excellent impression of EA. Duh. Let's take a game that's traditionally and unavoidably single-player only, crowbar in useless multiplayer elements and force users to play online on servers with the reliability of a gingerbread space station. Duh. We have the self-awareness of a sack full of frog spawn. In an entertainment medium where the default state of existence is being really angry at murderers while talking like you were grooming your dog and accidentally inhaled the brush, what a rare treat it is for a game to remember that we're supposed to be having fun. Saints Row 4 is how all video game series should conclude, a big, bouncy, anarchic, irreverent roast of itself and the video games in general. Salute it with the biggest and floppiest knob you have to hand. Well, let's get the really obvious one out of the way before we go any further. Aliens Colonial Marines. What more need be said about this trough of walrus cankers? One couldn't find a more fitting use for the word alien. It alienated players by being drab and awful. It alienated fans of the franchise by fucking up the canon. It alienated its own aliens, ironically, by buggering up their AI. And for an encore, it alienated whoever was left over by lying in its gameplay trailers. Should have saved time and just alienated all their money into a big fire. Hype mongers will tell you that if you can't release a game trailer in which something explodes every 0.3 seconds, then you might as well throw yourself under a bus now. But how pointless their little lives must seem when a game is as simultaneously engaging and unmarketable as Papers Please by Lucas Pope. It's a real lesson on what a bit of context can add. It's amazing how nail-biting paperwork sorting in a shed can be when you're not sure if you'll be able to buy imaginary turnips to feed your imaginary wife. <laughs>
Getting back to the subject of dirty, depressing people getting their shit ruined, Beyond Two Souls. David Cage somehow does it every time, smashes his previous record in storytelling that's both laughably bad and a little bit creepy. Who wants to watch Ellen Page alternate between crying, beating up sneering toughs and being awkward around hunky boys while schizophrenically dawdling between multiple unconnected themes and tones of interactive story, except one in which it is understood what the word interactive means? I agonised a bit on whether to give Game of the Year to this game or Papers, Please. I asked myself which of the two would make me seem less pretentious, but that debate went fucking nowhere, so fuck it. For all its occasional flabbiness, there's a depth and a complexity to the world and characters that makes the colourful swashbuckling excitement of Bioshock Infinite a clear standout in all the year's flappery. It still occupies my thoughts after most of a year, putting it in a distinct category alongside my quarterly tax returns and the feasibility of suicide. I thought modern military shooters were bad a year ago, but it turns out we were still merely poised on the diving board above the frozen shit. Even Black Ops 2 now seems comparatively self-aware alongside something like Call of Duty Ghosts, an experience coldly designed to appeal to the worst instincts of a sad majority of unpleasant fucks. I'm not sure the genre could get any lower, but I've been wrong before. Maybe next year we can look forward to a game in which we stop all terrorism in the world by releasing a deadly virus that only targets people who aren't three quarters white and one quarter bald eagle. Now, I know what you're thinking. What about that game, Yahtzee? You know that one. Well, I was hesitant to place it even on a worst games list, because it's not a game, it's congealed failure. I speak no hyperbole when I say that releasing every box with no disc inside would have been less of a mistake. So for one time only, I grant the Zero Punctuation Lifetime Achievement Award for Total Abhorrence to Ride to Hell Retribution, which it will hold indefinitely until a worst game comes along. That should roughly be around the time apes have retaken the Earth. So Father Christmas finally pulled his finger out and brought me a PS4 through his usual intermediaries at JB Hi-Fi, so it's time to get caught up with the launch titles, starting with Knack, which should hopefully still be relevant, because all the kids who got it for Christmas probably haven't yet stopped crying angry, betrayed tears. And just to briefly address those kids, ha ha ha. Nice job getting born just in time for the worst consoles, you little chumps. You're gonna need nostalgia goggles the size of dustbin lids. Yes, as we used to say in the Yorkshire ghetto, Knack is cack. I can't think of a single console in the last decade and a half that wouldn't have benefited profoundly from delaying its launch for about a year. It's been like watching the tragic results of a Birdman rally being held too close to the Javelin competition. People tell me most consoles aim for being lost leaders these days. Well, I don't know about that, but they certainly are dross leaders. Leaders in the field of dross. You know, I got paid money to write that. Knack might as well have been called Particles the Game. The titular main character is an upturned bucket on a body made up of large numbers of small objects, and he gets bigger the more of them he collects. Sounds a wee bit Katamari Damacy so far, doesn't it? And I can't say I wouldn't be thrilled by the prospect of building a giant body out of cats and schoolchildren and using it to swat helicopters out of the air. Perhaps this was the original idea at some ancient mythic design stage, but if it was, then Vision seems to have had to try to meet practicality halfway, and practicality was determined not to move from the sea next to the biscuits. So Knack can only grow from collecting specific objects, his size is largely dictated inorganically by progress through the level and even then the frame rate hyperventilates when there are too many loose physics objects, which is tragic really, the onus of the next-gen launch title is partly to sell the graphical capability of the console, standing atop it like Salome doing a little volumetric lighting Dance of the Seven Veils. This is more like Dance of the Seven Smallpox Blankets. And presumably haunted by the same angry spectre of compromise, the level design is as bland as it gets. Corridor after corridor after empty room after empty room. You can design every single fucking level with one very long piece of string threaded through some ping-pong balls. I asked myself a short ways in, why do the words Crash Bandicoot keep crossing my mind? Because that's what it plays 
plays like, this is as far as we've come, people, right back around to PS1-era gameplay, moving along a line and hitting things. Except Crash Bandicoot had colour and life and secrets and challenges and character and humour and squealing pigs you could ride on after looking at the camera with a slightly suspect look on your face. And what does Knack have? Twelve different varieties of rock texture. You spend more time in caves than a hibernating bear. Yes, you grow bigger and hit harder as the level goes on, but the rooms grow larger at the same rate and enemies are swapped out for tougher ones, so the gameplay doesn't change. You're either smashing little rock walls to get to a secret room, or smashing entire buildings to get to the very same, albeit scaled up, secret room. So someone in this world is manufacturing treasure chests ranging in size from bread bin to double-decker bus. The plot is visited in brief cutscenes between corridor traversals and is the kind of plot that very loudly and busily goes fucking nowhere. It's set in a peaceful human society where technology is powered by ancient relics dug up from our archaeological sites, in one of which Knack was discovered, so you might think something will be made of where Knack came from and what his purpose is, but no, no one cares. He's deployed as a weapon against an invading army of goblins, and when he starts fighting them in a human city, smashing buildings and making the residents visibly shit themselves, you might think the plot will now be about Knack questioning his allegiance to a species that hates and fears him, and in which he can never truly belong, but no, everyone's just sort of cool with it. Dah, those buildings are probably gonna fall down anyway, and the people inside were mostly dicks. It's like Knack spends the whole game showing off and breaking things in the vain hope that the plot will actually be about him at last. One wonders why they even gave him a voice. One further wonders why the voice they went for sounds like Barry White trying to chat up a jar of Nutella. Only the human characters actually do plot-relevant things, but all pretty half-heartedly. Knack's creator is a kindly scientist haunted by his lost love, although that gets really anticlimactically resolved basically around the time the game gets bored of him going on about it. There's a kid and some adventurer bloke who hang around contributing about as much as a suggestion box, and yet somehow both seem to have better claim to main character than fucking Knack does. And then there's a bloke with a goatee, shifty eyes, and an army of robots who starts off ostensibly as an ally, but is so arse-wipingly obviously the villain that the game absentmindedly forgets to establish that he is. After they complete their mission together, he just goes, bored now, and kidnaps someone for literally no reason and to nobody's surprise. Well, the reason he gives is that he wanted the heroes to come to his house and look at some stuff he's working on. Fucking ring them up! Or just ask them, they're right there! Offer them a lift on your getaway vehicle! It's like he only knows how to get things done in an evil way. All he wants is to work with the scientist to open an ancient ruin, something the scientist seems quite willing to do. But not after he's been helicoptered to a Dracula castle in a fucking cage, this guy needs an intervention. It's especially weird how he keeps ordering Knack to be destroyed when Knack is obviously indestructible. In cutscenes, anyway. In an example of pseudo-narrative pissonance, still getting paid, remember, in gameplay Knack can take hits like a matchstick model of a polio victim. I asked myself, I'm dying an awful lot, is this game badly made or am I just this shit? Perhaps a silly question. Every enemy can slice off your health bar like a fat bridesmaid left alone with the wedding cake, there's an awkward pause after the dodge move that leaves you wide open, and all the action is taking place in a tiny section of the screen surrounded by huge expanses of empty floor. So it is badly made and I'm not shit, hooray! So yes, between uninspired and poorly balanced gameplay against the background of a scrappy plot in which boring characters fight over protagonist rights, Knack is cack. It's a fat sack of cack smoking crack. You might think smoking crack would give it some thwack, but the crack is whack and turns the lungs black. And I'd think of a better way to end this attack, but cut me some slack, I'm too much of a hack. Oh, snack! I mean snap. I want to fix a few things in the backs of our minds going forward. I want to be clear, but I don't want to keep repeating myself. So in future, if I review a game on the X-Bone or the piss bore, every time I say something in the slightest bit positive, I want you to mentally append the phrase, but it doesn't justify forcing us to buy a clunky new console with no backwards compatibility. I've banged that drum with my raging hate stiffy so many times I figure it can go without saying. So let's practice. Dead Rising 3 was kind of fun in parts, but it doesn't justify forcing us to buy a clunky new console with no backwards compatibility. Knack looked pretty spectacular after I fired it out of my clay pigeon launching machine, but it doesn't justify forcing us to buy a clunky new console with no backwards compatibility. Thank you very much for these lovely cornflakes, mother, but it doesn't justify forcing us to etc etc. Easy, isn't it? Now let's try again, but this time I won't say it and you can just add it on in your head. Ready? I was slightly pleasantly surprised by Killzone Shadowfall.
There you go. Now, as I've said before, the thing with the Killzone series is that the Hellgasts seem to have nothing but legitimate grievances but are assigned the role of bad guys solely because they wear Nazi hats. At the end of Killzone 3, for example, the heroic Vectons blow up the entire Hellgast planet for looking at them funny, which leads to the situation in this game where the Vectons have given over half their planet for the surviving Helgans to live on. The story opens with our hero, Lucas Kellen, and his dad, who were living on the half that became Helgen territory, and have to sneak over to the Vectons' side as Helgen troops purge Vecton stragglers. So hang on, Vector agrees to let Hellgast have half the planet but don't evacuate their citizens first? How did that slip their mind? Ah, can't be asked. Just sort it out, Mr. Hellgast, in a not-evil way if possible. I know you're still pissed at us for blowing up your planet and everyone you've ever loved and all that, but be fair, they were all wearing Nazi hats. Having said all that, one of the things I like about Shadowfall is that it's a bit fairer on the Hellgast's choice of headwear and things are a bit morally greyer. The Vectons develop a biological weapon that can specifically target one race or the other, purely for defence purposes, of course. Yeah, good one, Vectons. The same way I have a bottle of maple syrup purely for defence against pancakes. But when the Hellgast nick it for their own nefarious defence, the Cold War threatens to boil over. Meanwhile, Lucas Kellen's fate is entwined with that of a half-breed girl named Echo who shows him that both sides have a lot of innocent civilians who would much rather just stop being murdered by each other's militaries, if that's alright. I do have an issue here that Lucas and Echo seem to be placed as the emotional core of the narrative, but the game seems to have forgotten to characterise either of them. Lucas is the protagonist of a first-person militaristic shooter, so of course he's just a big blank slab of roast pork in chunky boots, and I only know Echo's name was Echo because a mission objective told me. She just shows up like a little snipey Tinkerbell now and again to jumpstart the plot whenever it stalls. Sometimes they take it in turns to point out things for the other one to shoot, and that's about all the chemistry they ever get. Rah, your guys are bad. Rah, your guys are bad. We have a lot in common. Yes, give us a snog. No. Ah, but who needs chemistry? We've got the only chemistry that matters. Sulfur and potassium nitrate. Bam! The shooting is what the game's circulatory system runs on, and it has a free-form quality that I quite enjoyed. Many of the combat environments are large and open-ended, allowing a variety of approaches. Will you find a vantage point and plan ahead? Stay where you are and snipe everyone silly, or just burst into the enemy compound with one gun strapped to your meat and one to your two veg? I quite liked the zipline mechanic. If such a thing was in, say, Call of Duty, you'd only be able to use it at a predetermined point, indicated to your dumb ass by a little phantom zipline like the spirit of dead gameplay opportunities, but in Shadowfall you can zipline anywhere, providing a faster way of getting from a high point to a low point to keep the pace up. Would be nice if there were faster ways to get back up to high points, but sadly once you're in the fray it's back to the usual waddling around in your armoured big boy trousers trying to make snap judgments on how much of yourself can fit behind a waste paper basket, and it can often be hard to predict what can be ziplined to and what can't. Of course you can't zipline anywhere, because then this would be a sandbox game and you might have more than the regulation amount of fun. The zipline is one of the functions of a little flying robot friend who is the manifestation of the use the new hardware or be fucking shot at dawn part of the launch title remit because you change its function with the new thing on the PS4 controller. Not quite a button, not quite a trackpad. I don't know what to call it, but I was using it for M&M storage. Your robot pal has four functions and you switch between them by wiping a bogey off on the whatever it is. So in this context it's basically just another D-pad. But I found I rarely used its more exotic functions just because reaching over to the, well I suppose I have to call it something, the controller's giant rectangular clitoris didn't feel natural with all my fingers engaged with the other more traditional buttons, and it seems like the robot controls could have been worked into them without too much difficulty. I'm not sold, frankly. It needs a game that can find an actual use for it. It's ideally situated for some kind of tongue control, but then again, it would have to buy me dinner first. But I digress. There's been a problem with AAA shooters for many years, wherein the game is just dull linear shootouts in ugly little arenas under insanely spectacular skyboxes where all the actual effort seems to have gone. Well, Killzone Shadowfall has some very spectacular skyboxes indeed, and more than a few dull, grimy levels that drag on too long, but there's also plenty of places where the line between pretty skybox and gameplay arena becomes, like the face of an ugly barfly after a few more pints, appealingly blurry. It's certainly a far more suitably impressive display of graphics hardware than Knack was, if that matters to you, Brian fucking Sewell, but... Yes, well done, we remember how that sentence goes, don't we? And I find myself distinctly ungrabbed by the story. Maybe that's because there's absolutely no character in the entire plot I felt that I could root for, and it ends anticlimactically. It just sort of apologetically peters out like a fart in a sauna. Without wishing to spoil, it gets us all worked up about averting war between Vector and Hellgas, but then everyone just sort of gives up on the idea. I guess because there'd be no game otherwise. What are they supposed to do in the sequel? Argue over who finished off the milk?
It doesn't seem like that long ago when I thought it was a shame there weren't more wilderness survival games, and I apologise if I'd known I had the power to manifest my innermost thoughts I'd have brought about world peace and given all the buildings tits, because the survival game Cup has been run a thing over lately on Steam. This week I downloaded three new ones, and in this video we'll offer my first impressions after an hour or two spent with each. The twin spectres of Minecraft and DayZ's unrepeatable success seem to hover over them all like the fucking Luftwaffe, so basically all of them have crafting and zombies, or at least a statement that crafting and zombies are definitely possibly somewhere on the list of features to maybe be added if we can be asked, because all of these games were early access as well, the new politer name for desperately unfinished. What's the matter guys, are you afraid you're gonna miss the boat? No other medium does this, you wouldn't expect say a graphic novel to be released in short installments over the course of- actually that's a bad example. So the first game I played was Starbound, also known as Terraria, never heard of it, and also we're sci-fi and therefore different to the thing we haven't heard of, although Terraria itself was also known as Minecraft, never heard of it, and also we're 2D and therefore different to the thing we've never heard of. So you know, join the fucking conga line. The premise is that you've got a spaceship and can travel to different randomly generated planets with different wildlife to pester you while you endlessly punch the indigenous rock population. My first question would be why you need to travel to other planets when, like all procedural wilderness games, every planet seems to be functionally infinite, and if it's just a change of scene you want, you could always just walk to the right for ten minutes. But I suppose this method is quicker, in theory, because you can't travel to other planets without fuel, and I never reach the point where you get fuel, or even figure out what you use as fuel. I tried putting a load of wood into my spaceship engine, and then I ran out of ideas. Sprite animation is good. Interface is a bit unintuitive and messy, but the thing I liked was that it sets you a sequence of missions. Build a campfire, make a workbench, make a bow, cook some meat. Hey look at you, you're surviving, right? Round of applause. If Minecraft had had something like this, a lot of senseless newbie death when the first night falls could have been avoided. But after a while, the missions ramp up until I was told to construct a distress beacon. Now this took quite a while, because it required a lot of different smelted metals, so the process of gathering them caused me to go kinda native. I built myself a two-story house, strip-mined the area, filled my nosh reserves until I could finally build that distress beacon, and proudly display it on my ornate roof. And you know what happened then? A flying saucer came down and blew up my house. Ten minutes later I found myself wandering the wreckage of the life I'd attempted to build. Why didn't you destroy the flying saucer? asked the game. I was trying, with my bow and arrow, which was the only weapon you told me to make. But the flying saucer killed me and then the flying saucer went away. Huh, said Starbound. Guess you'd better build another distress beacon then. I've got a better idea, Starbound. Why don't you see if you can find one in the bottom of this bin? You know, that earlier comparison to serialised comics doesn't really work, I've realised. Early access games are more like a comic release than its entirety, but without colour or ink and with half the dialogue missing. One wonders if it's really worth it. We live in a world where trends move so fast, studying them is practically a field of quantum mechanics. A new game has at most 30 seconds to grab someone before they move to the next distraction on the road to the grave. I'd have thought you'd want to make the best first impression, is me point. The game I played for the least amount of time was Seven Days to Die, whose first impressions included a big colourful graphic listing all the features the game doesn't have, before dropping me in a seemingly infinite plane resembling a Minecraft world after someone has stamped it flat enough to push through the crack under a door. Little tip for the 7 or 8 billion of you out there planning to make a zombie survival game, maybe make guns hard to find so I don't have 3 after 20 minutes and can't climb onto the roof of a building, blow the ladder apart and spend the night listening to zombies expressing their frustration at each other somewhere below. Bored. I moved to pastures new. Finding things to do when night has fallen seems to be a common issue with these games, such as in Rust. I spawned in Rust, holding only a rock for bashing things, and I just about figured out that trees were among the things that could fruitfully be bashed when the sun went down. But as I was sitting by the campfire waiting for visibility to return, some bloke with an assault rifle ran up and demanded I drop my rock. He gave me to the count of three, but this proved inadequate for figuring out what the drop control was, so he gunned me down. How fortunate this community must be to have a watchman so dedicated to rigidly enforcing the laws against unlicensed rocks. But I must say, that's three more seconds than a player of DayZ would have given me, and my experiences on 
trust servers indicate more of a general live and let live attitude, because the odds of survival are better from attacking things that don't fight back. Hit a wild pig, and then sprint after it, continually spanking its buttocks until it falls over, like a cross between Deliverance and the Benny Hill show. This done, you have the resources to build a bow, and then you've won the game. Congratulations. Because from that point on, I never died. I ran faster than the bears and the inevitable zombies, so as long as I kept backing up and firing, I was rolling in free shit. A few hikes around the woods intercut with trips to the wiki to figure out how to work the sodding furnace later, I'd built the now essential two-story house, and was armed to the teeth with guns I'd built out of antlers and phlegm. Basic resources spawn infinitely, you see, so once you reach the pig murdering point, there's no scarcity and therefore no conflict, so things get real dull real fast. You might think this would be where rival players might come after your stuff, but a gun swiftly discourages the wielder of unlicensed rocks. Man, this game is like a speeded up history of human development. You start off bashing rocks together and then invent fire, then guns, and finally that most vital human invention, classism. Fuck those shirtless newbies coming over here, taking our jobs and shagging our pigs, but always be polite to your gun-wielding neighbours. I found that meetings with players who'd reached the same level of technology always went as follows. Hello, are you friendly? Depends. Is that a gun? Yes. Is that a gun? Yes. Then I am friendly. Funny how many friendly people you meet when you've got a gun, isn't it? It's almost like the NRA were right all along. Using my best swears to critically pan games like Call of Duty Ghost is like flinging perfectly good cake rolls at a brick wall. You can pan that shit like a Colorado river, but it's gonna make its money back anyway. And while that was frustrating enough, Kickstarter has allowed Double Fine to take things to a whole new sodding level. Tim Schafer said, I'd quite like to get back to my roots and make adventure games like Grim Fandango and Day of the Tentacle, and then everyone said, good idea, here's 3.5 million dollars. So we have a game that was successful before it was even fucking released. Before anyone even knew if it was good. Tim Schafer could have released a fucking Escape the Room Flash game and it would have made the money. He could have released Space Quest 4, or Led the Goddess is a Phobos 2, or a pile of owl droppings on the end of a length of rope and made the money back. And as a critic, that's worrying, but at the same time slightly liberating to know that nothing I say about Broken Age matters widdly wong. Hey, Broken Age is a game about the life of a brine shrimp swimming up a stream of piss. It isn't really, but you don't care, do you? You already bought it. My problem with Kickstarter is that no one knows what they want until they've got it. I didn't know I wanted, say, Driver San Francisco until I had it, and then I wanted the shit out of it, but if you'd asked me beforehand for money to make a driving game that played like Miami Vice got Quantum Leap stuck up its bum, I'd have told you to stick a few other things up its bum. If you ask people what they want, they'll say they want the same things they already like, which goes nowhere. But Kickstarter is basically built on appealing to that stubborn desire to wallow in a nostalgic comfort zone like a dolphin in mother's homemade custard. Having said all that, for a game founded on nostalgia for 90s adventure games like Monkey Island and Day of the Tentacle, Broken Age is less reminiscent of those, wherein you'd build instructions from verb lists to solve arcane puzzles while exploring a lovingly crafted environment that has funny dialogues like a triple-cunted hooker has pubic license that you're still finding new ones after three or four run-throughs, and more reminiscent of the modern style of adventure game wherein you walk to a thing, click on the thing, and then get a trophy for clicking on the thing. Not that Donkey Island or Day of the Testicle had unimpeachable gameplay. Yeah, some of those verbs got a bit redundant, the pacing would grind to a halt as you sort the thread of logic that starts with stabbing an inflatable clown doll and ends with an Egyptian mummy winning a beauty contest, but Broken Age is at the other extreme. I breezed through the whole thing without stopping because solutions were obvious the instant every piece was in play. My eyes rolled like a fucking ferris wheel when one of the first inventory items you acquire is a remote-controlled toy robot with four flexible grabbing arms. Because this is an object whose existence makes no sense within story context. Why would a fussy parent leave a child alone with a grabbing device that can only possibly lead to either severe eyeball injury or a premature sexual awakening. No, its only purpose is to provide a witheringly contrived solution to a blitheringly specific problem later on. What I'm saying is that the 90s adventure games I remember would probably have made us assemble such a thing ourselves from an electric wheelchair, a handful of eels, and four freshly severed limbs. But the gameplay of adventure games is like the little diseased withered limb on an elm tree. Story is the trunk, dialogue is the leaves, character is the newly in love couple breathlessly giving each other one at its base. Broken Age is a story about breaking routine and broadening your horizon. 
Horizons, ironically, Kickstarter backers. It's divided between Shay, a teenage boy alone on a spaceship with a computer that smothers him with affection while ensuring he cannot leave, and Vela, a teenage girl in an idyllic village community whose family are planning to sacrifice her to a Lovecraftian nightmare. In which case, Shay should probably just fucking suck it up. You can switch between the characters freely, but the stories never affect each other so there's no bloody point unless you're a film student and want to practice creating an edit on the fly. It's only at the very end that you learn how those stories are connected, and what I liked was that the game kinda wrong-foots you about it, letting you think at various points that maybe Vela might be Shay's mum, or Shay is Vela's carpet fitter, and no wait, maybe Vela is Shay going through an awkward phase. The eventual end of act reveal is intriguing and well executed, like the guillotining of Alfred Hitchcock. I did Shay first, and that was probably smart, because his is the far stronger of the two stories. There's a very Shayferian juxtaposition going on with the light and colourful chocolate box playroom environment, mined with the unexpected coffee creams of sinister undertone. The borders of the prison are blurry, you wonder whether Shay is actually escaping from it, or just digging into another layer of fantasy and hazelnut clusters, if you will, a sort of I have no mouth and I eat ice cream. <laughs> Critic critics mom's mom. Most importantly, it's cohesive. What is Shay's issue? He's trapped in a prison with a mad computer. How do we resolve this issue? We escape from the prison. There! A universal story for the ages we can all get behind. Meanwhile, Vela's story is a mess. Like a forgotten 2am kebab. What is Vela's issue? She wants to stop a giant monster from attacking her people. How do we resolve this issue? Not a fucking clue. We faced it at the start of the story and we're completely helpless, so let's just bumble around some villages hoping it'll show up again and that we can think of a way to kill it. And we do! At the last moment, a method for killing the monster conveniently plops from the game's bum. And if you're going to Deus Ex Machina, go all out, guys. Have a giant Tim Schafer descend from the clouds and piddle all over it. And it's hard to want to help Vela's people when they're all perfectly content to appease the monster, but also don't lift a finger to stop Vela from killing it. What a dynamic fucking bunch. That's the joke, I hear you argue. Then why aren't I laughing? I retort. It makes me think sadly of Grim Fandango, where there were characters who made me laugh and had agendas and relationships and lives outside standing in one place reciting expository dialogue and exchanging gifts for contrived puzzle solutions. So at the end of all that, I'm into broken age enough to want the second act. It might have been a mistake to split them up, because this seems like a story that only comes together once you've got the full picture, but it's not as engrossing as Grim Fandango and not as laugh-out-loud, roommate-irritatingly hilarious as Psychonauts. Maybe I should judge it by its own merits and stop dragging in comparisons to older games, maybe, but the game was fucking funded on nostalgia for those older games. It's like saying you can't expect a racehorse to run as fast as his dad did. Then why did you charge so much for his spunk? Greetings, fellow travellers through the January wasteland. Why not rest a spell by the campfire and tell me the tale of what brought you here? As long as it's not the one about buying a next-gen console before any decent fucking games came out for it. I've heard that one quite a few times today. January should be a time that we open up to stepping outside our comfort zone a bit, I think, so with that in mind, I've been playing Might and Magic X Legacy, a fantasy RPG with elves, dwarves, and wizards in it. Yeah, I guess not so much a step outside the comfort zone as a glance out the window of the comfort zone at another comfort zone. But it's worth noting I've never played a Might and Magic game before, so I was interested to see what differentiated it from other fantasy RPGs with Elves, dwarves, and wizards. Cue awkward silence. Do you like the campfire? It's my eighth one today. They're so bloody Moorish. I don't have a problem. Fuck you. You gotta make camp once or twice while journeying across a large room. So apparently it took ten games to get to Might and Magic X, assuming that is a Roman numeral and not a Malcolm X sort of arrangement. This series must be bloody brilliant by now, I thought, with all the practice and refinement it must have had. Turns out that the first Might and Magic game must have been played with pasta shapes glued to the wall of a cave. Might and Magic X is so old school that the entire current British government was privately educated there. It recreates the gameplay of the retro dungeon master style of grid-based first-person dungeon crawl RPGs, wherein four adventurers with no concept of personal space march together in absolute perfect step like they all used to be in the SS. In distances from grid space to grid space. Only Might and Magic X does all of that in a fully 3D world decked out in swanky graphics. Well I say swanky graphics, it's more like what you'd get if you took, say, XCOM, but zoomed all the way into the first person view of one of the soldiers so you can get an up-close look at the blurry textures and horrible draw distance. It's like playing D&D when your dungeon master's bored. To the north you see a forest. You would have seen it earlier, but its graphics have only just popped in. It's an exercise in nostalgia for the retro PC RPG crowd, and I don't want to piss in their pies, because I keep saying modern shooters need to stop blowing off their forebears. Christ, that came out wrong. But on the other hand, the people who made the old 
grid-based dungeon hacks were limited by technology and would have used full organic movement if they could have done. Whereas I don't think the people who made retro shooters ever said to themselves, if only we had the technology to create linear barely involving strings of set pieces and racism. Turn-based combat, fair enough, that's a different, more thoughtful kind of gameplay, but a first-person RPG being entirely grid-based, even outside combat, when a full range of movement is perfectly tenable, seems weird. It reminds me of video games that simulate card games by rendering the actual cards getting dealt and flipped all over the place. The cards were only there because they were the best we had to visualise the epic dragon fights the original game was trying to represent. Video games now have better ways to visualise epic dragon fights. You could argue that it's just like making a film in black and white to deliberately evoke the past, but I find grid movement detrimental, so it's more like watching a black and white film while the theatre gets bombed by the Luftwaffe. Character customization is slim, with only two personality types per race, heroic or cynical, and while I thought it would be funny to have three cynical guys and one token heroic that I imagined the others all took the piss out of behind their back, having a cynical personality means very little besides spontaneously making situational quips. The situation being, every fucking second, one can only receive a quest and hear someone go, ugh, don't we have better things to do, so many times before you want to shove their warding travellers' boots of clear-headedness down their fucking throats. The story begins with our heroes arriving at a faraway land to scatter the ashes of their mentor, an objective that slips swiftly down the priorities list as the sidetracking begins. Sorry, we've closed the road to the next city because there's a bandit hideout nearby and we're concerned enough to want to shut the whole fucking country down, but not quite concerned enough to clear them out ourselves. Blimey, this is like a country run by the TSA. Get past that and the game goes, right, your quest now is to restore all the elemental altars, therefore saving the whole kingdom from the terrible fate of not having restored elemental altars. Mighty Mouse 10 is also old school in that you get a wooden ruler thwacked across your knuckles for not paying attention. I wondered for a while why levelling up didn't seem to make the combat any easier, because I am used to RPGs that pause the game for a little laser light show every time you level up before taking down your upgrade requests like an overeager stewardess. But no, in this case you have to hunt through the menus firstly for the small button that lets you increment your slightly bewildering stats. Destiny? What the fuck does Destiny do? Increase my ability to overhype next-gen shooters? Ha ha ha. Just call it dexterity, you pretentious twats. I know your mum said that you're special, but when she's alone she drinks to numb the guilt for the lies she has to tell. And then increase your skills, but my two-handed skill won't go any higher. That's because you need to find someone to train you in two-handed. Where's he then? Who am I, the fucking information booth at ignorant cunt land? Go look for them. It's not a proper dungeon crawler if it's not one-third dungeon to two-thirds crawling around a town flogging vendor trash and muttering, I know the shields guy was around here somewhere. You know me, I like a game that lets you fend for yourself a bit, but not putting a sign down every ten yards pointing to the next objective in case an independent thought makes your brain explode is one thing. Giving no guidance whatsoever except the sensation of your top halves being separated from your bottom halves by a single swing of a minotaur's axe after you blunder into an area too high level for you and send off a fireball that disperses harmlessly across his meaty buttocks like a watery cum shot but was sufficiently offensive to him that he's prepared to chase you to the corners of the fucking earth because he can't run away from fights even if your situation is hopeless and you only realise that after making the first strike or getting within melee range like the gormless sad sack that you are, is quite another. So I can't say that Magic Mike X has sold me on the franchise. Be nostalgic by all means, but progress has brought us wonderful things too, like the polio vaccine. Gameplay becomes a chore and what passes for story felt like your mum trying to convince you that chores can be fun. No really, just pretend the mop is a sword and the kitchen floor killed your parents. Don't put ideas in my head, woman. You know what, I'm glad that new releases are currently barer than the sandwich platter at the home for wayward fat people. I've caught up on so much shit. I finished my full-size replica of the West Midlands in Minecraft at the bottom of the ocean where it belongs, and I've caught up on some of last year's releases that I missed the first time around. I picked up Battlefield 4, then I put it down again and stamped on it a few times, and then I picked up the new Zelda, Link Between Worlds, instead. Now if you're looking for a balanced and thoughtful critique of the game, then what the fuck are you doing here? I'm basically just gonna rail it with the same points as always until it cries. Strap in while I strap on, viewer. What's this game about then? You play as Link and you have to rescue the Princess Zelda. Wow, across the meadows of fresh ideas you stride like a colossus, don't you? Oh, but it's very innovatively evoking Link to the Past on the snares, the same way I very innovatively crawled up my mum's vagina and stuck my thumb in me mouth. I'm gonna continue like this for five minutes of your life that you will never get back. Have they gone? 
Right. Sorry about the subterfuge. By my calculations, the only person still watching will be Nintendo itself, ego serving. And you and me need to have a little talk, man to monstrously large corporation. Consider this an intervention. You're currently dangerously addicted to failure. When the Wii took off the way it did, you probably thought that ship was going to sail into the sunset forever, didn't you? But a few years down the line, you've realised it wasn't a sunset at all, but the unforgiving hot flame of a tactical carpet bombing. Now the Wii U is failing to meet sales projections, profits are low, your senior staff are taking massive pay docks, and it's always worrying when a friend starts cutting themselves for attention. I wouldn't be surprised if you feel like a museum piece that somehow come to life stumbled out into the street and realised that it's a relic of the past kept around solely out of nostalgia by a niche audience rapidly outgrowing it in the brief moment before a speeding bus comes along and smears you across the road like marmalade on a piece of toast. I know we've had our differences, you and I. I did once refer to the Wii as a pile of white spunk that has congealed into the shape of the world's most uncomfortable turd or something along those lines. I was just frightened that the gaming platform achieving mainstream success was the antithesis of everything I hold dear, namely murdering things with elegant controls that don't require me to wave my hands in the air like the Thomas Crown Affair. But it didn't last. All those trend-following knobs who bought the Wii moved on to the Furby hovercraft or whatever the next big thing was, and you were stuck with the old fan base again. Water passes under the bridge, and with the new generation of consoles I find myself in a strange position of being unreservedly on your side, Nintendo. And why? Because you released a game console. Not an inferior gaming PC for people who dream of being the sub in an unhealthy technomasochistic fantasy. The Wii U is all like, here are some things happening that even the most paralytically drunk mind can understand, assemble some friends and tequila shots, and let's do this, bitch. Consoles attempting the shift to online multiplayer focus will be remembered as one of the bigger of their many mistakes, because it's always an uphill struggle and PCs do it so effortlessly. Play online without subscription fees, type insults with your keyboard, minimise the game and file your tax return and have another martini Mr Bond. Bam. PC doesn't do so well with local multiplayer because a PC is something you keep in an office and you don't entertain friends in an office except when you're shagging your secretary. You entertain friends in a living room and that's where the console has the home team advantage. While Sony and Microsoft compete to see who can make themselves obsolete the fastest, Nintendo never lost sight of the need for strong local multiplayer in a console and I respect that. So what is the problem with the Wii U? Well, to coin a phrase, you can make Make yourself as fertile as you like, but you can't make a baby without a few good hard dickings. And people just aren't making games for the thing. Nintendo's never been good with third-party relationships. That's cool, I have trouble making friends as well, but that's because I compulsively slap people who end their sentences with prepositions. Nintendo loses friends by pushing the hardware. Everyone does hardware gimmicks, the X-Bone has the Kinect and the Piss-Poor has its rectangular clitoris, but both of these are fairly easily ignored, like a sparrow perched on top of your hat. Wii U games push the screen controller like a sparrow getting in your face and doing plop-plops on your kebab. The screen controller was always innovative for innovation's sake and doesn't seem to have done much more than place the Wii U in a dead zone somewhere between game consoles and tablet devices without the excitement of the former or the expedience of the latter. Press one button on a tablet and touch an icon or two and you are playing a game, my friend. You don't have to go through that slightly creepy Michael York at the end of Logan's Run calling down to the brainwashed masses sequence you get when you turn on the Wii U, and then you can minimise the game to file your tax return. It could be that the average Joe scumfuck is now tech literate enough that we no longer need a baby's first console to slowly and patiently introduce to the dum-dums all the wonders of the magic glowing box. Perhaps the the very thing that makes me respect the Wii U is the very thing that's failing it. Maybe audiences would prefer to game now on integrated devices that also play movies and music and has the all-important tax return factor, and a dedicated games machine may already be right up there with still having a landline phone in your house or a hand-cranked brontosaurus feeder. The difficulty is that Nintendo's name is so closely tied to dedicated games machines that you wouldn't take anything else they did seriously. In the mind of the masses, the new smartphone from Nintendo sounds akin to the new washing machine from Etch-a-Sketch, but none of Nintendo's problems would be insurmountable if the Wii U had a few more must-play games. I still think Mario Galaxy was the last time Nintendo showed any actual evolution, and all their first-party nostalgia-bait games since then have just been sifting through decade-old shits trying to figure out when they caught their wasting illness. Maybe Nintendo should take a break from hardware and focus on the games, like what their old sparring partner Sega did, and they seem to be doing alright. Sonic the Hedgehog now has all the vim of a pig slowly turning on a spit, but they do other stuff. They published Aliens Colonial Mur- oh.
You know what, forget it, it'll probably all straighten itself out. Now I'd better put the facade back on in case someone skipped to the end. Oh, a boomerang and a hookshot, slow down Stanley Kubrick, and now you're going to rent them out to makers who wants actual structure that gradually opens up the game world when we could be at blockbuster video. Zelda, more like smelda fart. I smelled a fart. So the major quarter one releases are only properly kicking in around the end of the month. I am currently awaiting that period the way a surly abusive drunk awaits his sandwich, but one of the titles that stands on the horizon mockingly slapping its bum at me is Dark Souls 2. Now, I never reviewed Dark Souls because other titles were out and my playtime was limited, and every time I sat down to it it was like walking into a dark shed full of rakes, immediately treading on one and getting blatted in the face. Other people with more time on their hands started telling me it was the greatest thing since tummy rubs, so I'd go back in the shed thinking, well maybe there was just the one rake, before blat in the face again. So I left it for a while, but this week with plenty of free time in my schedule I thought to myself, last chance, I'll just keep tanking the rakes and maybe I'll somehow become really psychotically into being rake-faced just in time to be prepared for the sequel. And I'll be blatted in the face with a rake if that isn't kind of what happened. I've been raking myself all week right up to bedtime, I'm at risk of going blind. You see, I resisted Dark Souls partly because people kept telling me it's good once you're used to it, and I've always held that the same thing can be said of being boiled alive. So I'd ask them to explain why it's good and they'd reply, ooh we can't tell you, you just have to find out for yourself, and then I'd say, shut up or fuck off, ideally both in either order. But then, after watching a decent Let's play of the game, gone over the wiki a few times in a six-week preparation with a team of advisors and physical trainers, I was able to break through the wall, and I suppose that's the first failing of Dark Souls, that you need the fucking cliffs notes to get into it. It's a game that depends on shared knowledge, hence presumably the mechanic wherein players can leave little post-it notes for each other, but the ones that say anything as helpful as, hey you can only summon helpers in boss fights when you are unhollowed, or look here's a narrow and easy to miss path down which lies the rest of the fucking game, are in a vast minority to the ones that say try jumping right next to bottomless pits. How witty of you, random player, and only getting wittier after 50 fucking times. I'd say the turning point was some ways in when I thought maybe I'll try this boss again or maybe I'll explore the three other areas that opened up after I frangled the sacred vest of Saint Bumnose. And then it hit me. That's Symphony of the Night thinking. And I love Symphony of the Night, but no non-2D games have captured the essence of Metroidvania, I'd argue, since Metroid Prime. And then I knew where we all were and was free hereafter to happily halberd Hellspawn. The game sparkles then when it starts sprawling like pavement puke after a night on the Goldschlager, but first impressions let it down because for the first couple of hours there's really only one way to go and it ends with a boss fight on a roof that's about as forgiving as a stand-up gig at the Nuremberg Trials, and while it's fine that the game seeks to court the hardcore audience, a gentler barrier to entry might have turned less new players off, and more to the point made the ones who did get through a bit less insufferably smug. Oh yes, that boss fight is easy peasy as long as you've got the orange Listerine ring, which you must have found because it's right there in the open, in a chest, in a basement, in a different postcode, behind two secret walls, and a fire. Dark Souls has one of my favourite methods of storytelling, which is to say not telling it. There are a few cutscenes, very little exposition, no spunky love interest with prominent visible cleavage unless you count the one with a giant spider for an arse. There's no big villain either, the closest thing to a villain is the inevitable entropic decay of the universe. You are an undead, a lone cursed being in a dying world where all the great gods and noble heroes have either abandoned you or gone insane and you must put them all out of their misery in the slim hope of extending everyone's shitty lives for a few more years. In other words, it's kind of like being the Grateful Dead on tour. Much like the original Half-Life, your level of involvement in the plot is pretty much up to you. Maybe you'll wonder why this giant wolf is trying to shiv you for getting too close to a mysterious grave, or maybe you won't, or assume he mistook it for a fire hydrant. Who cares, another unfeasibly big thing to kill. Yeah, now let's kill all the merchants for a laugh. There's a certain liberty in hopelessness, isn't there? Because things can't get 101% fucked. The environment is what truly tells the story of Dark Souls. I wish it was a rule that you can only put stuff in your skybox if the player gets to visit it at some point, because then, say, the Syndicate FPS would have looked like it was taking place inside a ping pong ball, while Dark Souls would be laughing, because if you ever see a distant tower or ruin in the distance, then chances are you'll go there at some point, and chances are there's something big inside it whose favourite food is your face. The environment design reminds me very strongly of painkillers, or massive catacombs 
rooms and lordly halls, most of which seem to have been designed for someone 20 feet taller than you for some reason. It also has that painkiller quality where it looks like they designed the environment first and figured out how you get around it second. There's a bit in the big palace area where the only way forward is to run up and over a decorative buttress while being shot at by arrow snipers who have apparently resigned themselves to the fact that they're not going to make any new friends in this job. It all goes together to create this crushing sense of being a tiny helpless thing buzzing around the remnants of a once mighty world, like someone who follows the Grateful Dead on tour. So it turns out it's actually quite easy to explain why Dark Souls is good, it's because it's deep and dripping with atmosphere, like Barry White's sweatiest armpit, the Silent Hill 2 brand of atmosphere, the constant depression weighing down on you like a whale scrotum rucksack, so that the moments of victory upon killing the giant whale scrotum monster are all the more cathartic before another dump truck full of whale scrotums appends upon your head. It is harsh, but it's also fair. Ha ha, you might say. You hammered me into the size and shape of a deflated paddling pool the last three times we met, boss monster, but now I know all of your attack patterns and I'm basically fantasy Batman. Indeed, I was almost disappointed by how easy the boss fights got in the late game, once I was properly equipped and in the zone. Their sheer size stops being intimidating when you realise that a significant percentage of them are weak to the strategy of burying your face in their arse, slashing at their back leg and rolling away whenever they start winding up their stomp attack for the requisite 11 and a half minutes. And now I am in the zone, I'm gonna be fucking ruined for the usual standard of game difficulty. Gonna have to play the new thief with a lobster on each bollock. With the possible exception of when Alone in the Dark became stuck with shrieky love interest in a fire, no series has been more misnamed than Final Fantasy, or as it would be called in the sane world, tortuously drawn out claptrap. No, perhaps that wasn't a particularly fresh observation on Final Fantasy, but it's not like the argument has become less valid now that Final Fantasy XIII has had two spin-offs. The latest one being Lightning Returns, not to be confused with Batman Returns, was the first lame snarky joke that crossed my mind. I wouldn't have mentioned it, but the first we see of Lightning in this game, she's standing on a rooftop at night time looking broody, so it seems confusion may be more understandable than I realised. Was there much clap? ring for a spin-off game about lightning, I don't remember signing that particular petition, although I concede that it's a good idea because among the cast of the many Final Fantasy games there have been, she's a real standout character. She's broody with a big sword and stupid hair and dresses weird. Talk about a round peg in a square enix. When I reviewed Final Fantasy XIII I did so after only having played the first five hours because I had better things to do and so I hoped did the entire universe. Well you'll be pleased to hear I did a bit better with Lightning Returns and this time managed to play the first three hours of it. I'm hoping to get this down to one hour for the next Final Fantasy game. Anyway, here's what I gathered of the plot. Lightning's brood factor went into overdrive after the death of her sister Sarah, not spelt the way it sounds, so she put herself in what amounts to cryosleep for 500 years, only to find when she gets out that the world is basically the same and no one's aged, so everyone she knew from five centuries ago is still around. One wonders in that case how the five century time jump serves the plot in any way, except that it gave Lightning a chance to look all angsty and cool. She must have felt like a right ninny when she woke up though. What? No one was aging anyway? Shit! I could have stayed awake and caught up on my The Wire box set. The flimsy excuse given for nobody aging is that the world is ending. So apparently the first thing that falls victim to entropy is entropy itself. Make the plot holes bigger Final Fantasy, I don't think this train wreck's gonna fit through them yet. Lightning is then literally given a mission from God. God's building a new world with blackjack and hookers and Lightning has to save everyone she can on the dying one. In return, God will bring Sarah back to life. Also it is discussed in an early scene that God appears to have taken away Lightning's emotions, which explains why the end of the world can be six days away and she's not running around flapping her arms going <laughs> Hang on though. God takes away her emotions and then motivates her with the chance of an emotional reunion with the dead sister. Choo choo! Now arriving at plot hole station. Lightning is assisted by Hope from the original game, also emotion deprived, presumably so he'd stop crying all over the place, who was apparently a young man in the last game but has now been reverted to original Mummy's Boy Hope Classic. And you'd think a discontinuity like that would want to go unnoticed, but weirdly the game draws attention to it and then mumbles, God moves in mysterious ways. This may all sound arse-bleedingly contrived, but the plot makes more sense if you mentally replace the word God with the word Square Enix. Hope has been de-aged because it is the ineffable will of Square Enix, and Lightning has no emotions because Square Enix couldn't be asked to write an interesting character. Fair enough. In the prologue, Lightning 
confronts Snow from the old times who has become the king of party town and tries to nag him into ending his partying ways and let Jesus into his heart before it's too late. The evangelism isn't so much a subtext as it is a hot pancake to the face. But Snow won't listen because he's still mad about Sarah. Oh for fuck's sake, why is everyone so hung up on Sarah all the time? Did her hooters dispense soft serve ice cream? And we're introduced to the combat which is yet another instance of a game throwing all its toys out of the pram when you try to tell it it has to have either live combat or turn based combat. The combat GUI looks like what used to happen with old consoles when you pulled the cartridge out halfway through. How it works is that you select an enemy then hold down buttons to attack or to guard their attacks. You do this until the batteries run out in your underpants then switch to another pair of underpants with different guards and attacks assigned to its button slots and all's lovely lingerie until you have to fight more than one lad and you can only guard against the one you're selecting and if someone else is winding up to kick your ass then whether the switch target button will select him or the bloke rummaging through the dustbins ten feet away is a matter left in the hands of the little baby Jesus and he's a baby he can't hold shit. It's not an efficient system for fighting things it is a pretty good system for watching a character play dress ups in a variety of outfits that were the result of a prolonged experiment to establish how many parts of a garment can be cut out before it turns into a sex aid but as tends to be the case with JRPGs the combat exists in another dimension to the rest of the game entirely. You're running through a crowded civilian city full of people announcing at the top of their lungs that they're about to have dinner and then there'll be a monster bumbling along for you to fight and the dinner monologues continue regardless and it all feels kinda surreal. The game takes on open-ended qualities after the prologue perhaps because of the complaint that Final Fantasy XIII was basically 60 hours of running down a corridor although they've done nothing about the irritating clop clop footsteps sound that's like you'd got a metronome set up next to the hole in your skull and there's a dead rising aspect wherein time constantly passes, quests must be completed within certain time windows and if you just sit around watching The Wire then the world will end earlier than scheduled and God will get his narc on. The combat difficulty ramped up quickly and suddenly regular enemies had health bars like Christmas Toblerones that I could only patiently chip away at all through early to mid-January. I don't know if I was wearing underpants with the wrong stats but fights quickly became tedious as well as a confusing mess of keeping an eye on both the enemy and the properties of the underpants you're currently wearing. Things came to a head when I clopped three complete circuits around the town like a two-legged badly dressed donkey ride, killing things, taking quests and waiting for the window to the next story mission to open but when it did the first enemies I met kept taking off all my health with one attack. Blocking didn't seem to do shit so what am I supposed to do now game? Grind? Buy better underpants? I've only got four in-game hours to do this bloody quest. I'm finding this whole timer thing very paralysing but not as much as the knowledge that even if I get through this my only reward will be more time spent with shining and hope on a rope whereas if I just stop playing I could instead eat all the individual Mr Kipling apple pies in the house. Sorry lightning returns, you lose to pie. Tning returns. And now an insight into the thought processes of your favourite video game critic. Pies, 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 Magnus apple cider masturbate and play video game. But which video game? I've still got one more week to fill before all the big interesting releases kick in and I'm running out of strings to my slow release period bow. Oh Christ, I might have to actually review a game rather than pretend to and then use the space to talk condescendingly at Nintendo for five minutes or review one from three years ago that everyone besides me already knew was good. I shall have to think on this, masturbation pies, pies. So what is actually new this week? Well there's Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze but I can see where that would go straight away. It's too soon since Nintendo's last go on my spanking saddle, which I find just stops being fun after it starts drawing blood. Well there's always Strider, the remake of the classic Capcom arcade platformer by Double Helix, the Silent Hill Homecoming people. Ho ho, a long unsullied pair of virgin cheeks to redden. Pies masturbation cider, I wonder what brass eyes Brian Cox would wear if he was a woman. Apparently the now defunct grin of retarded Bionic Commando reboot fame were working on a Strider remake for a while but thankfully they cancelled that before they could add a plot twist where Strider's sword is actually his mum or something. I wonder if any of their version made it into this version, because it does remind me in several ways of Grin's less retarded Bionic Commando remake Bionic Commando Rearmed. The music and the visuals feel somewhat Bionic Commando reminiscent, although it could just be because they're both remakes of classic platformers in which you fight a thinly disguised version of an evil European Bionic Commando regime. You are a strider, basically a ninja but less colour coordinated, and you used to steal apples from farms when you were a kid and one day a farmer caught you as you were running away and yelled HEAR YOU! And so you decided to name yourself Strider Hear You. Well that was awful, but what do you want? There is so little plot to work with at the outset. The game starts, you're flown into enemy territory and you start chopping things in half before you figured out what the jump button is. These days, being light on exposition can either mean a really 
really deep and well-crafted story, or one that's like the fabric in a wet t-shirt contest, thin and not what we're all here to look at anyway. Strider is in the latter category, if that's not obvious by the time Emperor Palpatine shows up and gives you one last chance to join his quest to rule the universe, not exactly complex villainy afoot, but it's the gameplay that carries it. Strider here you moves with a rather girly, excitable run rather than a stride, counterintuitively, and he can slash his sword as fast as you can mash the button, being a master of the less sophisticated Feather Duster school of Kendo, but it gets the job done. Combat is rather appealingly organic, it just sets up a few rules and away you go, running about like you're a severe germaphobe trying to minimise contact with the ground, rapidly slashing in all directions. And meanwhile, the enemy are all firing bullets that can't seem to motivate themselves this early in the morning, so crawl along the air, giving you time to dodge or slash them away, which I like. It's combat that really makes the most of the 2D space and the wide range of high-speed movement, marred a tiny bit by slightly fiddly climbing controls, so in the heat of things here you might glue himself to the ceiling or wall to show everyone his dartboard impression. Strider is a Metroidvania game, you can tell because you keep finding brightly coloured doors you can't go in yet. Shadow Complex is a pretty clear influence, you pick up more abilities the more of the map you unlock and the combat starts getting cluttered like a teenager's bedroom floor. I think because the combat starts out as perfectly elegant, you jump around a lot and you make the sharp bit of your sword go into the soft bits of everything else, the instruction manual could probably be kept under 200 pages. Some abilities feel like cup holders and digital clocks bolted onto something that doesn't need them, like a kangaroo or a bag of crisps. There's the power to summon a giant red ghost bird thing that sweeps through the enemy, but the route it takes is kinda difficult to predict and half the time it only gave the enemies centre partings. And later from the same stable you get a blue ghost panther that runs across the floor nibbling every bum in its way, but it doesn't seem to do much damage, and in both cases I found it far more expedient to just run up to the target and hack his thighs into luncheon meat, and let the ghost menagerie stay in here use ninja underpants. As Metroidvania goes, it's definitely more Metroid than Vania. It does the Metroid thing where your weapon acquires four different elemental attacks that all open new doors, which I always think is a bit of a cop-out. You double jump and your teleport dash make new areas accessible organically, which is good, but a locked door that only opens when attacked the right way is just a wee bit contrived. Master, I've completed the design for base security, these doors only open when you hit them with the flaming sword, but no one in my army uses flaming swords. That's what makes it secure! And while the flaming sword and the icy sword have their own benefits, the fourth kind of sword, I think it was the black current jam sword, is basically just a door opener and occasional shield remover. Yes, it fires projectiles, but it's slow, and here's the thing, you're a ninja, you ninny. Your body is a missile and your willy is the fin. Just jump at the bad guy and hack his shins into spam fritters. Having said that, the kunai ability is a projectile attack with an actual use, and that use is to turn the game into a sodding bullet hell shooter. Especially when you're throwing six of the things at once, you must have a fanny pack on you the size of a walrus. And the exploding kunai's fucking hell. Thanks for playing most of the game, now for easy mode. Boss fights became absolute chumps, even the final one. Hey, want to use these launch rings to get up close to the boss and slash him about? I'm good, thanks, game. Fling, fling, fling. But now I nitpick. It's a little bloated and clumsy like a bridesmaid on roller skates, but the answer to the eternal question is yes, Strider's fun. The combat escalates well as the game proceeds, and most of the upgrades smoothly add new elements to it that are easy to adapt into one's fighting style, Phantom Zoo animals notwithstanding. It's always a good sign when by the end you're actively seeking out difficult fights, because the last time you cleared a room with minimal hits using a combination of slashes, kunais, and generic ninja flip-outs, you felt like your bollocks sprouted pins and turned into little grenades, if male, otherwise your clitoris extended six feet and flew the American flag. So I wouldn't say it brings much new to the table, but it did bring a lovely pie. And everyone's had pies, but we can still appreciate a pie that's well put together as pies go. Pies, pies, masturbation, Brian Cox. Publishers these days tend to treat gaming history like a great big party buffet full of lovely dishes. They randomly pick a sherry trifle with some nostalgia value and name recognition, do a great big squirty dump into it, and then they push it back into our face going, look, now there's more trifle, give us cash. Well that opening remark probably gives away my opinion on Thief right off the bat, doesn't it? But it's not like you weren't expecting it given my documented love of the previous Thief games and equally documented hatred for shit in trifles. But if you are just joining us, Thief is a reboot of a series in which a bloke steals money from people with too much disposable income because he doesn't feel like putting any effort into working for a living, so it's good to see the creators of this new one taking that particular attitude 
on board if nothing else. I wondered if it might be better to assess it by its own merits rather than how it differs from the originals, but on the other hand that's like wondering whether to use a fish slice or a butterfly net to get shit out of the trifle. So the first thing we do when we set out to slop together a drab tick the boxes committee designed work the name recognition till its organs of generation dry up and blow away like dandelion seeds reboot is to isolate everything that gave the original its unique appeal, edge and soul, put on our big boots and stamp and stamp and stamp until it can be posted through the letterbox of an ungrateful majority audience who'd be afraid of their own farts if they sounded one demitone higher than usual. The Garrett I remember falling in love with was a straight-talking, unapologetic anti-hero who knew when things were serious but was always ready to offer a bit of dry wit to camera upon finding a nobleman's private spanking saddle. He was not Batman, but that's what they've made him into, a broody misery guts who communicates solely in growly macho sound bites that only make sense until you think about them. If you asked old Garrett why he stole, he'd answer, cause I need to pay rent and it's the only thing I'm good at so shut up and let go of your wallet. New Garrett would, and indeed does, give the answer, because it's what I do. No Garrett, it's what you are currently doing. Hey Yahtzee, why are you kicking new Garrett in the stomach? Cause it's what I'm currently doing! They're not putting a new spin on the guy, they're boiling down a complex and interesting character into a boring, easily digestible archetype, i.e. Batman. And like Batman, he's suddenly having to be the dad figure to a teenage girl's sidekick who at various points is the rebel action girl, the damsel in distress, and the woman scorned. She has to wear three archetype hats because more than one female character might get dangerously diverse. Then there's the villain, the thief-taker-general, whose only role in the plot is to occasionally show up and victimise Garrett in an operatically evil manner like Dick Dastardly chasing the pigeon, perhaps having missed the point that thief-taker-general refers to the whole profession of thieving and not just one specific guy. Part of the identity of the Thief series was dry humour, a city of thick drunken guards and blustering nobles, you, the wily out outsider come to take them down a peg. But there's no wit or poetic justice in this city, just miserable people being serious. Er, uh, the police are evil and everyone's got the plague, who will save us? What's that? Dishonoured? Never heard of it. And no one says taff anymore. They say fuck. That's not fun. Errol Flynn swinging off a rope onto a pirate ship is fun, but if the enemy crew just tells him to fuck off it'd completely kill the mood. The other thing about the city in, say, Thief 2 was that it apparently had laxer zoning laws and you were allowed to build houses larger than the average semi-detached suburban semi, freely explorable where the guards take long circuitous patrols that might take you by surprise. Now the guards walk to a thing, stand with their back to the room muttering, gee I hope no one plays my skull like a bongo, then walk to another thing six feet away like they forgot what they came in here for. Of course, to suggest that the game be like Thief 2 is unhelpful, as you can't do those sprawling open-ended levels Thief 2 had with the modern cutting-edge graphics that are apparently so fucking important. We learned that in Thief 3, and this new thief which chooses not to call itself Thief 4, just to make my life difficult, looked at Thief 3 and thought, okay we know the smaller levels were less fun, but maybe if we make them even smaller it'll come full circle and be fun again, and we'll add points of no return every twenty fucking yards, in most cases without telling the player that they're points of no return, and the players who were just trying to explore can suck on a salty sausage. You could finish the game in about 20 minutes by sprinting to the next point of no return, alerting every guard, cat and stationary objects, none of which chase you past points of no return. A game with any balls at all would then say, get the fuck back in there and take this seriously. If you don't steal enough to pay a mortgage instalment, I'm keeping all these experience points for myself. Thief, on the other hand, goes, well done for playing the game your way. Hell, who says a game called Thief has to be about stealing things, besides the dictionary? And then puts you back in the overworld. Thief 3 did the mission connecting hub world thing as well, and it provided just as pointless and boring a commute then. Except now that the average big game project has a minimum of 15 to 20 individuals whose entire job seems to be to look busy, the hub world is absolutely plastered with useless doors, windows and ledges that are differentiated from the doors, windows and ledges one can interact with only by whether or not a contextual button prompt comes up when you're close enough to kiss it. This is like playing a bad text adventure. You see a door, enter door, you can't enter the door, search room, you find one door you can actually enter and several guards spinning in place because their AI bollocked up. Perhaps I should criticise something unrelated to previous Thief games. Okay then, the sound engineering's fucked. I had to turn subtitles on because there was a cutscene where everyone spoke in such growly serious voices I couldn't understand a fucking word they were saying. Guards kept repeating their scripted conversations in more than one case before they'd finished the previous run-through, and the volume of sounds didn't seem to have any relation to how many walls were between me and the source. 
All in all, the kindest thing one can say about Thief is that it's just another soulless AAA game to add to the pile. Token nods to the originals broken up with Uncharted-style puzzles, climbing bits and action escape sequences, lest we concentrate on one thing long enough to realise what a mess we've made. Where well, you can't even bop a guy across the bonds without feeling a hundred meddling pairs of hands, adding irritating music stings and elaborate takedown animations, until you might as well be smashing their heads between a pair of cymbals for all the subtlety it has. By itself, it's merely tiresome. To the Thief series as a whole, it's about as welcome an entrant as an agave cactus at a double penetration. Feels like it's been a while since I've had a chance to use the phrase like God of War but, not to be confused with the related phrase I like God of War's but. One of the undisputed masters of like God of War but was the first Castlevania Lords of Shadow, aka like Castlevania but, not much like it actually. A burly warrior type fights mythical creatures with a weapon on the end of a chain, they're really cross about their wife who died off screen and he killed her but managed to convince himself that some magical deity-like thing is actually responsible when all it did was point him vaguely in the direction and give him a gentle slap on the bum to get him going. And then at the end of it he gets to become a magical deity-like thing himself and spend the rest of time sitting on a throne looking like a lifetime movie about the importance of happy marriage has just come on the TV but he can't be bothered to get up and turn it off. Well shit, that's basically just God of War, isn't it? Fretted the creators of Lords of Shadow. Wait, God of War's never been set in the present day, has it? Bingo bango sequel time. Actually, I can sense a conscious effort to be more Castlevania-y this time. Our hero Gabriel is now Dracula because there's a limit to how much mopey self-pity a mere human can project, and the writers managed to work the classic what is a man a miserable pile of secrets line into the prologue as smoothly and naturally as a toilet brush can be worked into a sparrow's cloaca. He delivers the line just before he fights a giant robot the same way Superman delivers the line, up, up and away. I'm not sure why you brought it up now, Dracula mate. Maybe you're expressing disappointment in man for having secretly built a giant robot, when you made a point of going around all the villages saying you'd better not be secretly building giant robots around here or I'm gonna sulk so hard. Anyway, after being not technically killed in the siege upon his castle, Robert Carlacula is revived in the present day to find the armies of evil in control of the world and just about ready to summon Satan Isaacs. Unless he can stop them by entering a pact with death as played by Patrick Stewart, couldn't think of a decent pun for that one, Professor X Mortis perhaps? If you ask me, Lords of Shadow 2 misses a golden opportunity for some fish-out-of-water comic relief here. Dracula, sometimes going by Dracul because he's too Dracul for school, hasn't even coughed up his sleepy time cobwebs and death is telling him to go recon an evil pharmaceutical corporation. And if I were Dracula I'd probably want to know what the hell any of those words mean, but I guess he doesn't want to lose face in front of Captain Grim Picard. So he acts his way over there without a word, and this leads him into one of the game's major bugbears, which is a pretty vintage bugbear at this point but still gets taken off the peg to rub its ass on the carpet now and then, and that's forced stealth sections in action games. What with being not at full power, Dracula has to sneak around some giant armoured fat dudes who look like someone made an inflatable pool toy based on a Quake 2 monster, partly by turning into a mouse and going, oh please don't hurt me Mr Giant, I'm ever so little. And that's not the kind of thing I associate with being the all-powerful Lord of Darkness. Can't wait to come back when I'm full power and feed them their own tits, I thought. Guess again, sang the game. You're still sneaking past these motherfuckers right up to the fight with Satan Isaacs. One wonders why they aren't kings of the planet yet. Aside from that, combat's generally vanilla God of War classic. You have the lighter sweepy attacks and the directed heavier attacks, blocks, dodges, more complicated moves that you have to abort halfway through to block or dodge something. Weapon upgrades are a bit overextensive considering that the best approach is to mash normal attack and occasionally get out of the way. Each attack can also be mastered by using it a lot, whereupon you can smear your mastery all over your weapon's face and upgrade it to level 2. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure how this works in context, nor am I clear on how level 2 differs from level 1. Maybe it does more damage but I didn't really notice, maybe it looks nicer over Dracula's mantelpiece. Probably best not to worry about it except that every time you have the points or the mastery to do anything the game will nag you incessantly with obnoxious hints. Why haven't you spent all your points? Don't you want to stimulate the economy? You some kind of communist? So I turned the hints off, but then I lost the other hints that none too subtly remind you of what the button for throwing daggers is, when you can only progress forward by daggering a tiny and easily missed scotch pancake someone glued to the ceiling. In continued efforts to actually be a Castlevania game this time, the game world has Metroidvania open-endedness, or should I say game worlds, for there are two. The modern day city where all the plot happens, and bear with me on this, a dream version of Dracula's old castle created from his memories, where nothing much happens at all. Nothing related to the plot at large, anyway, you just go there every now and again 
again and fight a parade of boss monsters related in some way to the canon, it's an entire plot interweaved with the main plot that just doesn't go anywhere or affect anything. It reads like Dracula's day in the life, doing an inspection tour come pest removal, occasionally making time to hang out with his wife and child, what he murdered, and after piddling around long enough you confront a giant blood monster that looks like someone stuck Dracula's head on a novelty standing lamp and then that's about it for the castle half. Nothing seems to have been resolved, but there's nothing else to do. Maybe they thought they had to have a castle in there or the title would have come across as disingenuous. The game should have either been a big introspective cleanup of Dracula's brain castle or Dracula in the present day, Star Trek 4 style. Preferably the latter because there's a lot of mileage in that. I wish we could have seen him knocking around a nightclub or the DMV or riding the teacups at Disneyland, trying not to look like he's having fun, instead of the endless parades of the usual factories, sewers and ruined buildings. Trying to do the castle and the city at once leave them both feeling kind of flimsy and like they only exist to pad out the other. On the whole, Lords of Shadow 2 is a few good ideas that don't live up to potential. It is a nice idea to be able to play Dracula. I look forward to the game that allows us to do so, rather than the shirtless mopey panty waist presented for us here. Despite constant lip service to him being the Prince of Darkness, all the creatures of darkness are trying to kill him as well. Dracula does not tussle with the groundlings like a terrier at the bear baiting. Dracula does not do mandatory stealth sections. Dracula does not fetch quest. Dracula is the guy at the far end of an army of minions, slouched on a throne, tossing expensive wine glasses aside because he couldn't give two licks of a used tampon for whoever has to shampoo the carpet. I worry I may be a little too far in to review Dark Souls 2 with any kind of detachment. I know I only just got on board the Dark Souls pain train, choo-choo, all aboard for driving straight into a brick wall, but no one's more critical of drinking than a former alcoholic. And yes, I did just imply that not being into Dark Souls is equivalent to a major destructive personality flaw. I've just gotten through a big box of lovely jam donuts with cream on top, and now someone's come in with another big box of jam donuts and asked for my opinion. Good or bad, that second box isn't going to get a fair assessment, is it? Because I've still got jammy hands and type 2 diabetes. Oh well. Dark Souls 2 is the third game in a series that began with Demon's Souls, which I was thinking I should go back and try again sometime, but apparently we don't count it anymore, in which you play a cursed being on a quest for some kind of enlightenment, and must best a series of castles, dungeons and bosses by doing the equivalent of firing yourself at them from a cannon an infinite number of times. Your quest at the outset is to find a cure for your undead status, cause fuck all this being immortal shit, a quest that takes you to the land of Drangleich, which is different to Lordran because it's got the Dran part in the front bit this time, and after a rather overlong opening cutscene in which a bunch of old women talk at you like a pack of slightly tiddly ants at a wedding asking why you haven't found yourself a nice boyfriend yet, you set out to acquire four great souls which will in some way help. Full disclosure, I've not finished the game yet, cause I've only been playing for about a 30 hour stretch at time of writing, or as it's known in the Dark Souls community, a sample. I've gotten three of four great souls, and so far DS2 is much less about the world and much more about you, globetrotting soul harvesting reverse Santa Claus. Rather than Dark Souls 1's potted history of the world for you to think about as you murder all the participants, the Dark Souls 2 intro cinematic merely depicts you, deciding that blindly jumping into a portal is exactly as topping an idea as it first seemed. And I don't care about me, I'm just some fuck with a halberd, I want to know about the world, cause that's the thing I'm stopping to look at whenever the gorgeous view message appears. An unspecified amount of time has passed since the first game, which was already about the last gasp of a dying world, so that last gasp seems to be lasting long enough to inflate a fucking bouncy castle. It makes me wonder what sequel camp this is pitching its tent in, camp let's boldly evolve the concept up a notch with a story that demands to be told, or camp let's put out another of that thing people liked and carry our money home in a freight train. Don't get me wrong, if Dark Souls 2 is just more Dark Souls, then it's still welcome, if not as revolutionary, but I can't shake the sense that ideas are getting recycled with varying degrees of blatancy. The gutter is just Blighttown without the view, there's another boss fight with a big dog that starts limping when it's about to bite its last bonio, and it seems like a large percentage of the boss encounters are just variations on a theme of a dude in armour. Fuck dudes in armour. You could wallpaper your house with dudes in armour in this world, and many frequently do. I want more shit like the incomplete open heart surgery dragon. Things get more imaginative later though, this time for example you fight a topless lady with a scorpion for an arse. Push that motherfucking boat out! It's supposed to be easier on the noobs this time around, but obviously I can't gauge that because I already know what I'm doing. Certainly the tutorial's longer and instead of the introductory you're ready yet, you'd better be cause here's my warty ass boss fight, there's just the old lady thing. 
Although I was ready to carve up some water yards nonetheless, I tell you that. And instead of the game starting with only one path and then opening up when you're going after the four Lord Souls, now it's the other way around. You start off with multiple paths and it gets linear later. So if one area is feeding you your own eyeballs, you could maybe leave it for now and look for a gentler one. And good fucking luck, you shrieking mimsy. Fittingly for a game that opens up earlier, you can teleport between bonfires from the outset, which meant I utterly missed a certain character who only appears in an area you've got no reason to go back to and who is needed to open up a way to an entire fucking vital section of the game. From software, are you getting backhand from the game facts, people. In the category of it's different and therefore it's ruined complaints, you now lose maximum health each time you die, so as you bang your head on the brick wall of a hard boss, your head becomes softer and more delicate and cracks with increasing ease. You can get it back by reverting to human, but the items for doing so are finite, which adds an annoying ticking clock element when before you could just bash away infinitely until the boss submits out of pity, just like in my sex life. Still, at least you can revert to human from anywhere, not just bonfires, but that's it, isn't it? When Dark Souls gives you chocolate buttons, it has to take away heart medication with its other hand. There are healing items you can use when your Estus runs out, hooray. So you start out with only one measly Estus flask, boo. Weapon degradation now resets at bonfires, hooray. So the weapons now degrade faster than biscuits and milky tea, boo. Enemies disappear if you kill them enough times, hooray. So now you can't grind them. And if you die and fail to recover your souls, then all those senseless killings were just pissing in the wind. Oh, and remember how the jumping controls were shit? Well, now they're mapped to L3. That's even worse, Dark Souls. Well, good thing you can switch it back in the options, isn't it? But if I hear any more lip, I'm gonna map them to the Kinect. Hey, Dark Souls, your daughter got a B plus on her colouring assignment. Oh, well, then you must have a smack and a smack and a smack and a smack and how dare you, how dare you, how dare you! Ah, that's what I love about you, Dark Souls. You don't ask for a lot, but, um... Alright, you do ask for a lot. Remember how I said Dark Souls 1 often looks like they designed the maps first then figured out the gameplay second? I don't get that so much from Dark Souls 2. Certain sections of it feel very, for want of a better word, video gamey. Like the lava castle that feels like an adaptation of Super Mario Brothers, right down to the tortoise guards. And the boss is a giant goat demon waist deep in lava hitting you with very very slow punch attacks. That's beneath you, Dark Souls. That shit's video game shorthand for insert boss fight here. Overall though, this is like the Portal vs Portal 2 thing. Taken as holes, the first one is better because it's tighter, and I do love a nice tight hole, but for all one can quibble about a few extra rolls of flab, Dark Souls 2 can still power bomb you like a champ. I might even buy it again when the real version comes out. Regular viewers are probably now snipping the heads off their topiary in surprise. Yahtzee reviewing a multiplayer-only game, they cluck like farmyard hens, but he's as comfortable with multiplayer as he is with a toddler in a waiting room with a fascination for the crotches of strange men. Well, this may surprise you, but I've been making more of an effort to do the multiplayer thing lately, partly for therapeutic reasons. Dark Souls helped. That game feels like it's trying to wean you onto social interaction. First you find someone's note advising you to be wary of fatty, then you hire stalwart fellows to help you out with a boss fight, none of whom have headset mics so close to their mouths that you feel like their every utterance is trying to beat your ears to death with racial epithets. The turning point came when I was invaded but the attacker bowed upon seeing me, a gesture of recognition to mark a duel between equals. You know what, I thought, maybe I don't need to be so afraid of people all the time. So while he was bowing, I ran up and stuck my halberd up his ass. Maybe it's people who need to be afraid of me! But yes, Titanfall, the other reason I consider it important to review is that it's a multiplayer only game selling at full price, which meant Titanfall had dropped a few rungs into my shit pit even before it made me reinstall fucking Origin. The same price could easily buy you a game with solid single and multiplayer, but it is the nature of AAA gaming nowadays to see how far it can push its luck. It's got less gameplay but we're charging full price anyway because it's got very pretty blinky lights and if you're very very polite and deferential then maybe we will give you permission to buy the game with your slimy peasant money and be amused by all the blinky lights. And by the way, we've already decided on your behalf that this game is going to be a hit, so look forward to seeing it on the side of the bus you step in front of in the inevitable desperate attempt to end your miserable life. Sometimes I think the ideal games industry for these people would be one without any players at all, where they can just shake a 
a jar full of coins in front of a row of applauding monkeys and then go home with all the bananas. Case in point, Titanfall's plot, which doesn't seem to exist for the benefit of anyone playing it. There's an evil authority with evil South African accents and the heroic resistance, although they could have been ice cream men for all I know, and during the campaign missions while everyone's deathmatching away, a handful of named characters enact an ongoing radio drama over the airwaves. But it's like the instructions of pool attendants trying to be heard over a party of schoolchildren splashing about in an orgy of screaming and urine. The moment I try paying attention to it is the moment I get hit over the head by a ten-year-old with a polystyrene floater. While the voiceover in the briefing lobby droned on about all the cool story they'd written for the next mission, I conducted a brief experiment by asking in the text chat if anyone knew what the fuck the plot was about. Most people said nope, some people said war, and then started quoting Edwin Starr lyrics, and one rather odd bloke asked me if I was Jewish. The players are to the story what headlights is to an unpopular classmate, it's this big thing we we're all scurrying about on top of but we don't have much grasp of the concept otherwise except that it moves around a lot and sometimes gets the steel comb out. I'll just ignore the story, Yahtzee. Should I? Because this game is already pretty malnourished for full price and now you're telling me to additionally hack off a limb or two. Although I'm sure even with context it's still as generic as one of the Dulux neutrals range. Your soldiers running around a bunch of ruined buildings, we'll call that Magnolia White. Oh but there's giant robots as well, blimey that's got to take it all the way up to Barrister White or perhaps even Quarter Icru. What you have here is a sort of two level first person shooter, first running freely about on foot in a rather appealing bunny hoppy rocket jumpy quake 3 arena shooter kind of way, then after you've been knocked about a bit you scream that you're gonna come back with your big brother and summon a giant robot, which takes the level back to the current standard of shooters where you stomp slowly around occasionally ducking behind things. But weirdly, I was actually having fun with it. I especially enjoyed killing the giant robots while on foot by ducking into a building, running up onto the roof and firing rockets at its dumb head while it was shooting up the lobby. It was like playing Mecha Tom and Jerry. Matchmaking is a bit arsed up though, maybe it's Australia's abusive relationship with the internet and the game's just taking the first server that doesn't run like a fat kid lashed to a plough, but from my first game I was playing against anything up to level 40, all with better weapons than me. Maybe this is an aspirational thing. Hey, you know that guy who's currently standing on your face and mockingly rubbing his gun barrel between your butt cheeks? Maybe someday you'll be as good as him and can get petty revenge against newbies like what you currently are. Not against him though, he just unlocked the LMG. Jeez, catch the fuck up. In fact, you have to play through the campaign for the one side before you can do the other, so you can know for a fact that at first the other team will always be more experienced players. Admittedly, campaign might be too grand a word for 10 5 minute death matches, continuing as prepared regardless of which side wins each battle, it's more like an amusement park ride, specifically the Back to the Future ride at Universal Studios. Christopher Lloyd tells you that only you can save the world, but then you just get tossed about for a while and then everything gets resolved regardless of who paid attention and who fell out and was crushed to death in the mechanism. The difference being that the Back to the Future ride didn't charge you 80 bucks to get on. I've got other quibbles, the interface is a bit wobbly, I don't see why it doesn't let us select a loadout while in the lobby, only once the game has started by calling up a menu over the intro sequence and further ignoring the story. Are you just embarrassed by it? But while everything around it sort of blurs together like the placeholder plot and generic visual design, I found fun in those five minute clusterfucks, a sense of great freedom from the movement and a sense of great satisfaction from bringing down an enemy mech or squishing the pilot neath my steel tread, but there's just too little of it for the price and too little context to make it more than a few fun shooty moments that barely touch the sides of the vast overused vagina it occupies. Why should I play the same missions over and over to incrementally improve my ability to play the same missions over and over? A jewel encrusted plate cover is lifted to reveal a single cannoli in the middle of a massive white platter. A tasty cannoli, it's true, and there are plenty of seconds to be had, but do you really want to eat it when it's perfectly proportioned for shoving up EA's arse?
I was a younger brother, you know, presumably still am, but I haven't checked lately. Nothing worse than sliding out of the womb and finding that some asshole has already staked a claim on the best tit, like a German tourist leaving a towel on a sunbed. But that's just the start of the frustrations, there's the rivalry and the bullying and all the bloody hand-me-downs, that was my brother's word for holding me down and farting on my face. My only source of comfort in those days was my ability to shoot fireballs out of my hands. Well thank you Sony and Sucker Punch for creating a game that could almost have been specifically made for me, a story about a younger brother who badly deserves to be set on fire. Historians will remember that I liked Infamous 2 quite a lot, but particularly its ending, and said that if they made a sequel and I'd slap it so hard that its tits turned concave, but that was only if they made a direct sequel. Infamous Second Son is not a direct sequel and effectively distances itself from the originals, firstly by being about different characters and secondly by not being very good. Several years after Cole McLovely killed all the conduits, or Cole McBastard killed all the humans, there are still both humans and conduits, so I guess good or evil aside, Cole couldn't have had a strong work ethic. Conduits are now routinely imprisoned and relabeled bioterrorists because these days saying the word terrorist to Americans is like uttering the word din-dins at a dog pound. Three of them escape through a Native American community where a snarky young graffiti artist and Tearaway, who stops just short of carrying a slingshot in his back pocket, discovers he has the ability to absorb conduit powers from others. You know, like that one bloke in Heroes who looked like a partially deflated sex doll based on mid-90s Hugh Grant. An evil government conduit lady tortures the Native American community half to death looking for the runaways, and our hero Delsin Rowe vows to travel to a government-subjugated Seattle to leech her powers and untorture the community back to non-death. But the issue is not so urgent that he can't spray a few Banksy ripoffs around the place and then skateboard away as he smirkingly gives the middle finger to a community support officer on a push bike. And this being an infamous game, Delson Rowe, presumably named after a street in the posh-gated community he actually lives in, can be either Delightful Sin Rowe or Delinquent Sin Rowe. And again, this being an infamous game, one wonders why they feel they have to ask us which one we want at every single juncture, because there's only two endings and no point in trying to be in the middle Sin Rowe. Mid Del Sin. Never mind. But unusually for an infamous game, there's also no point in maxing out good or evil karma. Traditionally, at that point, you'd access a massive, devastating collateral damage jamboree power, or the ability to cuddle up to 20 cherubs to sleep at once. But while there are a handful of powers unique to each karma path, when you max it out, the game just goes, Well done, you are now a true hero supervillain. Here's a colourful jumper. You see, my usual problem with binary moral choice is that all it does is force you to play the game twice to see all the content, but that's barely the case here. Both Delsons remain at maximum engorged bellend on the cock meter and the events are all the same, bar the ending, and whether random passers-by go, yay, there's Captain Bellend, our hero, or boo, there's the bloke who indiscriminately murders passers-by, should probably stop standing next to him loudly voicing my innermost thoughts. Still, the range of elemental powers on display are pretty creative, although the word elemental is getting stretched like a mozzarella bumhole at the novelty sausage gala, what am I on about? We're past all your fire, lightning and ice, Grandad. The cool kids now use smoke, concrete, video and neon, which admittedly is an element. Also, there's someone running around with paper, but the game wouldn't let me do the associated quest until I'd registered some kind of account on the infamous website and fucked if I was doing that. There are too many businesses with my contact details already. I still get emails from Vlad and I haven't bought a white slave in years. Really though, the nature of the elements doesn't matter so much. They're all basically a colourful thing that kills people and lets you move very fast, like spiked ecstasy tablets with variations on attacks and movement powers. Also, each power has a super duper clearing attack that were all pretty impressive the first time, or more to the point in the trailer, but kind of lose something when you're watching the mandatory 20 minute animation rattle off for the 12th fucking time that day. And this being a PS4 exclusive, there are of course the standard clauses in the development contract, if in doubt reduce gameplay boost graphics, more particle effects than there are smallpox blisters on the child of an anti-vaccination campaigner, and crowbar in a use for the fucking touchpad thing or we'll kill your dog. And what did they come up with? Contextual button presses, the incontinent scabies ridden puppy of video game controls, the one left behind when the rest of the litter has been sold off and quick time events have been taken behind the bins and shot. Awkwardly stroke the unwanted puppy to open this, smash that, absorb the other, stroke it and hold it to lift the control core thing out of the enemy van and then mash right trigger to ineffectually flail limp-wristedly at it until it breaks out of pity. But that's not all the tortured hardware gimmicks, there's also the Banksy side missions where you create stencil art by holding the controller sideways, give it a little masturbatory shake, and then hold the trigger button to spray imaginary paint on the stencil. Controller even makes a little hissy noise, blimey, Total Immersion VR can only be days away. Hopefully this will tide me over until Nintendo announce Mario Paint HD. I suppose the go-to backhanded compliment for Infamous Second Son would be that it's another 
Infamous game, but Infamous 2 had strong characters and the leads in Second Son all seem to be stereotypes of what someone in their 30s think young people are like these days. The character with the video power is a gamer, and you'd think if any medium would want to avoid insulting stereotypes of video gamers it would be video games, but there he is, in his big glasses and spots and longing for the day he moves past pubescent bum fluff so he can finally grow his first neck beard. It speaks to an attitude reflected in the main character, we're far too cool and alternative to be put in your little boxes, man, not like those nerdy spods over there, with their dungeons and their Star Wars and all the other shit we pretend we don't know anything about, but it's all delusion. Second Son stands obliviously in a box clearly labelled Current Gen, as in same as before but shinier and there's less of it. Less sandbox, less missions, less of everything except arrogance, can't see much point in it unless they found a way to erase the previous games from history, like say by making a new console not backwards compatible. Oh. The Metal Gear series is the video game equivalent of Lenny from Of Mice and Men, a huge lovable idiot. It discovers things that ordinary people figured out years ago, like hovering the third person camera behind the player character instead of nailing it to passing seagulls, and we applaud it for overcoming its disadvantages. And when it fucks up, I can't stay mad at it, cause it doesn't fuck up out of malice. Hey Metal Gear, why did you pretend MGS2 would be about Solid Snake, then replace him 20 minutes in with a cross between an albino Barbie doll and Wesley Crusher? Duh, I'm sorry, I just wanted everyone to meet this cool new character I made up. He's a cyborg and his nipples turn into shurikens. Hey Metal Gear, why are all these emotionally traumatised young women thrusting their butts at the camera. Duh, I'm sorry. Looking at bums makes my willy feel nice. With MGS5 Ground Zeroes I worry that he's fallen in with a bad influence. Why did you chop the intro off your upcoming game and release it for 40 bucks, Metal Gear? Duh, I'm sorry. Mr Konami says I have to pay him back for all the fizzy gummy bears he gave me. Did I ever tell you about the rabbits, Metal Gear? Are they down that shotgun barrel? Yes, Metal Gear, have a closer look. Understand my problem, viewer. I'm a man of routine and strict scheduling. Wake up, breakfast, exercise like the brassiere underneath the dwarf. I'd already scheduled out Ground Zeroes to be reviewed this week. I'd heard it was short, but I figured hey, Kane and Lynch 2 only made like two wheezing inept thrusts before rolling over and going back to sleep, and I got plenty of mileage out of that. Turns out Ground Zeroes didn't even get as far as the thrusting. I bought it dinner, we watched Dances with Wolves, it rubbed its dick on my cheek for a second and then it ran off to catch the last bus. It didn't even make me feel like a whore, just the victim of a practical joke. And I didn't have anything else to play that week besides Poke the Dancing Dwarf, so I guess this is where we're at. I'm gonna review half an hour of gameplay. Consider this a sneak preview of the future world the games industry eventually wants to create, in which we pay a hundred bucks for ten minutes on the candy crush machine, in between mining for polygons on one of the Microsoft slave planets. So there's this guy who's sometimes called Snake and sometimes called Big Boss and he's the best soldier ever. He's got an eye patch and he's a martial arts expert and no really he's just so cool you guys. And he runs a sort of mobile party bus service for mercenaries but there's these two kids who hang around his base, either by the same principle as those two kids that used to hang around with the super friends, or because it's like those little birds that live in crocodiles mouths and he hires them to pick bits of cornflake out of his beard. And they've been captured and imprisoned in an evil American detention centre by a bloke called Mr Skullface who's called that because he has a face that looks like a skull. Metal Gear, you're right has officially graduated to the level of a bad Saturday morning cartoon. Thanks! My favourite one is G.I. Joe! Anyway, Mr Big Snake has to go in alone and rescue his two underage slave children before their captors can interrogate them and find out what their favourite milkshakes are, and he's now being voiced by Kiefer Sutherland, which was a bit of a lurch. I've gotten so used to David Hayter's silly gravelly voice constantly repeating the last two words of the previous speaker's sentence as a question that when someone else does it, now it makes the dialogue seem really badly written. The prison camp represents the entirety of Ground Zeroes. I should probably promise to stop harping on about the length issue, except I won't. I'm gonna harp like an angel with Parkinson's disease. At the outset the title menu had the one mission and then like five or six locked ones, so I thought okay that's a healthy enough size for 40s macaroos. Turned out that the first mission is the only one with any story and there's an end credit sequence afterwards that accounts for about 40% of the total runtime. The rest of the missions are just bonus objectives on the same map, which felt like continuing to suck on a lolly stick after the lolly has been depleted. It is quite a large and sprawling map which can be fairly fruitfully reused, but variations in light and weather effects won't go far to stop it from getting a wee bit samey, unless you're one of those emergent gameplay types who can get hours of fun from arranging unconscious bodies into the shape of a swastika. But 
he'd probably be equally amused by enacting thrilling shipwreck survival dramas with a plate of beans on toast. What's frustrating is that I enjoyed what little game there was. I can't decide if that softens the blow or makes it worse, like a man I respect has offered his hand to shake only to pull it away at the last second while his friend yanks my trousers down. It controls well, there's a button I extracted much amusement from that makes Snake gaily fling himself at the ground like he means to impregnate the earth itself. You can kick the door down and shoot the place up against a chorus of blaring alarms, or you can find a vantage point and organically recon the area ahead before you kick the door down and shoot the place up against a chorus of blaring alarms. I like that the game doesn't let you wimp out. Rescued the prisoner, is the mission over yet? One might ask. If you mean after you've carried them through enemy territory to the extraction point by a route you're gonna have to figure out by yourself, then yes. It shows improvement without losing its identity as a Metal Gear Solid game, so you can still crawl up to someone then stick a knife in their ear until they tell you about their favourite milkshakes, and the requisite radio talk is mercifully brief, and the game doesn't lock you in a cupboard until it's finished. And there's the usual Metal Gear inconsistent tone and leaning a bit too hard on the fence around Creepyland. To illustrate how evil Mr. Skullface is, if the skull for a face wasn't doing it for you, we find out on the chopper home that the girl we rescued has a bomb in her guts, so we must watch it being extracted with unflinching detail. Man, the PS4's good at rendering a screaming girl's guts, although I doubt they'll be putting that in the marketing packages. But then the girl wakes up and goes, whoops, just remembered there were two bombs. Kuh, what a scatterbrain I am. Explode. It wasn't dull, I'll give it that, but if she's gonna blow up anyway, the scene seems a bit wanton. Metal Gear, are you being weird about female characters again? No. What's that behind your back, Metal Gear? It's a female character who wears bikini tops and never speaks. Oh, Metal Gear! On the whole though, if this had been a free demo, it might have left me enthused for MGS5. Instead I loathe it, because I remember when entire thirds of games were given away for free and I object to having to pay $40 for a demo just because someone's been too liberal with the fizzy gummy bears. Leave me out of it, or for fuck's sake switch to cola cubes! Do you remember that time not too long ago when it seemed like everything was getting made into an MMO? Star Wars, Star Trek, Conan, Defiance, they were talking about doing ones for Stargate and Firefly. Problem is, nobody asked for any of it. Especially not Defiance. None of the Defiance fans were asking for an MMO because both of them were off sick. It's very difficult to persuade MMO players to stick with a new one for long because all MMOs are just endlessly killing dudes that have been evenly distributed across a meadow and all a new one can do is change the colour of the grass and what hats everyone's wearing. So sooner or later players will be back to the one they've invested the most time in. Which usually means WoW, but since WoW started providing the answer to the question, when have you officially put out too many expansions, the answer being when you start nicking ideas from animated Jack Black vehicles, maybe someone thought it was safe to try this new MMO lark again and put out Elder Scrolls Online. Another proud entry for the list of shit nobody asked for. We'll slot it in between Doctor Who spin-offs and menstruation. Elder Scrolls Online, or ESO, which can also stand for Electric Shite Orchestra, is an MMO of, wait for it, the Elder Scrolls series which produced Skyrim, Oblivion, Morrowind and some other ones no one cares about anymore. And all those venerable lands from the previous games can be revisited in ESO, albeit smaller and less interesting. In the grand tradition of Elder Scrolls games, you start the game as a prisoner. I think these days just being the protagonist carries an automatic prison sentence after all those poor sods in Skyrim had balls put on their heads, and after fighting your way through a sort of prison full of dead blokes, you release a guy called The Prophet, who judging by his name is probably some kind of tax accountant. And after escaping back to the real world, he explains that only you can save the world from the regional franchise of Ultimate Evil and its sinister district manager. Yes, only you and the 12 million other protagonists running around. Meanwhile, the nine races of Tamriel have split into three factions. Okay, why? Because it's more MMO-y that way, so stop complaining, and draw straws to figure out who's gonna have to sit next to the stanky cat dude. Enterprising sock onanist does wear a lot of the identity of an Elder Scrolls game, it's got a very drab colour palette, characters stare goggle-eyed at you while they talk like you've just gently brushed their hair out of their face over a glass of wine on the banks of the Seine. Every cat litter box can be looted for shitty items that you don't want, flooding your inventory, but equally don't want to get rid of in case they turn out to be the missing ingredient for dragon rice pudding or whatever. Again, they hired big-name actors to play two or three important NPCs, and everyone else is the same three jobbing voice actors. 
actors who weren't being paid enough to put on a different voice now and then. But often the MMO thing interferes with the Elder Scrolls thing. One loading screen told me that if I had nothing better to do, which summed up 90% of my time with the game, then I could always just pick a direction and keep walking and see what random adventure one stumbles into, which is a valid approach in Skyrim and such like, but in this game the unspoken footnote reads, you will very swiftly be gangbanged by enemies that are too high level for you, cause clearly you've never played an MMO before, you thick prick. I decided to play as a red guard, cause weren't no imperial crackers gonna oppress this big black ass, and with a racial bonus for sword and shield I dutifully equipped one of each. My first mistake then was to try to play the game like Dark Souls, where the shields are more useful than strapping a digestive biscuit to your forearm. When you bow at the altar of MMO you can expect to kick up the bum from the high priest of latency issues, and the point when an enemy attack hits you is only in a casual relationship with the moment when you actually see it hitting you. And the act of pressing the raise shield button is similarly evasive about its commitment to the actual raising of the shield. The only moves that can be shielded are the ones that compensate for latency by having the enemy wind it up for about half an hour going, ooh here comes the pain, you in trouble mister, are you ready yet cause the pain train is coming, and my upraised arm is the ticket collector, while little flashy effects appear like his armpit attracts fireflies, then I raise the shield and he becomes dazed when he hits going, oh by your mastery of battlefield strategy am I outclassed, let me bow my head into convenient bludgeoning range. Don't patronise me Mr Skeleton, I may have a response time that would embarrass an elderly bulldog on dental anaesthetic, but at least I can't be repurposed as a xylophone. So the combat isn't exactly nuanced, you stack up your buffs and play your special attack buttons like a little Fisher Price piano, which is fairly standard for MMOs, but it's not what I associate with the Elder Scrolls, because I can't exploit dodgy programming and physics to win. So no more bucket on head theft sprees to be had, but then again stealing doesn't seem to be a thing anymore either. Homeowners just smile unblinkingly on as you rifle through the bookshelves and pinch the knickknacks. Hey, maybe this is why everyone separated into factions, because Tamriel has fallen victim to the global scourge of communism. Surely if you can't get run out of town by the local guardsman because you knocked someone else's biro off a desk, then it hardly deserves to be called an Elder Scrolls game. If we remove the comparison to its predecessors, expecting something original is just really dull. With the comparison to its predecessors, it comes across as spread a bit wider but a lot shallower with it. Larger piece of bread, same amount of butter. And the butter might be spunk. And just to spooge it all over our faces even more, ESO then attempts to focus on the single player experience. I know, because more than once the lead NPC of Cursed Village Du Jour said, thank goodness that you alone came to our aid. While even as she spoke there were three other guys in the queue behind me, waiting to hand the quest in. Sometimes I'd go into a dungeon and find four or five other dudes running around killing all the important monsters before I could, like I'd stumbled into a really aggressive interview for a janitorial position, which removed any enjoyable challenge from the mission and further underlined the six letter question that hovers permanently over the experience, why MMO? It always baffles me when a franchise that has built its success in single player decides out of nowhere that it's going to be multiplayer now, whereupon it cuts its legs off and works a bunch of spoons into its asshole, and the players say we kinda preferred you back when you had legs and didn't have cutlery up your ass, but it replies, don't you see this was all for your benefit? I had to cut my legs off to make it easier to fit the spoons in. I remember when South Park first became a thing. The Simpsons had already advanced animation from Josie and the Pussycats to the point that it could say, hey, maybe your parents actually are still having sex, but it was South Park that went a bit further and declared, hey, maybe they're having sex with pigs and handfuls of their own shit and, I don't know, velociraptors. Someone has to be pushing at the boundaries because otherwise we wouldn't know where the boundaries were. We'd just be huddled in the middle of the prison exercise yard swapping WWE stickers. But I haven't watched South Park in quite a while. Nothing specifically made me go, never watching that show again. My wife's a velociraptor. Interest just kind of dwindled. I think because you can only transgress taboo for so long. It was like a giant giant orange space hippo from Mars descended from the sky and started dancing about on top of a hill playing bagpipes, and at first we flocked to see the giant orange space hippo, but after a while you realise he only knows how to play Scotland the Brave and all his jumping about is shaking your fillings loose. So these days I just occasionally notice him as I glance out the window and think, is he still playing them fucking bagpipes? So South Park the stick of truth in this analogy is like the giant orange space hippo is still dancing about playing bagpipes, but now he's hired a zebra to sit at his feet and read poetry, so I've come out just to maybe see where the two of them are going with all this. Now I've put off reviewing the game for quite a while, and indeed I'm continuing to put off reviewing it in the review itself, because you can't really take 
take the piss out of something that is itself taking the piss. This isn't a fucking bucket chain. Nor can one be crass about something that's already deliberately crass. It's like trying to embarrass a poo by making it wear another little poo as a hat. The only recourse left to me then is to be completely humorless and straight-faced about it. South Park, the stick of truth, is a role-playing game set in the titular cartoon town and enjoys the benefit of having been made by the original creators of the series, thus elevating it far above all previous attempts at South Park video game tie-ins which were like having your head forced into the tortured vagina of a person you used to respect. You are a silent protagonist and brand new original character in South Park, meaning you are literally any character in South Park with a different haircut, and upon your new arrival in town you are swiftly roped into a make-believe fantasy war between the armies of man and elf starring all your favourite faces from the show. Meanwhile, a series of events involving aliens, a zombie virus and an incursion by government peacekeeping forces threatens the town itself with total annihilation and then someone farts on someone else's face. Deploy humour, ha ha ha, humour deployed. South Park has a reputation for being nothing if not irreverent, so it's obligated at this point to start training its skewed, stirical eye on the world of video game tropes, it's just that it's kind of starting on the ground floor on that front. Hey, it says brightly, have you ever noticed that if someone in real life actually was a silent protagonist then they would come across as cripplingly socially inept and make everyone around them feel a bit weird and creeped out? Uh, yeah, Half-Life 2 was making that joke ten years ago, but well done for joining us in the kiddie pool, South Park. I was reminded of Earthbound right off the bat, no pun intended, but then Earthbound was reminding me of South Park before South Park was invented, somehow. I was also reminded of Paper Mario, because you have NPC partners who aid you in the turn-based battles and have special abilities that bypass specific obstacles in the overworld, just like Paper Mario, and you can do more damage or defend in battle with timed button presses, just like Paper Mario, and it takes the piss out of other video games a lot, just like, come to think of it, it's exactly like Paper Mario, maybe it's all in the contract you have to sign when you set out to make a game that pretends like it's made out of craft paper but actually isn't. Fortunately for you, South Park, I really like Paper Mario, but that doesn't mean I won't ask for tighter combat design. The special attacks, magic attacks, summon attacks and weapon upgrades that can be removed and reapplied at zero cost all make it easy to get completely overpowered by applying multiple status effects that leave your enemy a weeping flaming mess quietly shitting itself on the floor. It's also not the most expansive RPG in the history of quietly shitting on the floor. The whole game is isolated to the titular town, which you can walk around once at the start of the game and discover most of the side quests with a single cast of the net, although there is a section later on set in Canada that takes the piss out of top-down retro RPGs and goes on long enough for the joke to start wearing thin and then goes on a bit longer for good measure. You know South Park humour kinda lost something after a while because a taboo is a finite thing, you can only extract humour from ingesting faeces and owl pellets for as long as it takes to start developing a taste for them. So to South Park's credit, while it isn't above making Trouser Trumps a major game mechanic, it seems to devote a little bit of time to the entire comedy spectrum. Yes, knob jokes and gay jokes and rape jokes as well, and let's not forget abortion jokes! You may have heard that the game fell victim to the censorship hammer here, entangled in the petticoats of the nanny state Australia, wielded as ever the way a monkey wields a typewriter, and that several scenes were replaced with a text description under a picture of a crying koala. Yes, very funny joke, fuck the man and all that. But the funny thing is, after the fourth or fifth time, I kinda lost sympathy for the creators. You know what, I thought, from your description that does sound pretty fucking stupid and I'm kinda glad I was spared it. You just bang that shock humour glockenspiel until you're ready to continue, I'll just be over here reading The Spectator. Oh, I shouldn't get sniffy, I was talking about forcing heads into vaginas four paragraphs ago and I'd say the hits and misses balance out evenly enough. The bottom line on Stick of Truth is the standard tie-in game review sentence, altogether now fans of the show will like it, which is not to say I disliked it. It's rare for creators from another medium to come over to the video game sphere and show it enough respect to actually make a video game that comes together pretty well as a game with more ambition than merely advertising the source material. At least I hope that wasn't the intention, because I still haven't quite worked up the interest to find out if they're even still making the show, but on the whole it was like lifting a piece of furniture I hadn't moved in a while and finding a Malteser I'd forgotten about. Nice Malteser while it lasted, although there was something in the middle that might have been a dead wasp. Oh game release schedule, do I just not appreciate you enough when you're rich and plump and game for whatever deviant ideas cross my mind that you have to torment me with these dry spells? Well I say dry spell, my plan was to go to Steam and review an indie game or three, but Steam seems to be currently disgorging indie games like an unsecured fire hose, and you know how it is, you go around someone's house to find him explosively evacuating from both ends, probably not the best time to ask if he wants to play Scrabble. Don't get me wrong, I like indie games, I like that there's a competitive marketplace for them, but I also like battered sausages from the chip shop and I wouldn't like them if they were being fired en masse at my house from a butane powered cannon. So rather than play 25 space strategy games with names like the Star Wank Chronicles, looking for one worth talking about, I figured let's 
let's just do one I already know is worth talking about, namely FTL colon faster than light. Presumably the FTL part also stands for faster than light, but I don't want to make no assumptions. Actually, this is timely for a not particularly retro review, because there's just been a major content patch for faster than light, faster than light, as well as a new iPad version. If you ask me though, you can't beat the PC experience. You've got to be able to smash that spacebar to pause the game and have a little breather in between the enemy launching a breach missile and it giving your helmsman an unwanted bellend piercing. But we get ahead of ourselves. Faster than light, whiter than white is a roguelike in which you captain a ship belonging to a generic space federation and must travel across the galaxy to bring a warning of an impending attack by a rebel fleet. Oh, you mean that one that's literally five seconds behind you? Thanks, but you probably needn't have bothered, mate. And you have to fight the rebel flagship by yourself at the end anyway, but in truth your goal while trekking across space is not merely to reach the end, but to upgrade your ship to the point that at the very end you can turn around, dig in your heels, face your pursuer, and then get fucking stomped into mulch. Because they've got more offensive capability than Stephen Colbert at a White House Correspondents' Association dinner. Faster than light piggies in shites, rather minimalist graphics that look like someone was hit by Cupid's arrow while using MS Paint and fell hopelessly in love with the straight line tool, might make the game seem a bit low-key. As might the text boxes that are the only means the game have to convey the fact that, say, someone on your crew was devoured by giant alien spiders. But the game consciously drops fancy spectacle in favour of a more thoughtful experience. You can't move the ship in real time, only jump to the next junction point, and the advancing rebel fleet will just sit around kissing their biceps and making mocking hip thrust gestures in your direction until you move. It effectively combines low-pressure thoughtful gameplay with rising tension as the foreboding jam of upheaval spreads inexorably across the buttered toast of space towards you. It is interesting that the rebels are the bad guys for once, because, you know, the government might be oppressing your freedoms and shit, but they also run sewer systems and post offices and things won't get better just because they've been overthrown, although there might be more poo lying around. The combat isn't technically turn-based, but with the pause button to hand it might as well be. Again, rather than moving your ship in real time, you and your opponent just stand on either side of a big wall and throw rocks at each other, tactically choosing which parts of the enemy ship to fire upon while micromanaging the positions of your crewmen to boost systems or repair damage. It'd be a great game to get someone else to play for you while you sit in a big chair behind them wearing red and black pyjamas, shouting target their weapon systems, divert power to main thrusters, and have that actually mean something. It's a game that rewards crafty tactics. If you get boarded, you could honourably duel them man-to-man -man with your crew, or you could seal your crew in the med bay and depressurise the entire ship. Ha ha. And if the enemy AI is having one of its brain bubbles and can't seem to figure out how to coincide its laser attack with when your shield is down, you could just blow up their oxygen generator and watch them slowly suffocate. Hee hee. There's very nearly a morality thing going on. By the end of the average game we've learned exactly how justified this whole rebellion thing is by how many ships have said, we surrender, and you've replied, sorry, you're breaking up, sounded like you said, blow us away and pillage us for bits. Will you sacrifice your humanity for survival and become the very thing the rebels claim you are? As Nietzsche said, gaze ye not into the abyss, lest the abyss's boyfriend get narky. Realistically though, you've got to take every opportunity for resources. The major complaint one can direct at faster than light shit's getting tight is that you live and die on the random number generator. Sure, you've got a lot of agency in terms of how you upgrade, but you need the scrap first, and you could easily have a run of bad luck, use up all your scrap on fuel and keeping your various bits together until you're five sectors in, taking on triple shielded dreadnoughts with a bag of dried chickpeas and a dustbin lid. But if you set out with every game expecting to smash those dastardly rebels and give them noogies with your massive chin, then you're setting course for a trail of tears, Commander Cockmonster. Faster than light riddled with spite is a roguelike, and this is what roguelikes are about, flinging your head at a wall until one or the other breaks. The sort of thing you're supposed to play over and over again. With that in mind, a shorter game style might have been a good idea. As it stands, one or two hours is quite a lot of investment to simply let scatter to the space winds alongside your powderized body when the rebel flagship does to you what a power drill suppository has been known to do to a swan. Then again, it's less about the big picture and more about the moment-to-moment -moment encounters. The true lifeblood of a procedurally generated game is variance, and FTL has a lot of that. Yes, you'll probably get swan drilled seven sectors in, but on the way you might unlock another ship to play as, and new layouts for your existing ones, and each one offers subtly different styles of gameplay to enjoy as another handful of pick and mix is packed into the trebuchet to be hurled at your fucking face. Yes, maybe you might as well be pulling the lever on a fruit machine, but it's an utterly unique fruit machine that dispenses 
badgers and wool. Sometime last year I made an observation that between Alone in the Dark, Darksiders, Dark Souls, Luigi's Mansion, Dark Moon, Darkest of Days and Dark, video games are showing a bit of an obsession with keeping the lights turned off, like they brought a barfly home with them and sobered up too quick. But as Newton taught us, for every action there must be an equal and opposite reaction, as seen when the barfly compensates for their appearance by being amazingly good at table tennis. So we've seen the Army of Darkness lining up, but I've noticed a growing army of opposition, containing such luminaries, no pun intended, as Torch Light, Dead Light, Faster Than Light, Metro Last Light, and, uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator. These ranks were recently bolstered by two new soldiers in the same week, both of which I would like to take a look at for you now. Of course, it must be said that Light doesn't seem to have done a lot to make these games cheer the fuck up. So first of all, Daylight, a game characterised by a total absence of the thing it is named after, sort of like the McDonald's Healthy Choices menu. Daylight is a horror exploration smartphone inspection simulator that owes a certain amount to Slender and its 8 billion derivatives as well as various other horror properties. In fact, if we started listing everything Daylight owes to, we'd certainly delay it long enough for the leg breakers to arrive. You are a young lady named Sarah who is trapped in an abandoned hospital which is also an abandoned asylum which is also an abandoned prison and has to find the way out, all the while collecting pieces of paper onto which every single dead person who used to work here recorded every slightest thought that crossed their banal fucking minds, but who never used their eloquence to send out an order for a few thousand more light bulbs. So in all it couldn't be more haunted if Jason Voorhees's mum had used it as a venue for her steak and stab luncheons, but while Daylight is riding cliché like a dirty pony, it thankfully avoids the usual sodding twist where the main character turns out to have a history with a place that they forgot about. Oh sorry, I was thinking of Mario Golf. That doesn't happen in Mario Golf, but of course it fucking happens in Daylight. Your task in each stage is to find six pages whereupon an object spawns in location A which is used to open the gate in location B to get to the next stage. The closer you are to opening the gate, the more chance there is of quote, shadows showing up, which falls into the Silent Hill Shattered Memories trap of removing all fucking ambiguity over whether or not you're in danger. But while Daylight is from the saturated school of indie gaming that thinks all a horror game needs is the odd scary noise and three feet of visibility, I do recall at one point making a little involuntary blubbering noise with my mouth, so it at least had some effect, until I realised that the shadows can only harm you if you look at them, and whenever they're around a very unsubtle gibbering noise plays while an even less subtle tip flashes up saying, hey, you remember how the flares work, right? Just asking. So when either of those things happened, I learned to take a close interest in a nearby wall and basically got through the whole game unmolested. Didn't help with the shadows that just spawned directly in front of me going blur, but those are the cheapest of the cheap scares. Those are to horror what standing at the mic blowing raspberries is to stand-up comedy. And look, that whole twist where the main character has a secret history with the horror, that only works if they have a character. Besides a disembodied voice occasionally going, is anybody there? Or squeaking like a rusty hinge. We need to have made some assumptions about them before you can start subverting our assumptions. All I had to go on is that I'm a squeaky lady in a haunted house. So I turned to my brain and asked, why are we in this haunted house? And my brain goes, well, presumably because we've got a secret history with the place. Brain! Fucking spoiler warning! In short, can't recommend. Maybe try Outlast instead. Now let's move on from a game ironically named after what it has very little of, to something a bit more literal, namely Child of Light. The main character's a child, that's a tick, and the game's so sickeningly twee it makes me want to retract my legs into my body and puke shoe leather onto its face, two ticks A+. You are a young princess who possibly died and woke up in a strange fantasy land that you must now save, never-ending story style by restoring the sun and the moon and the stars, all the while fighting off evil and bad poetry. Child of Light follows my patented formula for instant critical acclaim on the indie circuit. Small child, platformer, big scary world, a theme related to coming of age or loss of innocence, and a soundtrack reminiscent of the outro song from the Incredible Hulk TV series. Take my opinion for what it's worth because I am fully aware I am the opposite of the target audience on this one, but I found Child of Light very dull, ironically. It's yet another game that tries to reinvent the wheel and add real-time elements to turn-based battles, in this case shining a magic torch on either the enemies to slow them or yourself to heal. Which really fucks with the pacing when I'm holding off selecting an attack from the menu to sit beaming myself blind. Now you unlock the ability to fly very very early so fights are easy to avoid but you have to level up somehow for the mandatory boss fights. Is it worse when a game batters me with a boring stick or puts the boring stick on the floor and leaves me to batter myself? Also, I see a flaming spider in the overworld wearing a flaming hat spewing the words I'm all about dat fire in flaming letters so I equip all my fire defence and water attack and start combat only to find that earth badger and ice dentist were hiding up his arse or something and I have to fight them too. So combat was a chore but it wasn't what made the game excruciating enough that I couldn't continue. And again this criticism may be even more subjective than usual, but 
frankly what truly killed it for me was that the poetry was so fucking awful. Every single line of dialogue is a rhyming couplet, which is a cute idea as gimmicks go, but several thousand couplets down the line you can practically taste the blood running from the writer's eyeballs, as in the most utterly tortured possible way arranges the words of another sentence do they. With absolutely no understanding of rhythm, they probably think iambic pentameter is some kind of handheld device for measuring sunspots, and I know it doesn't sound like a big problem, but constant little niggles mount up to big ones. You know when you're watching your granddad type and he's taking so fucking long you get more and more frustrated until you want to shoo him away and do it yourself? It was like that. Whatever the game's merits, I had to stop because otherwise I would have bitten my controller in half and yelled YOU CAN'T RHYME DELICIOUS WITH RAVENOUS! EMPHASIS IS ON THE WRONG SYLLABLE! YOU FUCK! Boy, isn't it a wonderful time to be into superhero films. It's hard not to feel spoiled when the film studios take enough money to solve all of the developing world's problems and pour it all into a portrayal of your favourite Nancy boys prancing about in leotards. Unless you think Sony's generosity ends with Amazing Spider-Man 2 the film, you don't have to go five fucking minutes without being reminded of Amazing Spider-Man 2 if you don't want to. You can wake up in the morning and go from Amazing Spider-Man 2 toothbrush to Amazing Spider-Man 2 happy meal to Amazing Spider-Man 2 nitrogen asphyxiation chamber. There's just one tiny little stumbling block in the whole system and that's the fact that Amazing Spider-Man 2 is absolute wank by most accounts, but I'm sure that problem will go away if they keep throwing money at it. Ethiopia doesn't strictly speaking need all those schools, do they? In all honesty, I haven't seen the film, but that's good. That means however absolute the wang situation, it can't possibly taint my view of Amazing Spider-Man 2 The Game. So here goes. Amazing Spider-Man 2 The Game is absolute wank. Oh, better look next time. You'd almost think a property about a beautiful young man in tight clothes shooting stringy white goo out of his hands had some kind of default propensity towards wank. So you should know the drill by now. Peter Parker, Uncle Ben, bang dead, oh no, power responsibility, shitty villains, wine, wine, woe is me, I'm beating the pussy off with a stick, etc. And we're sandboxing around Manhattan again. If it has been made to make the swinging physics a bit more skillful and involving the way it was in the previous Spider-Man 2 the movie the game, so now you can only swing when you're next to something swingable and you employ your hands separately to manage movement and steering. It's alright. I mentioned this first because it's about the only thing I'm going to praise, and even it is tainted by trying to web onto a building that isn't there being one of many situations for which Spider-Man has a pool of about four different witticisms that are always arranged in ascending order of making me want to web at full speed under the wheels of a heavy goods vehicle. If I weren't paralysed by the knowledge that he probably has witticisms for that, too. Amazing Spider-Man 1, the movie the game, was no stranger to waddling awkwardly to the bathroom with its trousers round its ankles to hastily wash the spunk from its hand, but at least it had a somewhat coherent narrative. Its sequel diddles about with barely connected threads like a passive-aggressive teen with a badly strung ukulele. It starts off as as a side story to the film, but it opens with Spider-Man hunting the bloke who killed Uncle Ben, which is about as far from a side story as you can get with Spider-Man, but it is swiftly dropped to rocket back and forth between villains like the most popular prison bitch in the exercise yard. Everyone the films haven't staked a firm claim on yet gets a moment. Black Cat shows up for her apparently mandatory appearance in order to go, hey, ever heard of tits? Well, here's two big fat reminders, and then immediately vanish. Then after a while, the game starts giving the whole side story idea some funny looks as it contemplates what next to hurl from the balloon, and then BAM, the movie villains show up out of fucking nowhere for a boss fight apiece. And you just know it's because a memo floated down from Mount fucking Sony Limpus saying, Remind people of the film more. We need to squeeze money out of this bollocks like a tit-shaped champagne dispenser. So as a result, the game culminates in a protracted session of guess which of these boss fights is actually the final one. Is it the one with Kingpin, ostensibly the mastermind of most of what goes on? Nope, he's only the first. Is it either of the two movie villains, the Golden Calves, before whom this whole mess has been sacrificed? Nope. The correct answer was Carnage, recast here as a sort of vigilante murderer, because what they're trying to do is make him out as the centre of a sort of dark reflection running theme, but it completely falls flat. Ooh, you're just like me, Spider-Man, he burbles. Secretly, you also want to murder all those criminals you catch. And instead of saying the obvious thing, no I don't, you fucking weirdo, Spider-Man weakly concedes that he may have a point. You what? 
Can't say I've ever gotten that particular vibe from Spider-Man, that all his joking around and rescuing people is merely an outlet for his repressed psychotic murder fantasies. Although admittedly in this game I would happily have started sticking the heads of street criminals on the spikes of Aunt May's wrought iron fence if it meant I wouldn't have to keep foiling their fucking crimes over and over again. Yes, random street crimes are constantly occurring and in the traditional sandbox manner you can jump in and resolve them, and when I say can I of course mean fucking have to or be shot. Ignore too many petty crimes and the anti-crime task force will become hostile, which delivers a bit of a mixed message. We're against vigilante justice, Spider-Man. Wait, he's not doing vigilante justice. What an asshole! Let's kill him with vigilante justice. And take my advice, don't even fucking bother trying to save people from burning buildings, it's always a chore finding them all between the smoke and the camera flipping around and Spider-Man's mysterious difficulties with entering open windows. And one time I failed the mission because I'd gotten the last guy to the safe zone, but the putting him down animation hadn't quite finished before the timer ran out. Oh, you're not satisfied with my performance? Fine, I'll just fucking put him back. Spider-Man games at their best are all about flow and freedom of movement, but this mechanic is hell-bent on bringing that to a screeching halt. If you could burst in, kick ass and burst out again, it might work. But each crime must be established with a cutscene and then concluded with a fucking news report telling you how great it is that you beat up three teenagers for loitering next to a Rolls Royce. And the series continues its lofty ambition to be like Arkham Asylum when all it can do is press its face against Arkham Asylum's living room window until Arkham Asylum calls the police, so the mandatory stealth elements are as annoying as they were last time. Dialogue trees have been thrown into cutscenes for no apparent reason except to yodel, we have no fucking idea how exposition works, and drive further stakes into the heart of the game's pacing. So I suppose we should summarise. Story, a fucking mess. Gameplay, a fucking mess. One-liners, heavy goods vehicle. Graphics, more like mess fix. The game looks like shit even on the highest graphical settings, with amongst other things the out-of-costume Peter Parker's head being distractingly too small for his body, like a peach on a bookcase with an extremely punch-worthy haircut. Should I expect more from a movie tie-in? Maybe not, but while the last Amazing Spider-Man movie game deserved second-degree burns edging on third, it was 24 karat gold compared to this one. Well, silver. Well, copper. Copper's still good, you can wire stuff up with it, like Amazing Spider-Man 2's nipples. People talk about adventure games in the 90s, they'll usually talk about LucasArts putting out masterpieces whenever the fucking planets aligned, like Leonardo da Vinci, and Sierra being prolific but largely producing uniform beige, like a jobbing painter and decorator, but one can easily forget it was a broad and competitive age of PC gaming with a number of artistic phases. The one we don't like to talk about is the FMV phase, because for some reason everyone felt having live-action video in a game immediately turned on the green light for explicit sex and violence, from realms that even the least supervised 14-year-old boy would be loath to prove. And with video compression being what it was at the time, you ended up with something that looked like partly cooked pancake batter being poured onto the floor of a ketchup factory. One of the very few decent FMV adventure franchises was the Tex Murphy series, which has lain dormant for many years, but in this wonderful age of Kickstarter, that is not dead which can eternal lie. And with strange aeons even entitled nerds in their mid-thirties creak open their wallets. Tesla Effect is a brand new successfully kickstarted Tex Murphy adventure, boldly bringing its signature FMV style to an age of HD, although it does mean that a little light-hearted niche adventure game ends up clocking up 12 sodding gigabytes of space. But what else besides HD video could do justice to every line that Chris Jones's face has acquired since he last played Tex Murphy in 1998. Sorry, that was needlessly cruel. We can't help how we age, nor indeed can game mechanics. Oh, this paragraph's going well. This is explained in the plot with Tex having mysterious amnesia of the previous seven years. Yeah, right, seven of those special extra long years, maybe. What I liked about the Tex Murphy games is that as well as sidestepping the FMV pancake batter torture porn thing, they were light-hearted, good-natured, pulpy adventures about a lovable bumbler in a dystopian post-nuclear future, who for reasons best known to himself, and acts like a stereotypical 40s private eye, which might explain why it did so well on Kickstarter, the land of never moving on from the past, where there's a big statue in the capital city of a man staring up his own bumhole. Uniquely in its day, the Tex Murphys were full 3D first-person adventure games, albeit with that 90s Doom-style 3D that's like real 3D after you let the air out and drown it in a swimming pool, but Tesla Effect is the glorious full polygonal 3D world the series always dreamed of. Just try not to notice that human characters all mysteriously vanish when it switches from FMV to gameplay, because it turns out 3D modelling is actually really hard. In keeping with the private eye thing, the first-person game 
gameplay lent itself to an investigative style where most of the work is gliding around the locations on your invisible roller skates, waiting for your puzzle senses to tingle, with the potential tedium of the process lessened by constant examined dialogues that subtly build the world and establish Tex's likability. The other half of it is reading out an ever-growing list of topics to every single NPC, over and over again so that they can overact directly to camera as they claim to no bugger all. Both of these processes are enhanced for the modern age, with on the one hand a flashlight that highlights important objects, and on the other HD video so huge you'll think you're trapped inside a wardrobe with the actor as they claim to know bugger all about it. But the question of whether or not Tesla Effect is true to the original series is probably the wrong question to ask, because of course it fucking is. The fans bankrolled it. It wants to attract newcomers to the series like it wants to attract their stinky grandma at a family function. I'm not a newcomer, and there were still moments when the game went, hey, remember this character? And I was like, no. Well, fuck you, because we're pressing on anyway, bold as brass. The real question is whether or not Tex Murphy games still hold up. Tesla Effect kicks off with some really nice intrigue when you're freshly amnesiafied and wandering the streets searching for your first thread to start pulling on as all your old friends talk to you like you're a different man, but as the case unravels it fails to live up to the promise of the mystery. The plot threads pile up like a horrific car accident and it gets harder and harder to tell which severed limbs belong to what cadavers. Okay, so that guy was working with these guys who hired another guy from a previous game we're just going to assume you know about, and this other person is secretly related to a character who doesn't appear in the game but we're going to bring them up like they're important anyway just to fuck with your flowchart. The problem is created by the game's nasty habit of jumping ahead of us and bridging the gap with a brief explanation blurted hastily out like a promise of undying love to someone on a speeding train. So we have a scene where the wife of a missing person reveals herself to be a spy imposter type, and then the narration goes, oh by the way Tex knows this woman, they hooked up once, so she's going to seduce him in a hotel room that you are in now for some reason, go get him tiger. And then you're left standing dazed in a bedroom, clutching a bottle of champagne and a small pamphlet of advice from your dad, and sometimes you don't even get the narration, as tends to happen with deaths. I was on a roof, I tried to open a gate, but clicking on it just dumped me straight to the game over screen without explanation. I assumed it was electrified, and only noticed after solving the puzzle that no, there was just a big scary dog behind the gate, on the roof presumably having been parachuted in by the 117th Big Scary Dog Airborne Division, and which was apparently killing me the moment line of sight was established with his electrified Yukonoba farts. I like the game when it's about hunting for clues, or having to pursue a lead involving, say, Snickers bars and deducing, hey, we should probably go and interrogate Mr. Snickers, who wears a modified Snickers wrapper as a jockstrap. I don't like it when it's making some cockeyed play for gameplay variants by adding obnoxious amounts of sliding tile puzzles and the like, often alleged to be security systems designed solely to keep out people who've never filled in the back of a cereal box. Not to mention stealth sections that again dump you to the game over screen if a patrolling guard enters your approximate postcode. The low point of the game is a huge ruined facility where all the bugaboos come home to roost, multiple useless rooms with few dialogues, instant death monsters patrolling for irritation's sake alone, and then out of nowhere, a fucking maze full of spiders, which I guess the builders installed because it was cheaper than a daycare centre. On the whole, Tesla Effect doesn't so much reinvigorate a franchise as it does remind you that it existed, and while it has the charm of a game created by actual humans out of love, to err is human and love is blinding. That's why you should always aim your love away from the eye sockets, fellas. What has the video game industry got against the historians of the future? Is it because they've never come back and given us jetpacks? That's just being entitled, isn't it? And yet we still insist on naming games specifically to fuck with future archiving systems. Like the last time Wolfenstein came around it was just called Wolfenstein, an experience I found so mediocre that I had to write the review in limericks to stop myself gnawing my hands off at the wrist. But on reflection, if I thought Wolfenstein represented an apex of mediocrity in shooters, I must have been severely lacking in imagination back then, before the modern warfare genre had fully completed its slide into that dark unpleasant pit where there is only meaningless violence and a complete absence of Nazi space wizards. The sheer lack of self-awareness in Spunk Gargle Wee Wee betrays an ugly paranoia that still exists in people today, whereas Nazi space wizards just illustrate how thoroughly we've gotten over those Nazi twats, and can be free to blow off their limbs and fuck the stumps without worrying about whether it might be a bit weird. So Wolfenstein the New Order, more fun for the future archivists. What are you gonna call the next one, the slightly newer order? The series has shifted from secret history of World War II to flat-out alternate history, which is immediately brought across by the prologue being a desperate last gasp attempt to prevent Nazi victory in 1946, their electro-punk wizard technology having reminded them to bring a few 
few more woolly sweaters to the Russian front. Our hero, William J. Blazkowicz, the weird thing I noticed is that very few people still call him BJ in this game, I guess he's had enough of it being mistaken for an instruction in the communal shower, misses his chance to kill the Nazi space wizard and gets a chunk of shrapnel lodged in his meaty head like a dislodged filling in a Jersey caramel. After spending 14 years in a Polish asylum trying to squeeze the shrapnel out by thinking about it really hard, the kind of 14 years during which nobody ages a fucking day, but never mind, he leaps back into Nazi killing action with a machine gun in one hand and his nurse on the other, who fell in love with him from all those romantic arse-wiping sessions. New Order has some surprisingly strong storytelling chops. One of the many advantages of Nazis is that you don't have to justify shit. Hey, this guy's a Nazi, would you like to drown him in his own piss? The game might ask. Sorry, did you say something? I was busy drowning a Nazi in his own piss, we might reply. But despite that, New Order puts the effort into making hating Nazis feel fresh again. One of the first things we do is watch a soldier shoot a room full of hospital patients before we stab him right up the Laban's realm, and the principal villains only need to smile and play card games to become infinitely hateable. Meanwhile, the range of characters in the heroic resistance are almost universally flawed and sympathetic. I was drifting through Resistance HQ playing the guess who's going to do the inevitable betrayal game, but every flash of antagonism belied only the frustrations of rational people in an irrational world. Even Captain Meathead, who spends the whole game talking in a grizzled macho whisper, and tanks cutscene injuries like their butterfly kisses, comes across as pained and exhausted by it all, fighting to kindle the last embers of hope in a damp forest as Fritz prowls around with a super soaker full of cold spunk. But I do have a criticism in that I'm not completely on board with the goal the heroic resistance are working towards. They seem to be mainly focused on bringing the smackdown on the cheap Nazi space wizard's creepy ass. But the Nazis have conquered the world. They've won. They've written all those history books they were supposed to write and hung up their little swastika pattern socks. I don't think they're going to be good enough sports to hand the world back just because we killed their creepy dad. I'm detecting a whiff of the old Uncharted syndrome in that I think the developers locked down a vague end point of killing creepy Nazi space dad wizard and then filled the intervening time with a bunch of cool vignettes, figuring out after the fact how the plot connects them. This is most apparent just after BJ nicks a German U-boat for exciting voyage to the bottom of the sea action, only to discover that they can't use the nukes until they get the launch codes, which for some reason are on the secret Nazi moon base. Cause it's not like you'd ever need something like that close to hand. The president's only bloody handcuffed to the launch codes cause he loves to accessorise. You know, at that point BJ is basically Tintin on protein shakes. The gameplay is that you shoot the baddies and the baddies shoot back. Also a standard suite of stealth mechanics, use the silence pistol that will completely ruin your day if you miss the head by one quarter of an inch, or use a throwing knife that can land squarely in the left butt cheek and instantly ragdoll the guy. But it all works well together and doesn't call for further comment. What I did find interesting is that there are map screens for each level, and map screens in meathead shooters have been rarely seen since the preferred method of navigating mission shooters became to set every single one in a fucking corridor, with Christmas lights dangling overhead in case players get distracted by an overly decorative skirting board. But Wolfenstein New Order actually has levels with multiple routes and secret paths to reward exploration. It's almost like it manages to combine the positive qualities of older level-by-level shooters with those of more recent fare, possibly by going around with a fishing net and collecting a bunch of babies that got thrown out with the bathwater. I'm a little bit iffy on the dual path concept, where you have to decide which of two characters to save near the beginning and that changes which ones in the resistance later on, as well as which of two lockpicking minigames you have to do the whole game for some reason. I don't want to have to play basically the same game twice to see the paltry handful of alternate scenes and pathways I missed that ultimately change bugger all. Fool me once, shame on you, infamous second son. But in the end I'm actually a little surprised by how much I enjoyed Wolfenstein New Order. In my mind I put it alongside Resistance 3 and Escape from Butcher Bay. I've started mentally cutting off the Chronicles of Riddick part from that title in the hope of reducing the spread of infection, the upper tier of the meathead shooter that no, doesn't really do anything new, but puts its pieces together skillfully and balances the weak underlying narrative with a somewhat picaresque approach that paces out its peaks and troughs competently. That's about all I've got, really. But just for old time's sake, with the Wolfenstein series updated, it's straightforward enough I can't hate it for the goodies I root and the baddies I shoot and their corpses I leave desecrated. The hype train for watchdogs had all the grace and subtlety of a 19th century steam locomotive dangerously overloaded with jizz cannons and jizz cannon maintenance equipment, which as we've often learned can be the warning sign that the publishers don't have a lot of faith in the game being able to stand upon its own merits. Well, it certainly can't stand upon its understanding of how hacking works, I can tell you that straight away. Basically, if your hackers are mostly hip young DJs and tattoo artists who all crib their sense of style from the halfway point between My Little Pony and Pinhead from Hellraiser, and have been so obviously workshopped to oblivion that they might as well be snapping their fingers and referring to authority 
authority figures as daddy-o, then you're already showing your ignorance, because most hackers are fat, greasy shit minglers with terrible beards posting Google Street View images of the houses of people who think we should have to pay money to watch TV shows. What will certainly not help is having your hackers put on very serious faces and wave their handheld devices about the way Marvo the Master Wizard works his magic wand. Fortunately, the protagonist of Watch Underscore Dogs is not one of the heavily workshopped Johnny Lee Miller rejects, but Aiden Pierce, a character who appears to have had all personality sandblasted off, till he's a blank cipher who doesn't even know how to button a trench coat properly. He was a hacker who did any work for hire and stole money from bank accounts, but then accidentally targeted someone powerful who killed his six-year-old niece, which gave him a little Spider-Man moment, and he declared that from this day forth he would use his powers to continue working for hire and stealing money from bank accounts, but also fight crime in between, if he can be asked. Not stealing money crime, or property damage crime, or murdering policeman crime, just, you know, all the bad crimes, the ones committed by people other than himself. Oh, but no one can understand Aiden's pain, other than, you know, the kid's mother, his sister, who seems to be infinitely better adjusted about the whole thing. But then she also hasn't figured out that Aiden is the mystery vigilante even after the news media starts broadcasting his name, so she's probably a few dead kids shy of an origin story. Watch Dogs isn't an easy game to summarise. The elevator pitch must have been delivered during a massive power outage. I suppose you could refer to it as Assassin's Creed in the future. Might as well. It's got about the same amount of stabbing as Assassin's Creed does these days. Main difference is that instead of using rooftop vantage points to plan ahead, you use security cameras, and I'd say that's where the game comes into its own when you learn to think outside the little bland cardboard cutout of a man we have been insolently asked to identify with and turn the environment to your advantage, creating distractions and blowing up people who come to look at them, which never stops being funny. Gosh, I'm curious about that dog barking sound. Gosh, I'm curious as to where my legs landed. It falls apart pretty quick when the enemies spot you because Aiden Pierce in a firefight has the durability of a Pringle between a professional wrestler's buttocks, but at least that provides incentive to use all these mechanics. In this age of namby-pamby play-it-your-way psychotic mass-market inclusiveness, more games should have the apricots to draw the line and say, you'll do it the way we like, or you'll do it with more bits of metal in you than your love interest's face. But at other times, Watch Dogs has the old Assassin's Creed problem of getting easy shortcuts confused with gameplay innovation. For example, if Assassin's Creed 2 wanted someone dead, you had to creep unnoticed into close enough range to stab him up the brisket. But by AC Brotherhood, you're free to crossbow them from two rooftops away when you're not just handing it off to the intern. In Watch Dogs, you can hack traffic lights and barriers to discourage pursuers, but how that applies is that a quick time event flashes up as you drive along the road, you press it, and hey presto, pursuer fucks off. Thank goodness I was coming dangerously close to waking up, and Sasso Credo at its worst always seems to be just assembling a big disconnected pile of stuff to do as opposed to a cohesive whole, which in theory is having something for everyone, but in practice is like hiding someone's birthday present in a room filled floor to ceiling with ping pong balls. All Watch Dogs fun side activities are outnumbered by shit ones. The ones I found most specifically vexing were the random crimes. How they work is that a crimer and a crimey get together, and the moment crime starts, you leap in and brain the offending party with a stick, ideally before the victim gets hurt. But something like five times in a row I failed the mission because I jumped in nanoseconds before the event had been officially declared a crime. So I'd see one of the dudes raise a gun or a big knife, and then I'd leap out yelling, what's all this then? Whereupon the criminal would go, well that completely ruined the mood, you asshole, and then skip off hand in hand with the erstwhile victim leaving me with the game saying, I hope you're proud of yourself. But the main thing that kills the sandbox activities is that there's bugger all they can reward you with. Money only buys weapons and craft items that are all lying around for free anyway, and the character upgrades are as enticing as Chuck E. Cheese prizes. Here's one that lets you steal more money. Not gonna dignify that with a reply. How about the ability to resist tyre blowouts? I only had a tyre blowout once in the entire Sonic game, I just nicked another car. Give me something I can use, like a thing that makes enemies drop dead when Agent Pierce says something boring. The ability to disable pursuing helicopters 
is useful, but it would be most useful from a getaway car. And the camera won't look straight upwards while you're in a car, so you can't get line of sight. I had to stop the car, sirens blaring all around, stand there in the street like a knob as the police snipers took aim, and point gormlessly at the helicopter like a man with a wonky garage door remote. Watch Dogs does not live up to the hype, but that's hardly fair because it would need to have made me spontaneously grow a third bollock to do that. A predictable story with no likeable characters, Aiden and his sister both look at the grave of the child that is his sole motivation the way they'd look at a middling difficulty Sudoku puzzle, and the game plays a lot of faff and chaff packed around one or two core ideas with potential. I really liked the two or three missions where you stay on the cameras and guide an accomplice from cover to cover, because at that point you're basically playing as the tutorial voice in somebody else's video game. They make a whole game of that, I think it would do alright, because any measure that will minimise the amount of time Aiden Pierce's burbling little face has to appear on screen is worth about 12 Game of the Year awards right there. Hey kids, let's see if we can think of three words that start with E. Here's one, excruciating. That'll do for a start. Here's another one. Uh, actually, I seem to be kind of fixated on the word excruciating for the moment. Oh wait, I've got one now. End. As in, end this execrable endurance event entailing eager editors endlessly entreating eminent entertainment egotists for efficacious endowments of effluence. And for a third and final E word, eggnog. There we go, three E's for E3. E3 2014 to be precise, or to give it its true name, the meh heard round the world. Could you expect much? It hasn't been a year since the bone and the piss ball came out. If they had any really big cards to hand, they'd have played them last year while they were trying to get everyone to buy the sodding things before too many people wised up. Though having said that, I suppose if a company is willing to attempt to switch rails mere days after a course has been stated, like what happened last year, a radical change of policy and mass suicide seems that tantalising bit more possible. Which might as well kick this off with Microsoft then. Micro, how many bits do we have to hack off the X-Bone before it can fit inside your stony hearts soft? I hear they're bringing out drivers to let the X-Bone controller work in Windows, but since it's functionally identical to the 360 controller, I don't see what they think that will achieve, except hand PC gaming a new trophy, like a Viking with a cup made from his enemy's skull. But the blanket Microsoft spent this entire event hiding under was woven from some nice, comfortable, safe exclusive games. Hey look, it's a compilation of all the Halo games, just to underline how utterly pointless a new console was. New Crackdown, because the last one was absolute bubbling tossage, so the only way is up. New Fable, where one player controls the monsters, because if we tried to program the AI ourselves, we'd probably just fuck it up. Oh, what do you want? Please don't hit me, I didn't even mention the Kinect! But we did see some more of Sunset Overdrive, complete with wise-cracking protagonists, and I can't remember ever wanting a character to choke on their own upraised bellend more. But the gameplay looked alright. Look forward when it's released for PC, like Dead Rising 3 will be. I told you that would happen, Microsoft. Capcom gives out exclusives like a shilling whore. Meanwhile, there's an intolerable air of smugness about Sony's announcements, since they're the console frontrunners. Yeah, new IPs from the creators of Journey and Dark Souls ain't no biggie. Oh no, I dropped a trailer for a new Suda 5-1 game, better bend down to pick it up. Whoops, I let everyone look at my skirt and see a remastering of Grim Fandango, tee hee. But beyond that, what I was seeing surprisingly little of were reasons to buy a piss-poor. Plenty of exclusive betas, like Destiny and Dead Island 2, but that just means piss-poor owners win the chance to have the game spoiled for them while they're at their shittiest. The Last of Us, which you can enjoy right now if you didn't immediately throw your PS3 down a flight of stairs when the new generation started, and lest we forget PlayStation Now and PlayStation TV, all the fun of the games without having to let the piss pour itself stink up your living room. But things eventually return to formula with Uncharted 4, a thief's end. Oh Sony, you tease! Now you're speaking my language! Although I shouldn't hold out hope that Nathan Drake's end will go the way I'm picturing it, involving a pair of pliers, a ball gag, and a steady stream of urine. Another thing I'm seeing is that the words gameplay trailer are being thrown around kind of fast and loose these days. Assassin's Creed Unity had an alleged gameplay trailer, but it was so tightly fucking choreographed that the demonstrator might as well have been waving a fucking conductor's baton. And in this we learned the grand scheme for four-player co-op, the innovation I was really hoping we'd get over by now. If you think gameplay that's traditionally about stealth, timing and precision is going to be improved by having three dangled twats running about, then you obviously haven't been hanging around with the same human beings that I'm familiar with. Another blatant abuser of the term gameplay trailer was Far Cry 4, to whom the phrase first five minutes of gameplay means the scripted intro sequence. Yes, isn't it marvellous what you can do with in-engine cutscenes these days, but before any actual gameplay gameplay trailers came out, the game could have been a sausage-making simulator for all we knew. Looks like they're trying to make the Far Cry 3 lightning 
lightning strike twice with the clueless white bread hero being toyed with by colourful charismatic villain again, so let's hope they remember to have the villain hang around for the whole game this time. Rise of the Tomb Raider was also announced, the exciting story of how a young Lara Croft was first forged in the fires of adventure… hang on a minute, wasn't that what the previous Tomb Raider was about? I guess they're gonna stretch this shit like her training bra. Lara Croft is like an indecisive school leaver. Shut up dad, I'll decide what I want to do with my life after one more gap year of unrelenting horror and violence. Now a large segment of EA's presentation could be summarised with, here's the latest iterations of things you've already got, $60 please. By FIFA 15 sports fans, we added a new crease to David Beckham's face. We've also added more emotions to The Sims 4, look at the gurning face of my little doll man. Imagine yourselves wearing the same face as you fork out for what is essentially The Sims 3 again, better buy all that DLC a second time as well, pants down, fist up, pound pound pound. Speaking of which, Battlefield Hardline. It's making a shift from regular warfare to balls out urban warfare between cops and crims, but the trailer I saw mainly consisted of burly white heroes roughing up black guys, so you know, the more things change the more they stay the same. And finally, Nintendo, whose presence once again is like briefly opening the door to your granddad's room and catching a glimpse of him still lost in his own little world, gently masturbating. It's got Smash Brothers for the general company-wide masturbation, but now it's got Hyrule Warriors, name not final, for a more fine-tuned masturbation of the Zelda franchise specifically. Just in time for the inevitable Wii U Zelda game, which I won't dwell on because we saw so little of it, although that doesn't seem to have stopped everyone else from jizzing every pair of pants they own. Also Mario Maker, aka do you know how to inject life into Mario at this point, because bug it if we do. And a new IP Splatoon, because I guess they needed at least one new thing they could add to Smash Brothers. Will it help the Wii U? Who knows? Not me. Who cares? Ditto Mark. I'm completely out of what energy I had for E3, it was even less enticing than last year, and last year made my bollocks roll up like a Venetian blind. So if you don't mind, I think I'm just going to slide to the floor and hope to get smothered to death by the Roomba. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Especially not in AAA gaming, where unproven innovative ideas are treated the way the medieval Europe treated leprosy, but it's funny how ideas that in culture generally are pretty old hat suddenly seem new and refreshing in AAA gaming just for not being more of the usual bollocks. Murdered Soul Suspect, for example, is about a murder victim coming back as a ghost and having to solve their own killing. Would be very original indeed if it weren't for Ghost and Randall and Hopkirk deceased and that one Dresden Files book, but it's original for video games if it weren't for Scapegoats and The World Ends With You, but it is original for video games with incredibly shitty titles if it weren't for Ghost Trick Phantom Detective. Actually, this is all quite unfair of me, I suppose it's a pretty strong contender in the incredibly shitty title event. Murdered Soul Suspect. Well that's that investigation nobbled, isn't it? Oops, sorry, missed the colon. As I once said to a prostitute one embarrassing drunken night, still sounds like something a contract killer would write on an invoice. Murdered Soul Suspect. Purchased on the way home, corned beef sandwich. The protagonist of Sundered Mole Prefect is former Boyzone member Ronan Keating, who gave up pop music to become a career criminal, then gave up that to become a police detective, a job that's notoriously unstringent about past history that you can basically just breeze into if you know a guy. All of this is crammed into a 30 second flashback Ronan experiences while he's getting splattered across a pavement by a serial killer. Now trapped in the limbo between the living world and the next, Ronan must use his Irish boy band charm to enlist a teenage medium identical in every way to the teenage girl from Infamous Second Son, and then the pair of them must work to bring to justice the serial killer plaguing Salem, Massachusetts. Oh blimey, what are the odds the killings are going to have something to do with the history of this particular city? Yes, predictably enough, the killings are all themed around the introduction of a communal bicycle system by the city council in 2011, and Ronan has to sort it all out before he can go join his dead sexy wife in heaven, and they can nobby to the senseless on a fluffy cloud beneath the approving gaze of God. Where have I heard the name Airtight Games before? Oh yes, they're the guys who made Dark Void, which was a really good jetpack game buried somewhere in the claggy scraps of a considerably shittier one. I think I see how this company works now, there's one or more guys with good ideas having to share an office with a giant monster clown they don't know how to say no to, so they come up with an inoffensive little idea for a paranormal detective game based around adventure game style investigative mechanics, but then the giant monster clown starts bashing his desk with a squeaky truncheon going, COMBAT MECHANICS! COMBAT MECHANICS! Because even an idea that's mostly unoriginal must compromise itself further to be accepted by AAA games like it's marrying into a Jewish family. So as well as hunting for clues and piecing together the evidence, Ronan also has to stop all that every now and again to fight some monster ghosts. Well I say fight, all he can do is sneak up behind and do a quick time event ghost wedgie. So it's hardly worth considering except that you have no other offensive abilities, or if you fuck it up you have to run off and hide for 30 seconds before you can try another ghost wedgie. And it's about as 
much fun as looking for a novelty fake turd in a septic tank. See, this is why you shouldn't just ditch consoles every few years for new ones with no backward compatibility, because the end result is an industry with absolutely no long-term memory. We figured out around full throttle that action arcade sequences fit into adventure games as comfortably as an erection at a Boy Scout jamboree, but it seems we're just going to have to keep relearning that. On the standard scale of obnoxiousness, the monster ghosts are right up there at trapped in a Chinese water torture machine with itchy bollocks, but on a milder level of unsupervised two-year-old child trying to engage with you in a doctor's waiting room where the only TV is tuned to Fox News are the sequences where you have to help your human partner with stealth by distracting guards with malfunctioning electronics, which might have added something if it wasn't a rigidly structured sequence of guess which photocopier you have to bewitch next, just kidding, you don't have to guess there's only one. More than once, a guard very obviously saw my escortee on his way back from the distraction, but the game didn't care, because I was technically following the script. Yes, I'd say Roger Hole Deflect is at heart an adventure game, the traditional pottering about looking for key A to fit lock B, interrupted by the occasional spanking of a disobedient Nazgul, but the keys are in this case facts, and the locks are whatever question hangs over the little sectioned off area we are asked to comb. And I found that the greatest danger was overthinking things. What is the most relevant fact, the game might ask, listing everything we have established from blundering around the given scene? Hmm, thinks I. Well, perhaps the fact that the victim was killed with their own gun, indicating that the perpetrator probably hadn't premeditated the crime. That seems like the biggest lead at present. Was that what I was supposed to click on? Eh, uh, no, lose a point. Turns out, what I was supposed to finger as the most relevant fact in the murder case was the fact that somebody got murdered, which I thought had only been put on the list for completeness's sake. The game does shit like this quite a few times. Have you any ambition to challenge us with actual deductive puzzles, or are you just content to poke us every 20 minutes so we don't fall asleep? The gameplay is just too thin and lacking in meat, like a British Rail ham sandwich. It needed shiny enough balls to pick one of the many things it was trying to do and stick to it, with its shiny balls. Either have actually interesting deductive puzzles, like in Condemned 2, where you have to look at a stain on the carpet and realise without prompting that the family dog came along here with an itchy bum, or have decent melee combat, like, um, Condemned 2. Basically, I'm still holding out hope for someone to make Condemned 2 again, in a way that doesn't piss up its own nose from the halfway point, but I digress. The most challenging moment of a laundered socks perfect was when they hid a vital clue behind a bookcase and I didn't spot it till I'd wandered around for 20 minutes like a late-night kebab with an unprepared digestive system. But the story is competent as murder mystery goes, you're wrong-footed by obvious suspects, events recontextualises the facts unfold, and some people get murdered in it, which I always think is crucial to the genre, and the supernatural elements throw a few curveballs but at least remain internally consistent, unlike the fact that a man who wears a fedora and vest somehow managed to convince someone to marry him without choking on their own vomit during the vows. Well, I never said I wasn't a hypocrite. It is, of course, a popular understanding that there is no such thing as bad publicity, a theory best tested by pasting a huge blown-up photo of someone's knob along the side of Sydney Harbour Bridge with the caption, Guess where I've been, here's a hint you were born from it, but it's a sad fact that the only reason I even picked up Tomodachi Life was because the internet collectively swam right up its butthole, for being a life sim that doesn't allow homosexual relationships, which was officially awarded the daily prize for cause of all the evil in the world before somebody noticed that Assassin's Creed Unity didn't have a female protagonist and Ubisoft collectively shat itself into a mic. If you ask me, there's way more mileage than the Tomodachi Life outrage. You can argue over how much work it would realistically have been to staple jugs and a couple of pigtails to an existing male character, but it would at least have been some work, whereas allowing any character to rub themselves on any other character would have been less work than exclusively restricting the drive shaft to the inlet valve, if you see what I mean. If a game like, say, The Witcher wants to have a relationship system but slap the player's knuckles whenever they reach for the sausage platter, then fair enough. Even in branching fiction, the creator is entitled to declare some things to be out of character. Tomodachi Life, meanwhile, encourages you to populate it with the me's of real-life friends and family, and to disallow same-sex relationships in it is to tacitly deny that they exist in reality or at least to assume that no gay person or friend of a gay person could possibly be playing it, because they're all off playing their special gay games for gay people that come in pink boxes adorned with chest hair. Admittedly, the game is so rabidly family-friendly that it prefers the term special someone to anything as racy as girlfriend or fuck buddy, but it's rather coy for a game in which it's still entirely possible to create a me with what looks like a flaccid cock for a face. You can cheat the system and add a gay friend by lying to the game about their gender, since gender does not restrict appearance or clothing options, but there's no way of knowing whether they'll shack up with the me of their real-life partner or with the man with a 
cock for a face. Tomodachi Life is something I can't exactly review as a game, the best I can do is speculate on the purpose for its existence. It's on 3DS and is vaguely trying to muscle in on Animal Crossing's racket, except unlike Animal Crossing, you decide who comes and lives in your little bubble, and very little else. Mies are added to the population as fast as you can come up with them, so I added myself and all my friends, but I figured a real community requires more than three people, ha ha, I'm lonely, so I populated the rest of the apartments with characters from my novels and indie games, as well as all the Mies that were already on my 3DS, which should explain the presence of Senor Cock-on-Face and Lady Hitler. I gotta tell you though, Senor Cock-on-Face ended up being the fucking man! He had by far and away the most friends, and everyone was asking to be introduced to him, he was like the Fonz from Happy Days but with a cock instead of a face. Interestingly, of all the hotties that were fighting to catch his Jap's eye, he ended up marrying X, the secret agent from my second novel, Jam. I guess only she could be trusted to keep the terrible secret of what he has instead of a cock! So once you've populated the island, your residents start making requests to be fed or clothed. Uh, I want basic survival needs. Wine, wine, wine. And doing so raises their happiness level. Or you can not bother and leave them wearing sackcloth and sucking the radiator for nourishment and their happiness won't go down. The only thing that seems to make them sad is being rejected socially. See that, Nintendo? That is how you made the gays feel! But you know what, it may be insulting to deny the existence of gay people and group them with pixies and jabberwockies, but I can't think how it could be more insulting than the way the game depicts people who do exist, as a sort of high-functioning plankton with a face. Remove any comparison to The Sims from your mind, you have zero ability to meaningfully direct the lives or activities of your little pals, but neither it seems do they. Left to their own devices they are mostly content to lie on the carpet trying to lick their own nostrils until they decide the time has come to make friends with one of their neighbours, and if that all turns out well you may in future see two people lying on the carpet trying to lick their own nostrils. Let's not dismiss the relationship system, for it is one of the few ways we are granted agency. When someone wants to make a friend or take a friendship to the next level they must request your approval like you're the stern overseeing patriarch of a Jonestown style death cult. Maybe you'll want to seize the opportunity to finally enforce your will and make your community completely racially segregated to appease Lady Hitler. But personally I just allowed whatever, except when a love triangle arose between two strapping young fellows and an obese elderly woman, which I swiftly put a stop to. I'd given these characters enough shit in their respective works without letting some game turn them into granny fiddlers too. The only time I felt anything close to investment was during the marriage proposal minigame, mostly because getting two of your little buggers hitched is the only thing that carries the slightest sense of achievement, lessened somewhat by the knowledge that it is one that the game has essentially handed to you at random. Animal Crossing did the same thing, each day a new selection of random collectibles, wonderful trophies to mark your exceptional achievement of having done fuck all but turn the game on today, but at least there were options as to what you did with them. Put them in your house, donate to the museum, bury them alongside the remains of the reindeer man who just had to ask for a peach one too many fucking times. Tomodachi Life merely rewards you with random objects you found in a dumpster, and your options are to either sell them or close the DS and toss it into a vat of boiling prison wine. But it's alright, I have now figured out what the purpose of this game is. The same as those paper fortune tellers you used to make at school. There's a special mode where you enter embarrassing questions such as who loves a clammy minge, whereupon a random selection of islanders put their hands up, allowing you to confront the real life inspiration of the islander and go, look, you love clammy minges, leaving them shamed and exposed until they reply, no I don't, and torpedo the debate. I would recommend a sock puppet over Tomodachi Life, they're equally as fulfilling and you can make them as gay as you please. Maybe the street pass features make the difference, but sadly I got no street pass hits at all. Apparently I'm the only person in Brisbane who bases their purchases on homophobia. Now that video gaming's twin cheerleaders of military intervention, Battlefield and Call of Duty, have pledged to start modelling themselves respectively on the Italian job and Battlestar Galactica, I think it's fair to say that gaming has grown weary of contemporary warfare. The days of straight-faced ripped from the headlines right-wing wish fulfilment giving Johnny Terrorist what for in the dusty ruins of suicide Bomber University are waning. Maybe because the house of cards that is stability in the Middle East just refuses to stay up no matter how many times we set fire to it. Or perhaps there's a growing sense that our personal safety is less at risk from jabbering extremists inspired by 72 virgins, and more from frustrated white loners inspired by one virgin, namely himself. I think conservatives in America have been hoist by their own petard, they just kept knocking down any chance of gun legislation and effectively forced America to accept that the massacres are something it's just gonna have to put up with now and again, and then they wonder why no one seems to care about taking revenge for 9-11 anymore. But I digress. Small wonder that war-based games are running for the 
the comfortable security blanket of World War II, a time with none of that troublesome ambiguity. Yes, we definitely are fighting bastards, and yes, they definitely will come over and burn all our stuff if we don't. To this setting comes Enemy Front, yet another candidate for the shitty title award. What, as opposed to those nice friendly fronts they have in wars where two allies dig trenches opposite each other and have bake-offs? Our hero is a war correspondent named Hawkins. I didn't register his first name because he's about as generic as protagonists get, so I'm just gonna call him Brenda. The game opens with Brenda giving an inspiring broadcast to occupied Europe that leads us into a flashback of him aiding resistance fighters, which leads us into another flashback of him aiding some other resistance fighters in France. Steady on, Christopher Nolan. How many levels deep are we going? Enemy Front gropes in vain for a unique selling point. It mines lesser known battlegrounds like Warsaw and Norway, but I can't say that adds much. Slit one Nazi throat against a background of bombed out historical buildings, slit them all. But Enemy Front makes an interesting comparison with another new release, Valiant Hearts, a game by Ubisoft. So even though I installed it on Steam, of course it had to open Uplay to actually start it. This is our fault. We didn't complain enough when games started opening with 12 different unskippable idents, so now they're taking it even further. Five years from now, we'll have to open up 17 front ends before they even let us enter the fucking CD key, but I digress again. Valiant Hearts is set in the First World War, rarely touched by popular culture for lacking the clean us versus bastards fairy tale narrative of its sequel. World War One was just Europe being such a fluster cuck of grudges and alliances that when Serbia turned the little crank of Austro-Hungary, it set off the whole mousetrap machine of alliances, and by the time the little plastic man jumped into the pool, everyone was fighting everyone else. So Valiant Hearts can't rely on stirring our sense of duty and pride towards our country's role in a psychotic game of political backseas, and instead focuses on the personal struggles of a small group of individuals more devoted to each other than their respective countries, which is thankfully a hell of a lot less depressing than the war. Enemy Front's gameplay isn't exactly letting itself stress too much about blowing our minds with innovation, and once it's established that Nazis come out here and bullets come out here and things get interesting when the two intersect, the game is content to put its feet up and take a relaxed attitude to life. An open-ended level, some Nazis, some weapons, do it however you choose. Oh, so I can go in dressed as a Bavarian milkmaid and turn the officers to the side of good with my mind-blowing tit fucks? No, of course not. However you choose means the same thing it usually means. Go in guns blazing, or laboriously sneak around giving people wedgies. Unfortunately, Hawkins is unfamiliar with a traditional clean neck snap or throat slash, and his stealth kill involves lying on top of the poor bastard and stabbing him 50 times, making it likelier you'll be spotted once you're locked into it. But it hardly matters, since if you are spotted you can just run around a corner and put up a little Q here sign. See, the challenge of multiple gameplay options is not to make one of them a million times quicker and easier than the others. Don't see why I should have to pick your headlights out with tweezers when there's this perfectly good blowtorch here. I'll stop crying, you wanted them out. Valiant Hearts, meanwhile, takes a more scattershot approach to game design and provides what can best be described as a series of diversions. Half the time it's an adventure game in a sort of Lego Star Wars sense, searching for the right shaped pegs to jab into whatever hole is available, which is one way to relieve the monotony in a foxhole. The other half of the time is spent playing Guitar Hero. No, really. Oh, it comes in many forms, like moving around during a charge to ensure that you are not where the bomb lands, or driving around obstacles that appear in time with the background music, or when it's at its most blatant, pressing button prompts throughout a medical procedure because apparently we learned medicine from Professor Dance Dance Revolution. Not that it's completely bad, the musical car driving I found actually rather delightful, but I think we're falling into the trap of crowbarring in token gameplay when the story gets away from problems requiring violence. Actually, since you mention it, I don't think there's a single moment when you pick up a gun and shoot it at someone. Rather a noteworthy absence for a war game, it's like Tim Burton making a film without casting Johnny Depp. The thing is, Enemy Front is a game about war, but that's all that it's about. Every character is a cipher representative of their entire social group. Brenda the brash American on the fence about getting involved with it all, sexy French resistance lady being all resistant and French and sexy and a lady. And the realistic graphics and dramatic score is utterly straight-faced and utterly dull. What is its message? That the Nazis were shits and smacking them down was a really good idea? Yeah, we've been stirring that pot for 70 years, thanks for contributing. Contrarily, Valiant Hearts is a game about people, where the war is a monstrous background thing they have no power to avoid, like a big black dog closing in on the unsupervised Jaffa Cakes. But because it seems more facetious with its silly gameplay and cartoonish Ligneclair art style, mm, yes, I read a book once, it actually carries some impact when things turn serious. While it has flaws, the come on lads let's give those monkeys a damn good spanking sense of adventure in the first half followed up with gut punches and despair in the second recreates 
the memory of the war it depicts a hell of a lot better than Enemy Front does, which mainly seems to be recreating a whack-a-mole machine that plays Ride at the Valkyries. Gosh, Yahtzee, isn't the summer games drought a pain? Shut your hypothetical face, viewer, what the fuck do you know about pain? For starters, it's the winter games drought in Australia, it's bad enough we have to huddle in our homes trapped by the cruel blast of one degree below ideal surfing weather, without AAA releases drying up and forcing us to pass the time with games like Guess How Many Kicks to the Bollocks It Takes to Draw Blood, or Frozen Grandparent Tetris, or for those who are truly lost, Boggle. And still the AAA industry makes these droughts longer by always demanding more and more arduous development cycles for the bigger and better graphics to dangle before our misery, but they will bring little comfort to poor grandpa, whose testicles we have left so swollen and engorged that we have to use him as the T-shaped block. So I turn instead to indie games, and I've played one this week that actually really grabbed me, namely Shovel Knight. I thought I'd look for a second game to do one of my indie two-for-ones, but I opened the Steam New Releases page, saw the title Zombie Solitaire, and then I fucking closed the Steam New Releases page. Then I thought, am I being part of the problem? This cockeyed industry where the bland, safe and soulless gets happy endings while the auteur-driven artistry lies on its back in the mud, trying to catch strings of carelessly discarded jizz for nourishment, and yet I too force them to share a seat on the complain train while the big knobs get one all to themselves. No more! This is day one of year one, all aboard the buffet car to share out the fucking sandwiches. Shovel Knight is a platformer that deliberately tries to look like a game on the NES in order to score nostalgia points with an ageing cabal of fat neck beards who haven't seen their winkies since 1989. Well, that's unfair. Deliberately retro-style low-res graphics might seem like the easy route, but it is by no means zero effort to look convincingly like an NES game. There's a very specific colour palette and font you have to use, not to mention having to make all the music and sound effects by stamping on the tails of cats wearing voice modulators, and it's also a lot more than zero effort to do all that and still make a game that looks and sounds appealing. Hey, wait a minute, the NES didn't support parallax scrolling. Well, that buggers the whole effort. To the bin with you, Shovel Knight. And another thing the NES didn't do much was in-depth storytelling, because adding five explanatory text boxes to an NES cartridge meant cutting off a boss fight or two to make room. Shovel Knight, meanwhile, tells a story of the titular adventurer. You know, I've realised I can't say the word titular without picturing some kind of breast-themed enemy of Godzilla, who retired from adventure when his beloved partner was taken from him by an evil tower, but who must take up the mantle again when the land falls under the shadow of an organisation of evil knights with themed powers. I believe the proper collective noun is a boss rush of evil knights. On the surface, the plot seems a bit uninspired, but acquires depth as you go along through brief dialogue exchanges. One thing worth noting is that Shovel Knight's lost love comes across not as MacGuffin Princess Sex Doll Model 731A, but an actual equal and partner, illustrated in a sequence towards the end, really trying not to spoil here that shows how well they work together as a team and how much of a loose end Shovel Knight is without her, all within the context of gameplay alone. It's almost Dark Soulsy in storytelling, and I don't say that lightly. And what's the other thing we know about Dark Souls children? That it's about as forgiving as a room full of Australian Border Patrol guards who all came off a low-fat diet this morning. That's correct, although Shovel Knight's difficulty lies more in platform challenges than in combat, which is more easy to learn of middling difficulty to master. Hit things with a shovel, jump on things with a shovel. Oh yes, they don't call him Shovel Knight just for the lol random humour value, like his contemporaries Biscuit Samurai and Fridge Viking. The addition of magic spells almost feel like overkill, and kind of trivialise things to an extent because enemies and diggable blocks drop magic, like Gandalf with the squirts, but I suppose there has to be something around for you to spend money on, because a live system was one of the few desiccated body parts Shovel Knight was unprepared to dig up from the NES's grave, and so death carries instead the threat of a momentary dock in adventuring wages. You have to do the Dark Souls thing and recover the lost money from your point of death, but after you've died a few times trying to grab a floating money bag from when you died last time, you may stop appreciating the inherent life lesson. If genealogy is your thing, Shovel Knight lies at the bottom of a family tree more rampantly incestuous than the fucking Lannisters, combining DNA from Super Mario 3, Zelda 2, Castlevania DuckTales, and a big, eager, sticky mouth full of Mega Man. It's like the fucking Captain Planet of NES games. By your powers combined, I will now bleep like someone doing squeaky farts in a tin elevator. But notwithstanding that embarrassing parallax scrolling elephant in the room, Shovel Knight may be trying a bit too hard to be an NES game. I can't think of any reason why spikes need to be an instant kill. We've got bottomless pits for a perfectly functional if slightly ambiguous instant kill. We don't need spikes muscling in on their turf. Five minutes ago, a bloke the size of a pregnant bus jumped down and hit me with the metal windsurfing sail that he seems to think is a sword, and it didn't even take off a whole health point. Now I'm being splattered across four dimensions because my elbow brushed against
against the stucco ceiling. I'm a trifle miffed. I think it's only an instant kill because spikes were an instant kill in Mega Man, but it was just as unnecessary then, too. Yeah, I did have to dig pretty hard to find that small potato. On the whole, it's an engaging game where a rudimentary core gameplay is used with a surprising degree of variety without compromising its simplicity. Just the way I like it. And while you may write it off as nostalgia bait, as indeed I did a few paragraphs ago, I have never owned an NES. So if I liked Shovel Knight, it can't possibly be working off nostalgia alone, because I have none for anything except Red Dwarf and Fantasy World Dizzy. The fact is I liked it because it filled a hole that was left behind when I ran out of new Dark Souls to play and Dark Souls disappeared into the night, leaving me sweaty, unfulfilled and harder than a slab of concrete with a private eye cryptic crossword carved into it. A hole I've also been trying to fill lately by playing old Castlevania games on the DS, again without nostalgia because I've never played them before. My question is, is it still nostalgia if you play old games not to relive happier memories long past, but because old stuff does stuff you want that new stuff doesn't do? My next question is, would you mind beating my stiffy down while I grind for the tree ant soul? It's alright, everyone relax. I thought of another retro game that I quite like to sustain the fucking death march through July. Here's a hint, it's the only Japanese RPG I've ever played right through to the end. Unless you count Mario and Luigi or Paper Mario RPGs, which personally I don't, because to my mind a JRPG just isn't a JRPG unless it ends with teenagers using the power of friendship to kill God. It's like how if you don't have the stallion scene you can't really call yourself barnyard porn. Have you guessed the game yet? Well you didn't need to, did you? It's in the title of the fucking video. Earthbound, the 1994 SNES RPG that attained cult appeal but initially sold in America about as well as oily rags sell to people who are on fire. It's also very nearly a timely subject with all this talk about whether or not Smash Brothers is going to introduce Max Payne or Margaret Thatcher or whoever, so if you've ever wondered about the origin of that one Smash Brothers character with the baseball cap and the thousand yard stare like Wario's been molesting him in the green room, then step this way. As I said, Earthbound was critically panned on launch and I can see why because I'm a critic myself and I know how much Captain Morgans we get through, but even disregarding the astonishingly bad launch campaign in America that thought the best approach would to make the box smell like farts, the game looks like salted caramel buttocks on a stick, the art is flat and pixely, there's next to no animation, the perspective is all over the place and occasionally goes in multiple directions within the same background, and this was towards the end of the 16-bit era, remember, when we were first getting used to the idea that the phrase these graphics look good doesn't necessarily always have to be followed by a comma in the word considering. So an important and artistic cult hit was marginalised and ignored because it didn't fit within the latest standards for graphics in an industry obsessed with competitive technology. Christ! Isn't it great that that kind of bollocks doesn't happen anymore? I freely admit I'd probably have shat on Earthbound 2 if I'd been reviewing it, because I replayed it for a bunch of hours this weekend to refresh my memory and I only got to the end of the second town. You can only give a game so much time while you're on a schedule, and rum, Earthbound is on an incredibly slow boil. The first thing you have to do is walk to the top of a hill, look around, then walk all the way down and go back to bed. The second thing you do is exactly the same thing, only now fighting the shittiest monsters the Union had to offer. That's not a slow boil, that's chucking a signal flare into a swimming pool. And it's not like there's a whole lot the game needs to explain, it's turn-based combat, click attack, click enemy, repeat, occasionally eat a biscuit. The plot at the outset is just that you are nondescript apple-cheeked small-town American hero boy and there's this giant alien god from the future that is the source of all the evil in the world. It's making people behave in ways you don't approve of and is probably the reason why your dad doesn't live at home anymore. So you set off on an odyssey to fight it, somehow, and your mother is suspiciously a-okay with all this. I guess she wants a bit more quality time with Mr. Buzz Buzz. It's a quirky game above all else. You name your character, standard JRPG practice, but you also have to name his favourite food that appears in dialogue a whole bunch, and if your first instinct is not to enter something along the lines of cock, then you simply do not possess a soul. You use baseball bats and frying pans as weapons and fight animated stop signs and hippies, so the quirky random humour thing runs along the surface like baked beans sliding down a clown's face, but there's a dark surrealism running under it as well, as indicated by a soundtrack that alternates between fun, jaunty melodies and weird electronic ambience like someone left a theremin in Buffalo Bill's house. Make it all the way to the end of the game and you'll find it topped off with a hearty dose of cosmic horror out of fucking nowhere. It feels childish but in the sense of having been made by a child rather than for one. On top of graphics that could be recreated with crayons if only they had a fill tool, the plot has the air of an imaginary game made up by schoolboys in a playground, setting out on a journey through colourful lands as part of a grand heroic quest vital in some wholly unspecific way, constantly shifting setting and themes as 
new playmates arrive and momentary fancies are indulged, and then occasionally something really fucked up happens because weird Uncle Peter was babysitting at the weekend and let them watch From Beyond. It gives the game a sense of timeless nostalgia, which always strikes a nerve with veteran gamers who long eternally for the days when their metabolism worked, but there's innocence to it as well, cosmic horror notwithstanding. The short text boxes and big font are the interface equivalent of a little puppy's big brown eyes, the GUI and inventor is pretty shit, but it creates a wonky treehouse fort aesthetic of ramshackle earnestness that goes with the theme. Also contributing to that feel is a rather strange health system which doesn't remove losses all at once but ticks down at a steady pace and if you receive mortal damage but can end the battle before the counter reaches zero, then the game just forgets about it. It's like playing D&D with an Alzheimer's patient. But that's not the only unique game mechanic. If you are so over-leveled for the current crop of wildlife that it isn't funny, then the moment you enter battle the game goes bollocks to it and you just win. Why don't more games do that? Well these days, because if they cut out all the dull, pointless, repetitive, insultingly easy combat then you'd drop half the fucking game right there. Some parts of the game can be a slog. You do have to master the art of burly bastard back and forth, or retreating from large groups of randomly spawned monsters until the game unloads them, then heading back and hoping that less of them spawn this time, but it's only once you finish the game that you fully appreciate the intent, which might explain the early review piddling session. In Japan, Earthbound is the second game in the Mother trilogy. I confess I haven't played the other two because neither were officially released outside Japan, presumably in fear of being piddled on again, so playing them would be a dirty crime. But I think for all the space aliens and stop signs, Mother is the more representative title. For at any point you can go home to mum, sleep and eat some cock, it's also both the very first and the very last thing you do in the game. Mother is the one point of stability in the chaotic fantasy life of the every child. You can get on your bike and become adventurous through time and the never space, but soon the day will fade and you will long only for home, where mother will always be there to dust you down and tuck you into bed so she can start playing the naked wrestling game with weird Uncle Peter. What is a transistor? A semiconductor device commonly used as an amplifier? A song by Kraftwerk from the 1975 album Radioactivity? The seventh album by Norwegian hard rock band TNT? What you're supposed to call your brother when he's halfway through a sex change operation? It is all of these things, and also the latest game by Supergiant Games, previously responsible for Bastion, an artsy isometric hack and slash game I quite liked for its nice story and single narrative voice that was the closest an audible sound gets to growing its own penis. Transistor is, contrarily, an artsy isometric hack and slash game with a nice story and a single narrative voice that doesn't quite get as far as the penis, but has some swinging bollocks going on at the very least. So I guess we know what Supergiant's comfort zone is, it's a big isometric room full of male genitalia, and I suppose we can add to that, located in a fantasy city that has been caught in a really unnecessarily complicated cataclysm, which can hopefully be established while minimising direct interaction with other human characters because we could only afford one voice actor. Didn't this game come out a while ago, Yahtzee? What the fuck are you doing in my house, viewer? Also yes, I played it a little bit when it did come out, but for some reason I just wasn't grabbed. Lately though I've been banging on about how game releases are drier than your mum after I cheated on her with your dad, and every week people have been going, do transistor, you liked Bastion? and agree with my opinions and thus justify my existence, blurgle blurgle, and that left me with a quandary. Either I stop complaining about the release schedule, or I admit that I couldn't be asked to finish Transistor, both unlikely. Finally I took the third option, just play the fucking thing. Christ, I hate people telling me how to do my job. Whoops, sorry, that should have read. Christ, I hate people telling me to do my job. I suppose I had trouble getting into Transistor because the moment you walk in the door it starts throwing shit at you like the audience of the ill-conceived Holocaust denial open mic showcase. Starts in medias res for one thing, with the main character, a red-haired woman who has lost her voice, standing over the corpus of a bloke who's just been impaled on a giant talking ice lolly that is the game's signature weapon. So all we have are questions. Who are we? Why is the ice lolly talking? Did we kill this dude? Who does our hair? It's fabulous. On top of that, it soon becomes clear that this is a story about a city as much as it's about a weird lady and her chatty vibrator. There's a bit of a Bioshock vibe, in that we're in a utopia apparently based around creativity as a central ideal, where future technology is used to eternally change the city in accordance with the whims of the people. But constant changes resulted in a whole new level of stagnation, and the efforts of an extremist group to remedy this are catastrophically unravelling the entire reindeer patterned Christmas jumper. But this is only a vague understanding that I pieced together after the fact, because this is a game that seems to be fucking allergic to directly stating things, and it exhausted me quickly. Bastion was similar but started off with a firm concept, city destroyed, rebuild city, that everything else builds around like a stick in a candy floss machine. Transistor forgot the stick, it just stuck my head in the candy floss machine 
screen and said, open your mouth, try not to breathe in through the nose. Well, now that I've confessed to finding the game hard to understand and opened the fucking floodgates for smug, intellectually insecure people who think I fucking care that they absorbed it quicker than Jabba the Hutt does his afternoon suppository, let's add the combat system to the pile of school books that are handed to us upon arrival. When I said the game is hack and slash, it might be better described as 10 hack 20 slash 30 go to 10. You're given numerous functions that can either be assigned to a button as an attack, or assigned to an already assigned attack as a modifier, or assigned to a passive slot as a buff. That probably needs clarifying, so let's say you have a function called tits, bracket close brackets, assign it to the X button and pressing that button will launch a pair of big sweaty baps that will smash a single enemy's head around like a chickpea in a ball pit. Or you can assign soapy wank brackets close brackets to the X button and then modify it with tits so that an enemy hit by soapy wank will suffer the additional effect of soapy tit wank. Or assign tits to the passive buff slot to give your character higher defence against incoming memory based damage. And like a big lovely pair of sweaty baps, this also took me a while to get my head around, but I can appreciate the ridiculous depth of customization. My usual instinct in your standard multifaceted combat system is to find one or two things that generally work and keep hitting those until something tells me to stop, but I had to unlearn that. Cunningly, Transistor withholds story documents until you use all three modes of each function in combat, which is good design as it encouraged me to experiment, and discover that yes, the switch power was as fucking useless as it at first seemed. Also, the game isn't about turn-based combat but might have a face stuck in its armpit on a crowded subway train at least, you can pause the game and queue up a series of actions to execute super fast. Not what you'd call free-flowing combat, but I like that it gives you thinking time to construct the best possible move. It's just that the system lies a lot. Oh yeah, you'll totally kill all these guys with this sequence, go nuts. Oh, did I forget to mention that this forecast is based on all the enemies not moving throughout, and that if we cross our fingers and wish very hard then chaos theory will stop being a thing. So if enemies remain alive after a queued sequence you then can't even do non-queued attacks while it cools down and all you can do is run around the arena trying to get your brass traps back into line, which I'm not sure I like. What I'm sure I don't like is the way you lose a function each time you run out of health. You might as well just reload a save at that point, because you've only got four functions at a time and losing one means being simultaneously hobbled and forced to rethink your playing style in a tight spot. It's like if at football matches the losing team were all routinely kneecapped at half time. Overall, Transistor's a short game, but I wasn't left wanting more. It's ambitious, but it squeezed a bit too much into a small space. It came together eventually, but let's not forget I wouldn't have played past the first half hour if I hadn't forced myself. I think I admire Transistor. It's bringing a veritable buffet of fresh ideas to the table. The buffet table, presumably. It's just, if you're gonna abuse the unlimited salad bar for five dollars, get some sauce going before you make a pasta pile tall enough to get on a roller coaster. I should stop writing reviews just before lunch. Has the dry period gotten longer and more obnoxious this year, or is it just me getting longer and more obnoxious? No fucking hurry, publishers, you just keep putting in more of that shiny graphics you like, I'll just sit here eating my own skin. I needed a better long-term solution than padding the weeks out with retro and indie games, so I'd like to announce a new occasional series in which we look back over major events from gaming history and consider the important lessons of those events that absolutely nobody fucking learned. I even made a special jingle for it. Let's all laugh at an industry that never learns anything, tee hee hee. Being self-evidently a patron of internet video reviewers, you are probably used to hearing the word worst game ever. Personally I dislike the phrase because my first response is always, really? Did it cause the crash of the entire western games industry? No? Well then E.T. for the Atari 2600 remains the worst game ever. But as I considered this video, I realised I'd never personally played E.T. because they didn't make controllers small enough to be held by the tail of a newly created sperm, so I downloaded an emulated version. Naughty Yahtzee! I was intrigued to know what the hell kind of game would be considered to be particularly bad for a wood-panelled console that had more joystick ports than on-screen pixel capacity and sounded like a vuvuzela attached to an elephant dying of flatulence. Well if it was at all possible to make something approximating a good game on such a console, you probably didn't do it with the adventures of an incomplete rotary telephone farting around a meadow, constantly falling into pits because he stepped on a darkened section 
section of floor, or stepped vaguely near a darkened section of floor, or climbed out of a pit and spawned on top of a darkened section of floor, or because a baby cried somewhere on planet Earth, your health is constantly ticking down like you've contracted pit rabies until you die, at which point a small child runs in and kicks you in the stomach till you wake up, ensuring there is no escape from astroturf hell. Still, it's not all bad, when you're running away from an enemy, the combined footstep sound effects can be used to create a funky boombox beat, so it's at least equally as fun as rhythmically banging your head on a wall. Honestly though, the game itself is virtually irrelevant in the face of what was going on around it, it did not cost 125 million fucking dollars to make pixels fart at a green wall. Atari had to license the movie rights for a start, and were so confident the game would be a hit that they threw 20 mil at that alone, most of which was later used to mop up Steven Spielberg's tears. Furthermore, Atari wanted the game done by September 1st to be ready for the ever-lucrative Christmas sales, but development only began at the end of July, and even for a game that would take up less memory than a plain text document of every positive thing anyone would ever say about it, this was a bit on the tight side. So under that kind of pressure, those mewling little shits on Christmas morning should have been grateful that the result didn't melt the console into hot slag and set fire to the tree. But mule those shits did, and out of four million cartridges pridefully manufactured by Atari after they closed their eyes and stuck their fingers in their ears, about 3.5 million came back unsold or returned. It was then proposed that the remainder be buried in a New Mexico landfill where they would congeal together into a vast life form called Atarilla that they could harness with a saddle of bone and leather and use to avenge themselves upon an uncaring world, but eventually the project was scaled back to just digging the landfill and forgetting about it. The massive losses plunged Atari into a nosedive and the console industry in the West crashed shortly thereafter, but it's not fair to put that entirely on E.T. E.T. was just the little brown top hat being worn by the all-singing, all-dancing shit show that the market had become. You see, Atari were of a mind that giving game designers credit for the games made about as much sense as crediting the office carpet or Venetian blinds, and a bunch of designers disagreed and split off to form Activision. Essentially, this blew the starting whistle for third-party development, flooding the market with badly made derivative garbage by inexperienced companies. The enormous letdown of such a hugely anticipated game as E.T. merely caused the scales to fall from the eyes of the buying public. Hey, all these overpriced bleepy games with pixels the size of post-it notes are actually kind of shit. Yeah, seems obvious to us, but cut them some slack, it was the 80s. They still thought Bananarama was good. Home PCs held on by falling back on the whole capable of solving all the world's problems thing, but game consoles were so tainted in the eyes of the fickle public that when Nintendo called their machine an entertainment system rather than a game console, it sold fucking gangbusters. For you see, the public are fickle, but not particularly smart. I wonder how much culture would differ if Atari hadn't fucked up, if a Japanese company hadn't grabbed the American console market and practically raised a generation. Maybe there wouldn't have been an anime boom in the 90s, maybe there wouldn't now be all these fat 30-year-olds arguing over who best embodies the word waifu. Now, the importance of retaining control of game publishing is a lesson that today's big corporations have taken to heart. They've taken it to heart so hard that it punched right through the fucking sternum. It's the democratic indie platforms like mobile gaming and Steam that now suffer from floods of derivatives. Let's not even speculate on how many flappy birds have taken to the air. But in terms of lessons learned from E.T. specifically, well, you tell me, do modern game companies ever overspend on overhyped games that disappoint the buying public? And how's the bear shitting in the woods index these days? You know, the parallel I find most interesting is between the launch of the NES and the X-Bone, as both position themselves as general entertainment systems to excuse some perceived stigma attached to being solely a games console. The difference is, after launch, Nintendo threw the cover off and went, fooled you, it is a games console! Whereas Microsoft threw the cover off and went, fooled you, it's shit! Buying a video game in the traditional manner is like booking a weekend in a nice warm bath of milk. Sometimes the milk is unpasteurised and contaminated with lumps of shit, but it's nice to get away from things and at least lumps of shit give you something to talk about. In contrast, free-to-play games are like being given a cow. It was free, and there's still milk to be had, but you're gonna have to put some effort in to get more than a few squirts out of it, and for some reason the cow has a large variety of optional hats and sunglasses. Fortunately, I have a policy against spending any money on free-to-play games, because a game bought from a store might cost a hundred bucks, but at least you'll never somehow lose track of how much money you've spent on it, barring a severely malfunctioning cash register or outside. I bring this up because this week I've been playing Firefall, a free-to-play massively multiplayer shooter. Now there's an evocative six-word phrase, possibly right up there with before running screaming from the room. Firefall has a plot. 
And frankly, after a bunch of hours playing, that's all I'm prepared to state with certainty. From what I remember, Earth's fucked. A dice was rolled on the usual fuck the Earth table, and on this occasion it landed on Big Asteroid. But wait, Firefall plays its roll again card with the plus one modifier, and the Earth gets fucked a second time when the dice lands on misuse of miracle element. Slow down, intro cinematic. I'm still mentally digesting the first round of fucking. Thankfully, neither fucking is the kind that means we don't get to fly cool spaceships or wear glowing armor, so we boldly step into this bleak arena now the backstory's been hurled at us like a fucking custard pie. As is tradition for me, I immediately sought the rudest name I could get past the profanity filter. Bugger nuts was rejected immediately, but no objections were raised at me playing as Mr. Titwank Esquire. Maybe enough people might want to use the name Titania that you'd let the tit part slide, but I'm shocked you didn't think I'd consider wank firefall. Man, I've had titwanks on the brain lately. Time I filled some water balloons and bought a new bottle of washing up liquid. As the game begins, we're dropped into a war zone and must swiftly choose our class from the five options of burly person in power armor numbers one through five. Why is TF2 still the only game that's figured out how to make each class immediately recognizable? Firefall results to floating symbols above the characters, you might as well just slap post-it notes on their foreheads. Anyway, I pick the assault class and start trying to get involved, except my gun wasn't firing when I clicked the mouse because I always keep my gamepad plugged in and sometimes games can be iffy about that, I guess because they're designed by people who can reach their USB ports from their couch. But it was while I was in the option menu sorting this out that I heard my earpiece assistant lady say, wow, you're really good at fighting battles, Mr. Titwank, good job. Fuck you, earpiece lady. I know you have to say it to everyone, but you could at least wait for a moment when it won't sound disingenuous. Anyway, it turns out the whole battle was a VR sim or something and then some officers show up and say they too were impressed by the way I navigate option menus under pressure. So we enter the world proper and our quest begins. I'm at a bit of a loss to explain what our quest is, though. I think this is a case of too much setting and not enough plot. I'm reminded of a piece of writing advice I was once given. Is this the most interesting period of our character's life? And if not, why aren't you showing us that? Things must have gotten really interesting when the Earth was being fucked, but that's all past. Here in the present, all I seem to do is fight bandits and aggressive wildlife and resolve domestic disputes, like a game warden who moonlights as a social worker. So the intro cinematic establishing the double-fuck backstory started to feel like setting up a modern warfare game with a brief history lesson on Hitler's Germany. But MMOs never do good story because they have six million protagonists and model themselves on a factory production line job. They usually build appeal by grinding you down with tedium until the slightest breaking of the monotony in the form of a level up sound effect becomes more precious to your ears than a single word of grudging praise from a stern father figure. So imagine my surprise when Firefall turned out to be somewhat fun to play as well. Well first of all, Australian internet is still like a piece of frayed string, tying a dead horse's cock to his balls, and online shooters particularly suffer when the world in which a monster is in my sights as I fire my gun may not be the world that the server currently occupies. Assault was probably the best class to pick, because the main weapon has area of effect and direct hits aren't necessary, but even then I could land four direct hits in a row before the game jerked awake and went, blur. what, four hits? Nope, doesn't count, I wasn't looking. But after a while my mind sort of shifted gear until I was about a second behind the rest of the universe and I actually started enjoying myself because rather than the usual MMO arrangement where combat entails standing opposite the enemy and the two of you quoting numbers at each other until the guy who quoted the lower numbers falls over, the maps are designed with a bit of verticality and you can use jump jets to dodge around and change position, which is hilarious when swarmed by monsters with no ranged attack because you can just take to the air and fire straight downwards, laughing at the groundlings as they bitterly consume your jetpack farts. I also like how they do missions. No fannying about looking for glowing exclamation marks highlighting people who think I give a shit how their husband disappeared. There's just one job notice board in each town. You pick a job, get on a glider, bam, no nonsense. Plus the scenery is nice enough, the gliding between destinations is fun in itself, and since you can't do it from just anywhere it's not so easy that it stops being special. So on the whole, fun gameplay if nothing else. But I wonder if it might actually be bad business for an MMO to have fun gameplay. Because it throws the combat into focus and when it inevitably got repetitive I lost interest. You see, the brighter flame burns out quicker, keep things on a wow level of grim mediocrity sustained with the occasional defibrillation of level advancement, and you can keep the engine running for years. There's always an issue reviewing MMOs when I can only devote a week to what demands a long-term commitment, but I think Firefall may appeal if I were the kind of person who can commit to just one smack addiction. Sadly, I'm firmly subscribed to the Crystal Method of the Month Club.
You know what pisses me off is that all the things I'm good at are things that everyone assumes they could do if they tried. Playing the bassoon or fluffing a walrus people respect because there's a specialist skill goes into those, but writing? Puh, I learned that in school, fucking aced it. They made me start doing it all in joined up letters just to give everyone else a chance. And that, Mr Crocher, is why I felt my background in production made me qualified to rewrite all the story copy you did for us to be more like a recent popular film. Well, you know what I say to that, Mr Producer? Fifty dollars an hour, please. Blimey, I wonder how people with integrity get through life. But hey, general public, I know you think you're being kind when you tell your ambitious friend that his new webcomic doesn't look like it was peeled off the rancid gammon flaps of the most popular girl in the retirement home, but you know where we end up with that attitude? Sacred 3. That's where we end up. A product by people who had never designed a game, written a story or attempted comedy before, but were pretty sure it couldn't be that hard. Well, considering it's the third game in a series, perhaps they have tried it before and practice isn't helping. I didn't play Sacred 2, Wikipedia says it was an action RPG taking place in a vast, seamless open world, and that doesn't sound a whole lot like the game I just played, which is more of an arcade hack and slash and about as seamless as a fucking Rubik's Cube. Pity they didn't go for adding a subtitle to the sequel name, because I've just thought of one. Sacred 3. Nothing is. Is. With the game based around four-player co-op and levels separated by a map screen, it feels like a cross between Gauntlet and Golden Axe, only you're playing on an arcade machine in a pub currently playing host to the most excruciating open mic night in the history of stand-up comedy, where the biggest round of applause of the night came when someone pulled the fire alarm. The plot is best summarised by tearing the contents page out of a book by Joseph Campbell. The fantasy land of Ankaria is being oppressed by an evil empire and must be stopped by a scrappy underdog resistance with no resources except the mightiest heroes in the land and the backing of all the angels of paradise. I think someone might have misspelled underdog at some point. So far, so generic, but a generic plot can be the best platform for a bit of knowing nudge-wink self-referential irony. I think Sacred 3 might have gotten that memo at some point, but then some wires got crossed and it ended up just using the platform to stand there trying to slash its wrists with the edge of a saucepan. The thing is, if you muted all the dialogue, Sacred 3 would just be a bland, straight-faced isometric hack-and-slash just about keeping my attention with a series of predictable identikit arenas before shrugging its shoulders, pocketing its hands and starting off for the great waste ground of modern memory. But I might almost speculate that at some point mid-development somebody decided it had to be a comedy game now and got some poor bastard to change every line of dialogue bar none into a goofy, sarcastic quip, no matter how tortured it came across or how incongruous it was with the visuals. And that's how we came to be spending the whole game with a support character whose constant ditzy fucking valley girl joss fucking weed and fucking sar fucking castic observations tormented my stomach lining like a jagged metal enchilada. But with knitting needles jammed down your ears and on the basest possible level the combat can be fun. Hordes of bad guys are hurled at you and you swat them all back with a squash racket. Enemies who are shielding or doing interruptible attacks have big glowing icons over them, which as we established last week is a total visual design cop-out, equivalent to wearing a t-shirt emblazoned with the words I'm a graphic artist and I drink too much, but that's about the worst of it. The problem is the combat is all there is. The levels are linear successions of closed off arenas with little exploration, and even when there is there's no reward, no secret plus one frost sword of Tosh McMongmotty, new weapons and abilities are simply handed to you once you've reached arbitrary levels. Secret chests just contain money, health and energy, mere kindling to throw into the furnace of the ever-burning grind engine. You kill and you kill and you kill and the moment you've killed enough bodies to fill the jar then a little bell rings and you get a teddy bear and a bigger jar. Reminds me of that old joke game, Progress Quest, gameplay based solely around a steadily incremental number, except the whole joke part has been taken off, and burnt, and stomped on, and worn as a silly hat by a cunt. The missions increment steadily in difficulty and all have level recommendations like MMO quests do, but they're still in linear order, so what on earth is the point? Why don't we just gain one level for each mission we've done? Or forget the levelling system altogether, controversially, because if you don't quite meet the recommended level for the next mission, all you can do is play the previous mission again until you do. But wait, couldn't you go back and grind in any previous mission, only replaying ones that you liked? No, because A, anything more than two levels ago becomes insultingly easy, and any XP gain is equivalent to trying to fill a fish tank with a water pistol, b having a favourite mission in this game is like having a particular fondness for a specific few inches of a length of string, and c is a word meaning a large body of salt water that lots of fish live in. I'm getting the telltale whiffs of yet another game being sacrificed on the altar of multiplayer. Suddenly the focus is not on having a fun RPG adventure in Fantasyland, but on seeing who out of all your friends has the highest number. And of course it had to be map screen menus rather than seamless world, because then it can double as a fucking lobby that Johnny Fartknockers the world over can randomly drop into to stomp all over the carpet and make all the pictures crooked. But I say again, co-op games have to stand 
stand up on single player because anything can be fun if experienced with friends, Plan 9 from Outer Space brings to mind, but don't think for a fucking instant that Sacred 3 deserves to be equated to something bad but unintentionally funny. Sacred 3 lurks on the complete other side of that coin, attempted intentional humour that's about as funny as post-traumatic stress disorder. Nothing is more guaranteed to great than comedy falling flat with smug, blissful unawareness. A grim death march through forced kookiness is worse than a thousand right to hells, rides to hell, however you say that. Might as well replace the word level with pain threshold. Pain threshold up, you now have a pain threshold of 25. You have unlocked the special ability called Dignitas. Like a man groping around a men's locker room during a power cut, I've got a surprise tip for you. When designing a game, don't make combat rolling everywhere slightly faster than walking. Especially in an RPG where there's going to be a lot of walking, yeah, people will start out walking everywhere or using the sprint in a dignified manner, but sooner or later everyone gravitates to a state of maximum efficiency, and then they'll be whirling across the hills like Catherine wheels. So I'd be playing Risen 3 and I'd see two hard-bitten pirates chatting about the death of the world and their abandonment by the gods, and I'd go, hey, have you guys seen my tumbleweed impression? Meow, meow, meow. At one point I was cartwheeling through the jungle when I saw a monkey also doing cartwheels and I wondered if my true destiny was to become Jungle King of the Monkeys, and then I was never going to be able to take the game seriously because I just thought the sentence, I'm Jungle King of the Monkeys. Just have a little pause before you can do another roll. Christ, it's moonwalking through Castlevania all over again. You know, fair props to Deep Silver for being pretty much the only publisher putting shit out at present, but that's starting to feel like being the only guy who turned up for the Rolf Harris comeback tour. Risen 3 is a pirate-themed RPG and a sequel to Risen 2, also a pirate-themed RPG, so we're doing better than Sacred 3 in the sequel stakes at least. It's just that it might be going a bit too far in the opposite direction. Because I honestly couldn't tell if the gravel-voiced, edgy, black-haired, white-boy hero in Risen 3 is supposed to be the same gravel-voiced, edgy, black-haired, white-boy hero from the last time around. He certainly hasn't retained any of the skills he may or may not have acquired in Risen 2, fairly par for the course in RPG sequels, but he also doesn't seem to have memories of any of the places or even basic concepts that surround him at all. Judging by all the characters, he has to chase up dialogue trees, demanding to know their jobs and why monsters are bad and why learning combat skills is good. He does seem to drink an awful lot, so who knows. Then again, it might be all those blows to the head he takes as he combat rolls down another flight of stairs. The plot at the start of the game is that the world is fucked. Well, that was anticlimactic, but at least it was quick. What's that? That's just the beginning. But I thought you said the world was fucked. What are we supposed to do? Find the mystical morning after pill? The gods have disappeared, probably without even leaving a note on the pillow, and the outposts of man are being besieged by armies of undead emerging from beneath the grounds, none of which matters to our hero, who is out searching for treasure across the one sea, with his sister, who dresses like a waitress from a pirate-themed titty restaurant. But then after an encounter with an undead lord, our hero's soul is captured by the underworld and he enters a hideous state between life and death, the kind where he looks perfectly healthy and doesn't seem to be physically or mentally afflicted in the slightest. Oh, but apparently he'll turn into an undead minion if he doesn't keep acquiring soul points. But that doesn't seem like a huge issue, because he can get soul points just from saying nice things in conversation. So all he has to do is spend the odd evening posting comments on DeviantArt and he's got nothing to worry about. What I do remember about Risen 2 is that the combat was fucking annoying, and that's definitely still the case, with the hero putting more lengthy flourish into his sword swings than a fucking pole dancer, so that even the monkeys can stunlock his fat ass, and combat rolling away from their attack seems to be a very good way to get confused, turned around, and blunder into three of the monkeys' friends but I have to admit that the combat clicked a little better after I acquired a counter-attack move, which is probably why it should be given to you standard, rather than taught for a thousand gold from generic NPC 247 of 9812. In the name of role-playing, I think Risen divides its essential gameplay skills to a rather unnecessary degree. For example, swords are the only melee weapon because they're the only one that can reasonably be associated with the pirate stereotype, unless you want them to start bashing each other about with oars or parrots, but sword skills are divided between slashing swords, piercing swords, and, uh, sword swords. 
I think there might be a bit of overlap there, Risen. And the only reason for splitting them up seems to be to give all new melee weapons a 1 in 3 chance of being less shit. Risen may have more skills than the size of its world can support, distributing them rather unevenly among a dense population of samey NPCs, and the necessity of having to converse with every single one of the dreary fuckwits to determine the quests they can give and the skills they can teach gives Risen a little bit too much trough and not enough peak. It's all rather monotone, converse with one white dude with brown hair and a regional British accent, converse with them all. Even the first three recruitable crew members are all white dudes with brown hair and regional British accents, and I'm not asking for the Mass Effect thing where they're all different species, one human, one goblin, one pistol shrimp, nor am I asking for achingly politically correct diversity until it resembles fucking Sesame Street. Just more ways to tell the fuckers apart would be nice. You can only bring one NPC helper along and I ended up using the same guy the whole way through because it hardly seemed to matter. Their main function is to get beaten up by a giant crab while I combat roll around the back and stick a sword up its bum. I gave Risen 3 about 8 hours to come together and suck me in, but all that happened was that I finally noticed that the islands were all copy-pasted from Risen 2. The fact that it took so long, serving to underline the lasting impact Risen 2 had on my memory. In my defence, they did turn the islands around, so you explored them from the opposite direction, like it turned its underpants inside out to extend the wear time for another day or so, but I'm disappointed by this lazy expansion pack sequel bollocks Risen 3. Wait, don't go away mad! Let's bond over a crazy ocean combat boss fight with a sea monster. Six hours into the game Risen 3, that's a day late and a doubloon short, but the sudden drastic change of gameplay style between long periods of repetitive questing is more than a little jarring, and since your skills and equipment have no effect on the fight, it's not so much an integrated part of the game as a big fat gimmick sitting in the middle of it, like a frog in a bird bath. Risen 3, in summary, can be said to have at least the spark of life, which dies by drawing itself out too much until it's too dull to even get irate about, or should I say, puh, irate. Ha 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 Let's all laugh at an industry that never learns anything, tee hee hee. So in our first instalment of the Zero Punctuation Guide to Retarded Moments in Retarded Retards, we discovered why, if the future of your company depends on the success of a game, you should maybe spend more than five weeks on it and don't build it out of Lego. This week we're going to turn to the opposite side of the same coin. We know what happens when the publisher shits the bed, but what about when the developer earns the displeasure of the hotel chambermaid? When they are given too much development time as opposed to too little, as the publisher comforts themselves with the knowledge that even Stanley Kubrick once took 170 takes of the same scene, willfully ignoring the fact that while Stanley Kubrick was a flighty auteur genius the same behaviour pattern could easily be displayed by an incompetent spod with no planning skills and an indirectly proportional ego. I speak of one of the most notorious disappointments in the entire history of first-person shooters. Jesus Christ, Yahtzee, how many videos are you gonna do on Duke Nukem Forever? No, you twat, the other one! I was slightly surprised to find Daigatana available on Steam, but even more so by the feature list. 25 glorious weapons to collect and utilise, two highly trained sidekicks to watch your back. I'd have said it was being sarcastic if I thought publishers had any self-awareness at all, but realistically everyone knows that its infamous reputation is the only reason this game is on Steam and the blurb should have read, roll up, roll up, everyone come and see the freak. I was surprised that the Steam version seemed to run alright, as on launch the game was notorious for running horribly with many issues, like a paperboy with polio, but I guess some things got fixed in post. For one thing there's an option to disable the limit save gem system, although sadly not one to make it tear itself from the game and commit seppuku on your living room floor. Anyway, I started the game and it opens with a suffocatingly boring intro cinematic written by a real go-getter who refused to let his obvious ineptitude at writing stories get in the way of writing a huge pile of story that is now going to get shoved in your face like an ether-soaked rag. I die a lot in Daikatana, or should I say John Romero makes me his bitch a lot, but on only about 50% of those deaths was I completely certain of what it was that had killed me, and most of those because it had been my own weapon. There seem to be even odds whether or not an explosive weapon will blow up in your face with every use. 
use, and the last weapon you find in the first chapter is some kind of bouncing death sphere that might as well rename the fire button to immediately destroy self. And when weapons aren't actively plotting against you, they're just mystifyingly awkward to use. Under what circumstances could anyone need a shotgun that fires six times with every use, other than being an American police officer? And as for our highly trained sidekicks, they're only highly trained by the standards of sea monkeys. Every level exit obstinately folds its arms and blocks you until you have both NPCs with you, and chances are good they will be three rooms back frantically sprinting into a wall, or more likely each other, until you have to start manually guiding them along the hallways with a fucking snow shovel. So the game's shit, but you knew that already. The rich, creamy brownness of its shit was the perfect fall to end a story about pride. John Romero was the auteur golden boy behind Daikatana, as should be well known by all the people who are now his bitch, formerly of id Software, who got his new studio off the ground basically it seems by saying, hello I made Doom and Quake, and then rubbing his thumbs and forefingers together. And so he declared his intention to realise his brilliant ideas, unhampered by all those lame sensible people with their logic and humility and realistic estimates of time management. He planned out an epic adventure set over four time periods, dripping with a huge variety of monsters and weapons like his hairdo drip styling product, and declared it would be done in seven months. At which point id collectively rolled its eyes, did a little finger gun gesture next to its temple, and released Quake 2, a game that's about as much fun as inspecting an architectural plan through a brown quality street wrapper but which was the cutting edge of tech at the time, and clearly nothing else would do for Ramiro's big hungry baby. See that's the trouble with the cutting edge, it's hard to stay on because it's very thin and it keeps moving as it hacks at your balls. Seven months turned into three years, but while that could be forgiven, the key word of the whole debacle was hubris. Ramiro had a vision for designer-centric development, noble in itself, but queered by an ideal of a rock star developer image, publicly blowing money on penthouse studios and flamboyant lifestyles, but a rock star is obliged only to write some good tunes, sweat on some people and coke themselves off their balls. Developing a game, it turns out, is actually quite hard. As negative press grew and grew concerning nepotism and mass resignations, and full-page magazine ads informed a restless gaming public that they were John Romero's cellmates and he'd claimed the top bunk, as it were, outright hostility was brewing. At this point, the universe takes two paths, one in which Romero spearheads a bold artistic movement in game design as a misunderstood genius, burdened with the egotism that often strikes the auteur, or Romero is forever lambasted as a boob, so massive that even the most determined baby would struggle to get its gob around it. And which universe we ended up with hinged on one thing, Daikatana not being a pile of execrable garbage. Better luck next time, universe! Today's faceless AAA industry rarely indulges auteurism, as throwing babies out with bathwater is now so routine for big business that the babies have formed their own society in the outflow pipe. But Romero's vision also gave us Deus Ex, from the division of Ironstorm run by people who knew what the fuck they were doing. What the modern industry certainly hasn't learned from the Daikatana fable is not to regard its audience with absolute giggling contempt, and as the same trollop is brought out year after year, contempt is virtually the industry standard. But there was something morbidly satisfying about Daikatana being shit. It was a modern day Icarus flight pulling a big ego back to Earth. Today, as long as the publisher bombards us with enough pre-rendered teasers, mocked up gameplay videos, little white lies and big black stodgy ones to move enough units on launch day, then they have the luxury of immediately not having to give a shit what we think. And that shows far more hubris than declaring bitches and the making thereof. At least that acknowledged that we are human beings. Human beings with very enticing buttholes. Oh for fuck's sake, why didn't they just call it Battle Mage? That's a really fucking good title. Punchy, memorable, gets the point across. I'd call my dog Battle Mage. Fuck it, I'd call my kid Battle Mage. The playground beatings would be very character building. Best of all, you feel like you can say it in conversation without having to prise the words through your teeth like a stubborn Werther's original. The same cannot be said of the actual title, Lichdom Battle Mage. And whether or not Lichdom is a real word, it rolls off the tongue like a mouthful of socket wrenches. I'm so sick of the endless colonisation of new games that feel like they're too special to make do with one title. It's so mind-bogglingly self-important it makes me want to 
bit. So from now on, I'm going to pronounce colons as dry heaves. Did you hear that? Beyond two souls. Murdered soul suspect. Are we to take it that Lichdom Battle Mage is merely the first installment of an ongoing Lichdom series, not necessarily about battle majory? Should we look forward to Lichdom Dishwasher and Lichdom Tax Accountant? No, of course we fucking shouldn't, because it's a game about battle maging and essentially nothing else. I'm pretty sure there aren't even liches in it. The setting is pseudo-medieval fantasy world populated inexplicably by Americans number 5792. Oh, I take it back. Clearly we needed two titles to carry the weight of all this sterling creativity. Our story starts with a literal moustache-twirling villain walking into your house, weeing on your carpet and licking all the doorknobs, and then walking out while everyone laughs at your stupid, sad face. Whereupon a mysterious man in a hood grants you the power to shoot fire out of your hands and tells you to go nuts. I suppose if you're making a fantasy game, there's no fantasy like power fantasy. You can't say the villains aren't effectively hateable, but in a rather low-effort way. It's like making a picture of a baby harp seal look cute. Anyway, this all kicks off a rather linear first-person dungeon crawlery sort of thing as you rampage across the land, picking off the occasional named villain in between setting fire to entire gang bangs worth of minions. The stated intention of Battle Mage, yeah, I'm just gonna call it that, deal with it, is to have a game about a mage who can get shit done. Unhampered by mana pools or spell cooldowns, who can meet an army of skeletons head-on and fucking wreck shit up and doesn't have to hide behind his warrior friend who looks like he got his muscle growth inspiration from Akira. An agenda I can fully support, but while we are unhampered by mana pools, another hamper gets dropped on us right off the bat with spellcrafting written along the side. How it works is you pause the game and do a series of little mathematical equations in which you multiply element by delivery system and divide it by the square root of control, mastery or destruction, and then you sit with your chin on your fist inspecting all the little numbers that appear on screen in teeny weeny eye strain font to see if they're not bigger than the numbers on the spell you're already using. Then you can go back to throwing fireballs at skeletons if that's really what's so important to you. All of which is kind of dumped on you with very little tutorialising, and it did take me a while to figure out that only one of the three directions a spell can take was actually doing what I wanted, that is, replace the numbers on the enemy health counters with slightly smaller ones. Mind you, being poorly explained is the kind of problem that is only a problem once, and it didn't take that long for me to craft a gameplay style that worked for me, using bottlenecking and ice traps to freeze enemies in place, while I blinked around throwing out fireballs like the clinic next door to the nursing school throws out morning after pills. But there's still an awkwardness to the controls, such as having to hold down two buttons for a second to do an area of effect spell, and if you don't hold them down for long enough then it fizzles out like a stiffy in the presence of Tony Abbott, so the combat has trouble getting a decent flow going even if you didn't have to stop every now and again to do your fucking maths homework. What became an annoyance later was that I didn't realise that Mr. Battle Mage had a limited inventory for, I'm not even sure what they are, Yu-Gi-Oh cards that you craft into spells, so several hours in I was told I couldn't pick up any more until I'd gotten rid of a few. Except Mr. Battle Mage is also a hoarder, apparently, because there doesn't seem to be any way to discard Yu-Gi-Oh cards except by combining them into stronger ones, and almost none of the combinations were better than the Yu-Gi-Oh cards I was picking up from random drops. So as well as having to stop to do maths homework to make sure my spells were optimised, I was now having to rearrange my luggage as well, just so I could keep picking up new stuff to optimise spells with. And that's a dangerous thing to suddenly drop on someone who's already kinda bored of the game. There's a thousand momentary satisfactions to be had in the weighty thunk of missiles getting acquainted with charging enemies, and the environments are rather pretty, but it's so much wallpaper when gameplay consists just of linear paths broken up by combat and after the intro all story is brought across by having a support character show up at checkpoints and tell you about a bunch of cool things that happened off screen. At one point she was all like, hey, those undead the cultists summoned have turned against them, so there'd be some dead cultists lying around in the next few arenas, and then a bit later she popped up and said, never mind, they're all pals again now, they had a party just over the next hill where you couldn't see. Shame you missed it, everyone had their tits out. Look, am I actually part of this story or am I the fucking janitor? By that point I was bored enough to be skipping all the optional combat arenas and the save points got far enough apart that the game became too obnoxious to recommend. Maybe check it out if you're the kind of person for whom combining abstract concepts into limitless combinations of very small numbers holds endless appeal. What is it with indie games and crafting anyway? Seems like half the bloody green light pages and fucking Kickstarter videos have got crafting front and centre on the projected feature list, just above roguelike elements and zombies, but surely every game has crafting depending on how you define it. Many of them, for example, involve crafting bullet 
met with man to create dead man, and battle magecraft's crafting system with action fantasy to create bored Yahtzee! Did you know that EA has repeatedly been voted worst company in America by Consumerist? That's impressive for such a competitive field, it's like being voted worst human being attending the Grammy Awards. So hats off to EA, all that grating kittens onto their cornflakes must be its own reward to a large extent, but it's nice to get the recognition now and then. But one of the polyps on the upper portion of EA's amorphous mass has recently made some gas expulsions vaguely reminiscent of human speech, stating that they don't want to win this award anymore and that the new goal is to be a player-first company. Well, it's very easy for a polyp to make gas expulsions and not as much to put those gas expulsions into practice, but with this promise in mind, I can say that The Sims 4 absolutely redefines video game sequels. I always thought they were supposed to have more features and be generally better than the previous game, or indeed any of the previous games, but that just goes to show how old my thinking is. Player first, I'm guessing, is EA's answer to the question, who wants this marrow up their ass? So presumably you know what The Sims is by this point, it's the best possible argument against the existence of a benevolent interventionist god, in which you direct small groups of dollhouse residents until they cease to amuse, then burn their lives to the ground and laugh at their betrayed tears. But before you start assembling your psychotic single white female-esque campaign of torment, do bear in mind that there isn't any swimming in Sims 4, so you can no longer lure them into the pool and delete the ladder, which was so iconic to the series they might as well have removed the green diamond thing. I wonder if in their snip-happy way EA truly realise how devastating to the core principle removing swimming pools really is. What The Sims is is a consumerist middle-class fantasy about walling yourself off from the real world and reducing all measurement of human development and personal success to one's possessions, your dragon's horde of crass suburban decadence, and in that game of top trumps the swimming pool is a kingly crown. It's always the first thing on my progress list when I play The Sims, after a second toilet and a TV bigger than my left bum cheek. But that's not all, there's no end to the features that The Sims 4 obstinately does not have. Remember all that texture customization from Sims 3 that lets you dress up in shower curtain fabric and upholster the sofa with reindeer-patterned Christmas jumpers if you so wanted? That's out. It's chintz and pastels or fuck off back to Call of Duty. What about an intervening stage between infancy and childhood so that babies don't instantly switch from one to the other and parents don't find themselves suddenly breastfeeding a 12-year-old in mixed company? Out the balloon with you, toddlers! Whoops, they didn't fly so well! A large and seamless overworld full of workplaces, shops, entertainment and communal facilities who the hell authorised that kind of extravagance? Bin it! And break out the loading transitions. Of course, none of the above features couldn't be returned to the game later on with content patches, but if you seriously think that the thought of charging for them hasn't slithered its way across EA's mind like a fat slug made of rancid spam, then you've been listening to too many gas expulsions. After all, who's gonna foot the bill for all the additional work? Player first! Maybe there's a guy at EA who's been nursing private resentment for years at the fact that he suggested maybe not putting so many new features into The Sims 2 all at once, and someone laughed at him and gave him a wedgie, and now he's in charge and bitterly exacting revenge upon the world. Because there's one big, fat, socially awkward question loitering around The Sims 4 with a bad case of hover hand, and that's thus. What possible reason is there to buy it while The Sims 3 is cheaper with more features and available on Steam, rather than exclusively Origin so I don't have to get my computer exorcised after using it? Are we getting better graphics? Not really, and it hardly makes a difference when we mostly watch the characters from far away rear window vision. There is a new character building feature where you can click and drag parts of the face instead of all that messing around with sliders, but when you've clicked on an eyebrow, your guess is as good as mine as whether a mouse movement will make it thicker or more recessed or curl it inwards into an unimpressed frown to match my own. Besides that, the big new feature that that one woman from the E3 presentation looked like she was about ready to gush over from every orifice is the new mood system. Get this, if something makes a sim flirty or tense or empathic for reindeer, then they will stay that way for a while and will walk around and work out in a flirty or tense way or while threatening to butt people with their antlers. But this isn't much more than a difference in animation, and it might unlock some new ways to talk to another sim, but it looks functionally identical to all the other ways. In fact, it's curious how many of the huge variety of available activities look exactly the same as each other. In The Sims 4, for example, you can play video games casually or play video games to a professional tournament level, you can hack money from the government, you can chat and develop friendships with anyone you've met in the world, you can write a best-selling novel that leaves housewives worldwide frigging themselves with tear-stained rolling pins, but all of these activities are conveyed by the characters sitting at a computer occasionally overreacting at a keyboard. All the 
new mood system seems to do is give every sim essentially the same personality. They get flirty from watching romantic television, they become energised from a good day at school, golly gee willikers learning sure is fun. And that isn't helped by there having been some kind of state-mandated mass lobotomization between games, reducing the number of personality traits for an adult sim from five to three. I suppose it might be shallow to pick apart every individual detail that has been cut down, and a broader perspective might appreciate the formula being streamlined a bit, but on the other hand, it's the fucking sims! It's the poster boy for shallowness! It's about smooth-skinned Stepford wives competing to have the nicest wallpaper, as they willfully ignore the emaciated children sucking on a rat's armpit for nourishment somewhere outside the pastel walls of their gated community. And to start removing the flat-screen tellies and power showers of gameplay features shows more blatant misunderstanding of its audience than the black-and-white minstrels tour of the South African prison system. So explain, Sims 4, why you shouldn't be hurled immediately into this trough of burning slurry. Player first! There once was a game called Destiny, looked more like a graphical test to me. It's brown, there's a gun, and it looks as much fun as requiring a double mastectomy. I wrote those very words a while back in response to Destiny hype videos, and I must say I stand corrected. Destiny would only be as fun as a double mastectomy if after you woke up the doctor said, well, we were most of the way through the operation, but then our internet suddenly went down, so we had to sew your tits back on and throw you out the nearest window. I remember a time not so long ago when always on was a dirty word. When Diablo 3 made noises in that direction, it earned itself an afternoon on the hobbling wheel. And when the X-Bone pulled that shit, we pushed that shit straight back in again. My internet was dropping out like a military cadet with leprosy last week, so even though I prefer to keep to myself while playing Destiny, I kept getting kicked to the title screen because the game's like a psychotic girlfriend who burns all your clothes if she loses sight of you for five seconds. So according to Destiny's intro cinematic, some alien being called The Traveller came to Earth to crash on the couch or something and accelerated humanity into a space colonisation golden age until The Traveller's rowdy mates show up and start the usual perpetual cosmic warfare thing. This was the end, but it was also a beginning! Was that what you were going to say, Destiny Intro Cinematic? It was, wasn't it, you fucking hack? After deciding on your class and species and embarrassing 70s haircut, your character is awoken in the ruins of Earth by a floating Rubik's Cube voiced by Peter Dinklage. And mad respect to the actor, because he's got a voice as rich as Christmas pudding, but this is stunt casting of the highest order, and he delivers his words like he's reading aloud from road signs on a long and tedious car journey. His first statement is something like, you've been dead for a long time and must have many questions, and he was right. It's just that we never get around to addressing any of them, do we? Our first task is to find a ship to fly us off Earth, and the main plot reason given for this seems to be so that we can continue with this video game what we are playing. Molestiny is a first-person shooter that wants to eat its lunch on the MMO's table, set in a series of expansive levels with jolly pretty scenery, and which you'll have plenty of time to enjoy as you trek the same terrain five or six times in the course of the linear mission path. The MMO thing comes into it when you run into other players rampaging around the hills trying to encourage you to join their dance academy, and if you make any attempt to explore the area beyond your mission parameters you might stumble upon a hidden enemy who looks exactly the same as all the other enemies but is about 17 levels higher, and you will have newfound empathy for flies that smash themselves against windscreens. You see, the scenery is so pretty it has to work its cute little ass till its pubes go crunchy, pulling double duty as both campaign area and grinding zone. You see, after a while I was routinely finding that I was failing to meet the recommended level for the next story mission, and I'd have to wander around previous areas rubbing my face in gravel. And as pretty as the scenery is, and as true as it is that the first bite is with the eye, you do have to let some other parts of your face get involved at some point or you end up with gravy dripping down your cheeks. The recommended level advances by about one per story mission, but after a while a single mission only filled the XP bar by a fun size Snickers worth. The intention perhaps is to encourage you to play in multiplayer arenas or raid missions a bit in between the story, but an immediate stop sign is thrown in my face because, on the PS4 at least, I can't play multiplayer missions without PlayStation Plus, and I'd sooner run my tongue along a dead dog's taint than pay a fucking subscription for a console I barely use. Wait, you're complaining about not being able to play multiplayer, Yahtzee? You, the hunchback of Quattroformaggio? Well, it's the principle. If multiplayer costs extra, fine, but I want to know it's because server costs need to be covered or something. And without PS Plus, there's still all these other players running around, so it couldn't be 
costing them any more to open up the PvP. It's rather galling when I'm dropped to the title screen for Lost Connection when the major online features have been arbitrarily walled off to keep out the second class scum. Besides, I thought grinding in multiplayer might at least be more fun than grinding patrol missions which have about 500 ways of saying go to places you've already been and shoot the dudes again. The dudes in question are a succession of hostile alien races collectively named The Darkness and individually after random words from the dictionary. The Fallen, The Hive, The Cabal, The Vex, The Hinge, The Recidivism, The Felch. And most of them seem to fall under the category of dudes, that is to say humanoids, with several varieties of size and snazzy armour, with bosses having the biggest and snazziest of all. So it's kind of one note. The only other recurring enemy type besides growly dudes with guns is floating robots with no limbs, which are the option one tends to go for when all the animators have gone home and you so cannot be asked that your arse occupies a different level of reality. And remember, this is by the guys who made Halo. One can hardly forget, because Destiny's plot is very nearly a find and replace, and just as simultaneously lifeless and convoluted with enough pseudo-new age cosmic claptrap to fill Cortana's discarded bra cups. But Halo had a range of enemy types, some of them were humanoid and some of them were little squawky things dressed up like quality streets, and in comparison Destiny's a bunch of dullards hanging around over-designed backdrops like a Magic the Gathering tournament in the Sistine Chapel. Generally, the combat can best be said to be doing its job alright, I suppose. I'd sniper rifle one guy in the head and then watch the rest slide in and out of cover like cardboard ducks on a wire before coming in on the flank and stabbing everyone up. But that can't change the fact that the game is aggressively boring, the loading times are arse, and the need to constantly travel back and forth to the communal hub to hand in quests and items is arse as far as the eye can see. The game briefly comes alive each time the plot advances to the next planet, but the new scenery loses its luster fast as it's wrung out for every drop for of grinding's sake. Even the cutscenes are, I hesitate to use the word dry, only because every character is as warm and engaging as a bowl of cold piss. For cold piss is what we must expect when we drink from the well of MMOs, routinely pissed in by the need for eternal status quo. Nothing happens, nothing tries to engage or explain, it's just fight the darkness until further notice. But what made the darkness so dark, Destiny? I don't know, maybe someone pissed in it. Delighting as it is that the drought is dying down, doing Destiny drained your debonair delegate, dominant developers delay for a dog's age, then deliver a desperately drab discharge and dare to describe it as the due destination for depictions of destruction. Damn it, I don't desire to designate devotion to drudges as dull as ditchwater, so I'm declaring a downloadables day, derived directly from discovering D4, Dark Dreams Don't Die, which makes for a rather stark contrast to Destiny, while Destiny was hyped until its trousers burst and has a media profile roughly equivalent to that of Benito Mussolini, D4's release date was announced the day prior, and even after that I had to search for it on the Xbox store before it would grudgingly admit that it even existed. Yeah, I think I saw it kicking around one of the sub-basements, it seemed to say. But why would you want to play that? Haven't you noticed all these ads for incredibly boring games I've got plastered across my naked body? It's entirely possible that the X-Bone is embarrassed about it. It's directed by a mysterious collection of proteins calling itself Swery, which previously made Deadly Premonition, the game that had a few technical imperfections in the same way Ted Bundy had a few personality quirks that made him less than ideal marriage material, but was bizarre enough to attain cult appeal, so Microsoft seems to have shrugged its shoulders and let Swery make a new thing for the X-Bone, whereupon he went, Oh boy, you won't regret this, Mr. Microsoft, sir. I'm gonna do you proud. I'm gonna make use of that Kinect you like so much. And I guess no one got around to sending him the memo that Microsoft's been kind of distancing itself from the Kinect lately on account of it being a total waste of effort, plastic money, space, and time. The Kinect dwells in that unholy place where the fitness and dancing games hold sway, and Rise of Nightmares showed us early on that it and core games get along like an Ulster Unionist cat and a real IRA dog. But D4 has learned two important lessons from that example. A, let us fucking sit down rather than make us hold a pose halfway through doing the hokey cokey, and B, fuck the Kinect control 
controls and just let us use a normal controller like what fucking human beings do. Playing a sweary game is like looking through a glass bottom boat and seeing a seven-titted mermaid with the face of Phil Collins. Strangely intriguing and the parts we recognise make it all the stranger, but we will remain forever separated by the glass, unable to do much more than glimpse each other's worlds. So our hero is private detective David Young, whose life fell apart when his wife was murdered and he was shot in the head. Alright, I'm with you so far, it's memento with anime haircuts. The bullet in the head gives Young the mystical ability to travel through time and interact with events associated with specific objects. Okay, bit of a wobble, but American television has broadcast weirder concepts. With her dying breath, Mrs Young mentioned the letter D, and so David quests to solve her murder apparently by investigating every single human being on Earth whose name begins with D. Starting to lose me now, wouldn't he realise he needed slightly more to go on the first time he was arrested for stalking Donny Osmond? Young shares his apartment with an insane scantily clad woman who thinks she's a cat. And I'm lost, sweary. I am officially lost down the back of the fridge with a warranty card and a missing rice cooker attachment. Since controlling a character directly with Kinect is like talking a blind person through an obstacle course with a fruit bat stuffed in your mouth, the game instead does the mist thing where you hop from position to position and rotate in place like a long jump champion on a lazy Susan. In broad terms it's an adventure game, you look for objects you can interact with to solve puzzles. I say puzzles, it's mostly find the thing that moves the plot to the next flag and give it a poke, although gameplay that straightforward wouldn't be anywhere near satisfactory to Swery and whatever ancient spacemen he believes talk to him inside his brain. So there's also a rather obnoxious stamina mechanic. Every action you take, from opening cupboards to asking someone an asinine question, drains a little stamina which is restored by hoovering up every random food item you find lying around, in cupboards, bins and other people's mouths. Young seems to metabolise like a fucking nuclear submarine, but I never did find out what happens if you let stamina run out. Taking an educated guess from the rest of the game, I'll hazard that it's something not fun. Eventually the exploration and discovery is broken up with action scenes, which are action in the sense of we are considering legal action on behalf of the concept of fun, as D4 remembers that another person whose name starts with D is David Cage. Yes, it's our old friend QuickTime Events, that spectre at the feast that drinks all the Tizer and occasionally cries think fast and throws a plate at my face, where the action becomes cartoonishly high octane and simultaneously impossible to focus on because we have to concentrate on the next button prompt, so it's like swatting mosquitoes in front of a Punch and Judy show. And these sequences don't drain stamina, so we find ourselves in a situation where catching four dinner plates, rugby tackling a passerby, and hurling yourself through a plate glass window somehow exerts us less than opening an overhead baggage bin. A time of writing, D4 consists only of the first two episodes of what has been somewhat optimistically titled Season 1, and I'm impressed because Heroes took a whole season and change to start getting shit, D4 has managed it by Episode 2. Episode 1 has some nice little ideas and a bit of exploration, some let's say flamboyant characters and even some spots of intrigue on its quirky clown trousers. Episode 2, meanwhile, consists mainly of moving down a linear path to the end, and since that probably didn't feel like enough, you have to stop along the way firstly to play what amounts to a hidden object minigame, and then again to play what amounts to a sliding tile puzzle because it is a sliding tile puzzle, and then go home and make your Catwoman dress up like a sexy Dalmatian. It seems to have been designed by someone who gets bored halfway through scratching their nose, but with that in mind it's strange how often D4 feels like it's hitting the same points as Deadly Premonition, a damaged detective with a diversity of duds and a disorderly diet whose murder investigation takes him to a larger plot involving a red narcotic that may have supernatural effects, and it's all got this air of cult American TV shows being pushed through the filter of Japanese oddness and attention deficit disorder. So while it is disarmingly different to the diamond dozen dreariness of Destiny and Derivatives, demented displays don't decrease dodgy design. Duh! The trouble with banking your console on your limited range of first-party IP is what you feed your kids on during those parts of the year when you don't have a ten-pole new instalment to dangle over the masses like a pair of freshly laundered trousers over the incontinence ward. The answer is to grab the franchise as it stands, lift up its bra, and motorboat your little heart out. Nintendo motorboats so much that even when it stops those tits keep bouncing back and forth like an executive toy for anything up to a year. It's their fucking holding pattern. The Mario franchise in particular is more holding pattern than tentpole these days, what with Mario Golf Kart, Tennis Party, and Sonic and Teach's typing, but its major stablemate Legend of Zelda 
Zelda has never really gotten the hang of holding patterns. There was Link's crossbow training, and one hardly needs to go on at that point. Conversation abruptly stops, like the dog has walked in and sprayed half-digested Winnelot across the room from both ends. So why waste the brain cells again? Let's just take an existing proven game concept and paste Zelda characters over it, accepting as you do so that it might as well be splattering the words blatant marketing exercise across the sky like the fucking bat signal. Hence, Hyrule Warriors. It's Dynasty Warriors with Zelda in it. And I'm not terribly familiar with Dynasty Warriors as a series, but from what I've gathered from this game, it's some kind of medieval battlefield simulator in which you are the only person present who hasn't recently suffered a near-fatal head injury. So while the player characters tend to be rather cartoonishly overpowered to the point of killing enough enemy soldiers in one special attack to fill out an open mic night at a mid-range pub, all the battles you aren't directly involved with seem to entail both sides making disapproving eye contact as they get out their exercise books and compete to see who can deduce first which part of the sword is the pointy bit. And as the lone bastion of competence, you have to field requests to run back and forth across the battlefield to bail out allies and strongholds because a small cat just sat itself down outside the gate and started licking its bum hole in what was interpreted as an aggressive way. And this, as I said, has had a whole bunch of Zelda wallpaper spread over it, and the blatant marketing exercise signal pulsates softly as it disgorges old characters and locations from Ocarina of Time, Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword. No Wind Waker, though, my favourite Zelda. No sign of the one that actually has a version on the Wii U. No biggie, I'm not bothered, just thought the makers might have seen the value in a game with some actual fucking charm to it. The amount of creativity the developers were permitted to use in coming up with new characters seems to have been entirely used up on the tits of the new villain. Fucking hell. I doubt Nintendo will reuse her, because if they started motorboating those, they'd risk a concussion. Did I mention Team Ninja worked on this game? Shouldn't be surprised, really. Greasy baps are their bread and butter, if you'll see what I did there. Duty bound, the game plot can't do much more than go through the usual motions. Ganondorf wants to steal the Triforces of Courage and Wisdom, held respectively by Link and Princess Zelda, Princess Zelda being some kind of embodiment of wisdom, which explains why she thinks she can pull that chic bullshit a second time and no one will figure it out. Still, I enjoyed the story mode, mainly because it kept making me laugh. Like at the start, Zelda's mooning about the castle, going, oh, if only we could find the new incarnation of the hero, and then walks out into the courtyard and Link is literally the first person she sees. Well, that was easier than usual. Certainly more expedient than spending the first hour of Twilight Princess molesting goats on a farm, or when Link bursts into the stronghold of the villainess and finds it plastered in pictures of his face like a member of Boyzone walking into a teenage girl's bedroom. Then a boss shows up that I should by rights have been able to wipe the floor with, but the cutscene had to pretend I was in real trouble until a bunch of secondary characters showed up, and Link could learn that friendship was the true strength, also known as standard hackneyed epiphany number six. But my laughter was a little more bitter that time, because all these precious and important friends of mine without whom I am nothing, I'd had to bail out several times because they were being bullied by a flock of spring lambs, or couldn't take over a keep because they hadn't figured out that the keep boss was the guy with the words keep boss hovering sneakily in plain sight over his head. So since we're back on the subject of gameplay, I found it rather dull. The story missions usually have you follow a strict predetermined sequence of events, and there's never any sense that the training wheels are coming off and that the battles are being allowed to unfold more organically than a checklist. There is a certain catharsis in smashing up a whole pride parade with one combo attack, but not so much after you've done that one combo attack 93 times, and your fingers continue pressing the button sequence for several hours after the game has ended. The usual bombs, bow, boomerang spectrum of special items only seems to exist for A, authenticity, and B, to use exclusively against specific monsters and otherwise aren't really worth considering, since switching between them is incredibly awkward and requires letting go of one half of the controls to fondle the d-pad or the touchscreen. And incidentally, there's got to be a better use for a touchscreen controller in a battlefield simulator, like as a targeting system for some ancient Hyrule magical bullshit equivalent of a drone strike. Visiting worlds from the three vaguely realistically proportioned Zeldas is an idea with potential, even while it underlines just how interchangeable the games can be at times, but the crossover abruptly ends about halfway through when the portals are closed and the creature from the Tits Lagoon is defeated, and having accidentally climaxed before the end, the game then awkwardly shuffles its feet for five missions. You become Ganondorf and conquer the land, you become Link again and conquer it straight back. Hyrule is so easily conquered it hardly seems worth the bother of repainting the road signs, but if the goal of a holding pattern game is to blandly and inoffensively remind you that the franchise exists until the next proper one comes out, then Hyrule Warriors certainly achieves that at least. Zelda fans would probably get a kick out of it, but that statement is meaningless. Of course they would. A Zelda fan would get a kick out of a tingle-themed home pregnancy test 
protest because that is what defines a fan of something. They are, to put it as generously as possible, untroubled by the complexities of life. If a developer announces their intention to adapt to video games what is simultaneously a massive movie franchise and the croutons in the primordial soup of nerd culture, that developer should be treated the way one treats a man standing on the ledge of a tall building. Because that is a perfect storm of drama they're letting themselves in for, you'll have the movie people on one side concerned that you didn't render Gollum's left buttock in accordance with the style guide, and on the other the long-standing fanboys meaningfully sharpening an impractically large replica sword. It's like trying to put on an all-black nativity play for a fundamentalist Christian and a militant atheist, both holding megaphones. Oh I forgot, we're also introducing original characters as we dramatise an as-yet-unseen aspect of the canon. Jesus Christ, Monolith, don't you understand you have friends who care about you and want you to live and release Condemned 2 on Steam for fuck's sake? Anyway, after all that, Middle-earth <laughs> Shadow of Mordor is quite good. Fucking anticlimactic, really. Our setting is the mythical fantasy realm of New Zealand, more specifically the cursed land of Mordor, named when someone noticed that their house didn't have enough means of ingress, in a time after The Hobbit but before Lord of the Rings, I think, when the Dark Lord Sauron isn't letting a little handicap like being a big flamey eye on a stick with no arms or legs stop him from establishing a power base in Mordor and building an army of orcs. The hero is Talion, a human ranger so generic a gritty protagonist that I fear my vocal cords will fall asleep before I finish describing him. His family were murdered and he's out for revenge, but his determination to beat his orc spit-roasting record takes him down a dark path and he systematically alienates every single friendly character he meets until they piss off and leave him to have all the angst for himself and gargle blagler. He's also dead and being kept alive by a wraith who's wearing him like a flesh tuxedo and who acts as the grim emotionless foil to Talion's grim lugubrious angst. It's like Calvin and Hobbes if Calvin was a piece of wood with a frowny face drawn on it and Hobbes was another piece of wood with a frowny face drawn on it. At least the orcs have personality but they all come across as really insecure. Grr, I just love killing stuff, they cry to fill every awkward silence. All the alive things are better watch out because I'm the best at killing stuff you don't even know. And he just want one of them to go, could we talk about something else for one bleeding second? I was browsing an other kin forum last night and I've realised I'm actually a financial advisor from Dunstable trapped in the body of an orc, so from now on you should all call me Alan. I find Shadow of Mordor to be kinda bad at exposition. I'm all for showing without telling but you need to show me more than the equivalent of a previously on Game of Thrones sequence before dropping me in the middle of Mordor equipped with half a sword and most of a bear. I suppose there's this assumption with tie-ins and adaptations that the audience is already on board, but it was only by going over the in-game glossary after I'd finished the story that I gained a clear idea of what was going on and who those Cenobite-looking motherfuckers who made up the pivotal boss fights were. Wait, Yahtzee, I thought you said this game was quite good. Thanks for paying attention, voice in my head. No worries, Yahtzee, don't forget to kill the whores. Alright, stop fussing. Yes, the gameplay is what makes it, although I hasten to add that it doesn't do a whole lot new. It's a bit of Assassin's Creed and a bit of Arkham Asylum, asking to be assigned to the always ambiguous action-adventure archive. Uh, apologies, I'm aiming to annul this alliteration annoyance. So it's your standard suite of stealth stabs. Alright, I pack it in! Combined with very Arkham Asylum-y counter-based combat against multiple attackers, the sandbox is a bit pokey but is only as big as it needs to be and avoids the problem of tedious commuting. I feel motivated to do side missions for the extra XP because the upgrades actually make a difference, but you never feel overpowered throughout the campaign as the orc population density is higher than that of cum stains on your grandma's parlour wall, and they can always overwhelm you with numbers, necessitating clever tactics, so yeah, it's almost nothing new but regardless does everything right, and that's worth the golf clap. There is one new thing though, the most powerful orcs in Mordor get to have unique names and special strengths and weaknesses that you learn from interrogating underlings, and knowing them is almost essential for taking them on. They also have a hierarchy with war chiefs at the top and lesser captains competing to nosh their scaly bollocks for an advantage, and it's in a constant state of organic flux with randomly generated captains randomly feuding and getting promoted up the ranks. Each time you die your killer becomes a new captain and everyone else reshuffles like a labour cabinet with poor re-election prospects, and if you've made any kind of plans then they're going to be taking a monkey wrench in uncomfortable places. Not only does this keep you invested in not being killed, 
Blimey, that was a weird sentence. But it creates an environment for organic storytelling. Random Orc 75 kills you and becomes Jorge the Crack Sniffer, and now it's personal. You could track him down and stab him up, but then you find intel saying he's afraid of insects. So instead you wait till he's attending a family picnic, shoot down a wasp's nest, and laugh as he cacks his pants in front of his dad. This manages to out Assassin's Creed Assassin's Creed. Although that's not hard, because in comparison most Assassin's Creeds are about as balanced as the arm strength of a professional masturbator. Things get even more interesting later on when you acquire the power to brainwash Orcs, after which you can fucking insert sleeper agents into the entourages of your assassination targets. But it's more than that, once you have a sleeper agent in the hierarchy, you can help him gain power by intervening in his duels and hunting ventures, like a fussy mum coming to see the school play. And you'd be surprised how invested one can get in the career of a random Orc once you know his stupid name and that he likes axes and dislikes being set on fire, which is two more personality traits than most of the characters we're supposed to be rooting for. Shadow of <laughs> is a solid... Uh action-adventure unhampered by its generic go-nowhere yawn-fest of an overarching story, because who needs overarching story when we can make our own? About an orc struggling to overcome his crippling addiction to being stabbed in the throat by me. Welcome back to the second week of our excursion to Opposite Land, where the carpets go on the ceilings, people eat feces and poo out breakfast cereal, and somehow the best games going are AAA movie franchise tie-ins, with simultaneous PC releases so that I don't have to indulge next-gen consoles and can leave them to wallow in their jacuzzis full of stale cum. You know, whatever you think is currently the thing ruining video games, be it publishers, misogyny, social justice, mum-ra, or lead in the water pipes, it seems to be doing a fucking poor job of it because games have been pretty good lately. Maybe that's the equivalent of saying, ooh it's a bit cold today, so much for global warming, but I digress. Alien Isolation. I didn't put a dry heave in between that one because it's still grammatically correct without a colon. We do indeed spend a lot of time being isolated by an alien. And the other meaning is also true, the alien itself is pretty isolated. Maybe you'd have more friends, Mr. Alien, if you didn't keep drooling everywhere and sexually assaulting people. I learned that in high school. So after Alien's <laughs> colonial marines was as entertaining as pushing a television aerial into your nasal cavity and tuning it to the Antiques Roadshow, Alien Isolation has taken things back to an even earlier drawing board and as far as it's concerned there's only one alien film and only one alien. Anything that gets within a six foot radius of it might as well be inside a giant food processor, and Predator is mainly a word used by committees reassessing British children's television of the mid to late 20th century. Set 15 years after the film, the now adult daughter of Ellen Ripley, Amanda, is brought the news that a flight recorder has been recovered containing data on what happened to her mother's ship. This data is promptly sent to her in an email attachment and she gets a bit melancholy for 10 minutes before getting back to Championship Manager. Not really! This is a faithful reproduction of 70s era sci-fi where high-tech meant grimy beige panels with low-res CRT monitors jammed wherever they could fit. So the only way to see the data is to go in person to the station where it's being kept and look at it once the data alchemists have chiselled it onto a stone tablet. I've said in recent years that AAA can't do survival horror anymore because survival horror lives or dies on subtlety and AAA games are always obliged to put the money on screen and are as subtle as a small child at a birthday party after 15 cups of blackcurrant Fanta. But never let it be said that I can't admit that I'm wrong and I'll murder anyone who says otherwise. Alien Isolation is the game Dead Space wanted to be. It's so subtle that for the first hour or two you could be forgiven for thinking you'd mistakenly bored angry space people Isolation instead. There's a lingering waft of Bioshock in the air as Amanda arrives at a decrepit space station where the residents have descended into a violent self-interested survivalism straight from the wettest streams of libertarians. But this failed utopia is founded not on objectivism or white supremacy, but on being pissed terrified of getting the top of your head gnawed off every time you walk under a drop ceiling. If you think this game is starting to sound slow moving, then you're right on so many levels. I spent more time on my hands and knees than the prostitute envoy to the Mole Kingdom. The game isn't above a bit of ridiculous action spectacle in the later bits, but I'd say it earns it by slowly boiling up to that point. It's big budget wearing the skin of low budget, soberly resisting the urge to speed up or extend beyond tight corridors and 
compromise the claustrophobic atmosphere, not so insecure that it needs to swan about in its prettiest dress to prove that Big Daddy Sega loves it the most. When the alien finally does show up, uncoiling and plopping down from the ceiling in front of you like a big drippy shit into the cereal bowl that is your life, it's almost without ceremony. No cutscene, no scripted action set piece, it just shows up and it's on you to start slowly backing away hoping to go unnoticed like you just blindly wandered into the bathroom during Grandad's birthday blumpkin. The game shines then, when you're hiding under a table with thumb in mouth and cereal bowl on head, keeping one eye on the motion tracker as something thumps sluggishly around the room like it forgot what it came in here for, organic tension building and unscripted jump scares are made all the more effective by their unpredictability. But it doesn't take a school playground monitor to point out that you can't just play tag for 12 hours straight, and I feel the game struggles a bit to fill the space in between the alien encounters. While the alien's having one of his lengthy coffee breaks in the green room, your main obstacle is rogue androids, also known as We Won't Bring Up the Protocol Droids from System Shock 2 If You Don't, that aren't particularly scary or interesting to avoid. They walk briskly up, throttle you for a second, then you beat them off and jog to somewhere else while they walk briskly in hot pursuit. They're more of an annoyance than a scare, and they just refuse to finally bugger off from the plot. Also, while the slow boil is initially necessary to build suspense, there continue to be overlong sections in the mid to late game where absolutely bugger all happens, like the one bit where you put on a spacesuit, plod along an external rig, mash a few keypads, and then plod all the way back. You built suspense, Alien Isolation. It's a very nice suspense. You can stop building it now. No, I don't think it would look nicer with the conservatory. Put that trowel down before I smack you with it. I said earlier that the game has the attitude of a lower budget indie game, so of course it has a fucking crafting system to add an exploration element as you ransack the cupboards for old cotton reels and string. But very little is as useful as crafting one noisemaker, hurling it into the far corner of the room, and then scarpering in the opposite direction. But despite all that and being a touch over long, Alien Isolation is worth it for the rock solid tension. Although one last week Link is Amanda herself. She's got the same problem Lara Croft had in the Tomb Raider reboot, getting strength of character confused with getting enough shit kicked out of you to fill every cereal bowl in the housewares department. She spends most of her time merely reacting to a sequence of unrelated betrayals and random accidents in a run of inexplicable bad luck worthy of a gypsy curse, making her a silent protagonist might have worked better, if only because that would explain why she never says, sure I could go alone into hostile territory yet again to fetch your keycard, but how about instead you eat the contents of this cereal bowl? I was hiding behind a wall in an abandoned insane asylum with my face pressed up against an advanced build-up of mildew the other day when a mysterious figure in a big coat and hat sidled up and said, Hey, you like your Outlast and your amnesia and your creepy horror based around hiding from things and having the defensive capability of a kinder surprise, right? Why not check out this game we made called The Evil Within? Look, you're in a creepy hospital and have to sneak around a chainsaw murderer. Looks like my cup of tea, I said, but then I reached the end of the starting section, which coincidentally marked the end of the E3 gameplay video I'd seen, and the game went, Bored now, let's have a car chase. What? And here's a pistol, and a shotgun, and a crossbow that shoots lightning somehow. And now you're in the woods massacring zombie farmers and avoiding traps that only the twitchiest caffeine-riddled paranoid will be able to anticipate. Wait a second, I recognise that voice. Resident Evil 4. Why this deception? Look, I'm just having some trouble with the kids right now. Resident Evil 6 has started identifying as a sea urchin. Sigh. Yes, remember last week when I said after Alien Isolation, hey, maybe AAA has finally remembered how to do subtlety in horror? Turns out it was just a beautiful dream that vanishes on waking. Cause to expect subtlety from Shinji, RE4, God, Hand, Vanquish, Shadows of the Damned, Mikami, is to expect birthday cake to drop out of a donkey's ass. But the teased opening of the game being so blatantly unrepresentative of the rest of it is the final straw that adds gameplay videos to the list of shit from E3 you can't trust, alongside pre-rendered trailers and every word that comes out of everyone's fat stinking mouths. Of course that's just my expectation. Had I expected another Resident Evil 4 I wouldn't have said no because Resident Evil 4 was the big dog's biscuit, and it worked because it combined over-the-top splatter violence with a sense of ironic B-movie camp that walked the line between intentional and unintentional comedy. It's about rescuing the president's daughter for fuck's sake, whereas the intel inside doesn't really have that, instead it has nothing. It plays like somebody said, hey make a horror game, and somebody else said, okay what about? I just told you about horror. 
No, I mean, what happens in it? What's the context? What are the major themes you want to work with? Horror, horror, and horror. Jesus Christ, just do it. Why are you so difficult to work with? And so the result is this undisciplined mishmash of horror set pieces and imagery, barely justified by a toilet tissue flimsy plot, populated entirely by stock characters. The protagonist, for example, is Grim Hero Category 27A Dirty Harry Subtype 9, order now and get free trench coat and drinking problem, together with a straight-laced by-the-book partner and a woman who happens to be there, whose chief role is to be the woman who happens to be there, he investigates a disturbance at an evil hospital, whereupon the three of them are swiftly captured and separated and then horror happens, he said as he blew out his cheeks and waved his hand dismissively. So how about the horrors happening because reality is being overwritten by a deranged disfigured scientist's twisted subconscious, and also he's half ostrich and rides a unicorn from space and you're not listening anymore, are you? Yep, sounds good, just do it. Call me if you need money, I'm off to the cocaine tasting. But having established that the deranged disfigured scientist, antagonist category 5F subtype 3, is changing the world in accordance to his whims, the game has no continuity whatsoever. Like you'll get through the angry farmers, then the world will wobble like a freshly spanked buttock and bing, you're in a church, or bing, you're in a sewer, or bing, you're on the New Jersey turnpike with a seagull up your ass. So all you can do is plod from scene to scene with no sense of how far you've gotten or what remains to be done to resolve the conflict. It's the kind of setup where you could rearrange all the chapters in random order and no one would notice. And I'm pretty sure that's exactly what they did. The amount that characters know about the situation goes up and down from dialogue to dialogue. I'm pretty sure at one point the protagonist offhandedly mentions the name of the villain without having been told it at any point. And the difficulty curve resembles Klaus von Stauffenberg's handwriting. Some boss fights in the mid-game kicked me up and down the poorly lit hospital corridor, whereas the final boss made a huge song and dance and then died because I wiped my nose on his tie. Combat is almost exactly the same as RE4, with the same inability to shoot from the hip and the same camera mounted on the stop sign sticking up the main character's tight beautiful ass, albeit with black bars along the top and bottom of the screen to both create a cinematic effect and reduce visibility in the hope that the dodgy texturing can slip by unnoticed. Unlike RE4 though, there's the stealth elements that seem to be so emblematic of generic combat these days, the usual sneaky backstab and throwable distractions, but since 99% of the combat in this game begins with the enemy ambushing you, the only reason there seems to be for having stealth elements is to get into the big boys club and to taunt you with what could have been. Once the game introduces character upgrades and not a single one is stealth related, we finally realise that the stealth has the same role Peter Dinklage had in Destiny, mainly there just so that we can say it's there. Upgrades can only either make guns incrementally better or sew a new ammo pocket and your grim detective trousers. So every time I flailed drunkenly at a room full of crates and found nothing but upgrade material, I would despair. Because I didn't need one second shaved off the pistol's reload time or the ability to hold another seagull up my ass. What I needed was some fucking bullets! Whoever worked out the ammo distribution had apparently bought into the delusion that we were doing the sneaky survival horror thing as opposed to the electric crossbow bolts thing, and you can only hold enough bullets to get you about four and a half seconds into a workplace massacre. So what we have here is a game that demands discipline from the player while showing no discipline in itself, no discipline in the design, here's a boss monster you can't kill until you solve the puzzle in this area, here he is again three chapters later but now he can be killed because who gives a shit, no discipline in the story either, oh no I'm inexplicably turning into a zombie, oh wait no I'm not, sweet, let's never bring this up again. In fact let's not give any aspect of the story any fucking closure even at the end because we once saw the word intrigue written on a shithouse wall and that's about as far as we understand the concept. All in all, the game's like driving to Alice Springs, a whole lot of effort to end up fucking nowhere. Seems like these days there are a lot of people banging on about how we need more gender diversity in games and more roles for women besides being the focus of stealth snogging tutorials, and then something like Bayonetta 2 comes out and they turn around and say we need more gender diversity in games that isn't that. Well jeez guys, I don't know what you want anymore. I mean Bayonetta's clearly powerful and in control of her life, admittedly she looks like a flagpole with various items of sporting equipment nailed to it, but the debate over whether she represents female empowerment or sexual objectification is for me a fairly swiftly resolved one. Process of elimination really, she can't be a sex object because she has the proportions of an 
internet meme horror character. I'm trying to imagine having sex with her, and it feels like rubbing my dick on the robot from the day the Earth stood still. My mind can't quite get to the point of having lustful thoughts because I'm too worried about where I'm going to find a stepladder at this time of night. Still, Bayonetta does give much needed representation to one severely neglected demographic, and that's people who are capable of enjoying themselves. Every aspect of the game has this sense of sheer joyful energy running through it, from the music to the walk animations, and given a choice between Bayonetta and the reboot Lara Croft, say, I'd rather have sex with the latter, if only because it would actually be possible without erecting scaffolding, but Bayonetta is the one I'd rather be stuck opposite on a long train journey because she doesn't stink of grim determination and caked on goat shit. Wait, I thought we were going to talk about Bayonetta 2, Yahtzee. So far this could apply to one or two. And there you've glanced off if not directly hit the nail on the head, viewer. I don't know if this is true everywhere, but the only version of Bayonetta 2 I could get hold of came bundled with Bayonetta 1, thankfully for no extra cost, but I can't help feeling that this was somewhat ill-advised. I get that it needs introducing to a new audience now that it's Wii U exclusive, and incidentally I'm still crossing fingers for Bayonetta being added to Smash Brothers, just so the mothers of the world have to feel some fucking awkward questions, but if someone plays through Bayonetta 1 and then immediately moves on to Bayonetta 2, their first thought will probably be, hang on, didn't we just do this? Yes, I'm sorry to say, Bayonetta 2 is the bad kind of sequel, the kind that finds it impossible to move on from the original or carve out its own identity, descending instead into parades of nudge-wink references and environments that are either copy-paste or so similar it makes no odds. How can you say that? This classical European-style town with a suspiciously large number of open plazas has a completely different name to the previous one. So what is there that is new? Well, Bayonetta's got short hair now. Of course, her outfit is supposed to be woven from her hair, and now we know it wasn't woven from the hair on her head. Ew! And the setup for the plot is a bit more coherent this time around. Bayonetta's sister Jeanne has been dragged to hell and we're off to rescue her straight Alighieri style. It's a story involving actual emotions and comprehensible motives such as what human beings might have. So of course it gets unceremoniously booted out of the game two-thirds of the way in to be superseded by pseudo-theological cosmic warfare bollocks. So I guess it's one of those, liked the original? Well here's more of it so you can put off having to leave the house for another 12 or 13 hours, dealies. I could probably just link to my review of Bayonetta 1 at this point and knock off for a crafty one. It's about as platinum games as platinum games get, absurdly large-scale action set pieces, references to other platinum games, characters with weird hard-to-place accents, and an emphasis on challenging up-tempo Twitch arcade combat designed for people who really miss high school and like being evaluated and graded every alternate step. Although while I scraped through the first game with the lowest grades, I was a solid B student this time, silver medals across the board, so either it's eased off a bit or all those hours clocked in with Dark Souls have paid off. The only combat mechanic that's new for Bayonetta 2 is that as well as QTE torture attacks, you can use your magic meter to activate what I can't help but think of as Rage of the Gods mode, but the practical effect is the same as the QTE attacks. You activate it, then treat the controller like the face of a disobedient spouse for a few seconds, and hope everything dies before your wrist dislocates. But lest we forget, it's Wii U exclusive now, and you know what that means? Waiting half an hour for the fucking console to update before I could play the fucking thing. Also, there's the usual benefit, you can go off and play it from the screen controller if someone else wants to use the TV. Wii U, I am playing a game about a pole dancer fighting demons. Obviously, I live alone. Oh. Well, you could also control the game with the touchscreen by touching where you want to go and what you want to attack, like you're a small child pointing insistently through the window of a sweet shop. Or I suppose you could just use the buttons. Or I could just use the fucking buttons, couldn't I? Because then my hand wouldn't be getting in the way of my view of the touchscreen and being distracted by my own body parts is exactly why I took the mirror off my ceiling. And what with the Wii's preference for geometric shapes over the organic controller design favoured by other consoles, the concept of good sense and people with working hands, the frantic button mashing gave me finger cramp after a while. It's like trying to beat the speed record for seducing a VCR. When I first heard that Bayonetta 2 was going to be a Nintendo exclusive, my first thought was that that felt instinctively wrong. Part of it's that you could never imagine her being introduced to Smash Brothers, because it'd be like enacting Priscilla Queen of the Desert to warm up a PTA meeting. The Nintendo universe is so quintessentially sexless she could tear a hole in the fabric of reality with a single swing of her engorged clitoris. But on the other hand, the Wii U is still the only console to have kept have fun play games on the top of the priority list, and Bayonetta's fast-paced arcade action and sheer colourful joyousness does fit in with those kinds of retro sensibilities, which is why I feel so lurchingly out of place whenever characters swear. Bayonetta's supposed to be a classy and in-control sort of lady, so when she goes fuck off in the middle of a combo like a cockney market stall vendor noticing a policeman, it feels a bit incongruous. What, so you just disco dance to giant purple frog 
into existence and made it lick a centaur to death, but now it's time for some gritty realism. I like my swearing, but in the wrong place it brings down the whole gosh darn tone. You cunt. You know, I don't think it's a valid complaint to decry something as trying too hard. That was today's Zero Punctuation Masterclass on indirectly giving your opinion away. But honestly, trying too hard is a criticism levelled by aloof, joyless wank tanks who spend their days smirking dismissively at the insides of their own rectal passages. God forbid that someone try too hard. God forbid that they insert a little passion into the things they do, forcibly if necessary, spraying their passion all around the inside of... Sorry, that got weird on me. Well, if you're so concerned about looking cool and dignified you can't put in the effort to meet something halfway, then maybe you're the one with the problem, mate. Sunset Overdrive, then. The new sandbox by Insomniac Games. A developer that's been up and down in my eyes. On the one hand, Resistance 3. On the other hand, Fuse. Don't shake that hand, it's covered in Wii. I'm not gonna say Sunset Overdrive is trying too hard. I will, however, say that it's not trying hard enough to avoid looking like it's trying too hard. Of course, it was already making an uphill start, because if you're going to make an anarchic punk fantasy about living free in defiance of the system, man, maybe check briefly over your shoulder to make sure you're not an Xbone exclusive, which is not to say an Xbone exclusive necessarily has to be chugging on corporate cock so hard that it's alveoli tickling the bell end, but the main character of Sunset Overdrive seems like what a room full of men in their 30s and 40s think the kids are like these days. A snarky young punk who grinds through the town on an invisible skateboard obviously does graffiti and might as well have a slingshot sticking out of their back pocket. I say punk, I guess they could be a hipster depending on how you dress them, because you can fully customise appearance. Sadly there's no option to fully customise personality into one that doesn't sorely deserve to have their vocal cords gouged out with a length of their own frozen smug. The plot is, an evil corporation mistakenly releases a tainted energy drink that turns people into evil mutants and has now locked the city down to cover up their cock up in the standard evil and corporate manner. Well that's the alleged plot anyway, the real plot is simply, it is a video game. Oh yes, we're so fucking eye-rollingly self-conscious that if we rolled them any harder they'd plop down through our internal organs like balls in a pachinko machine. Why can we grind infinitely along rails and wires with no apparent means of propulsion? Because it is a video game. Why can we bounce three stories up in the air off of potted bushes? Because video game. Why are you winking to camera with every single line of dialogue because I'm having a stroke. And you know what, it is quite a fun video game, it goes for superhero sandboxing on an infamous kind of level and pulls off creating that whole the floor is lava thing where it's just fun to traverse the city trying to keep your style combo up as you switch from rail grind to wall run to bounce pad without touching the ground. You're encouraged to bounce around and grind to make yourself harder to hit in combat and there's fun to be had in squatting on a grind rail and gunning enemies down as you slide slowly along like a firing range target from the mirror universe. Though having said that, the weapons are a mixed bag. For this kind of thing they need to be punchy and cathartic, like the quality painkiller has where you inadvertently hip thrust with every pull of the trigger. My favourite weapon was the Magnum, just because it had some punch to it. Most of the silly hilarious weapons get lost in the chaos. I'm not clear on why it's necessary for the grenades to have teddy bears strapped to them, although I know what the game would say. To make them more awesome! Because Sunset Overdrive uses the word awesome like a legal document uses the word hereby. I feel that if the game spent as much time making itself awesome as it did declaring itself to be awesome then perhaps it wouldn't be a liar on top of everything else. There's an air of desperation to it. Saints Row 4, a game that is awesome, opens with the president fighting off an alien invasion in the White House. At no point do they turn to camera and go, wow, I'm the president fighting aliens, how cool and random, right viewers? I almost feel sorry for the protagonist of Sunset Overdrive, they're stuck playing this protracted game of awesomer than thou against no one in particular. I'm willing to bet they'll turn out to be in their mid to late thirties. Whoa, look at me, all into youth culture and shit. Civil disobedience FTW, I'm all about that rocking and rolling music. As is the sandbox way, Sunset Overdrive introduces a number of NPCs factions who give us our missions and all of them seem to 
to be nerds, engineering students and LARPers and the like, it's another thing that comes across as desperate. Look at the nerds! We're not nerds, we're cool! Video games are cool and not nerdy. I didn't say they were nerds. Good, because they're not! Let's all laugh at the nerds in their funny nerd ways. Fa ha 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 ha! Except let's not laugh, Sunset Overdrive, and here we veer close to the crux of the issue. Sunset Overdrive is shooting to be a comedy game, but it didn't make me laugh. Once. Which for a comedy game is a bit of a stumble into the lion enclosure. Well I tell a lie, I laughed once at the end credits when I noticed several names credited as humour consultants. Fucking hell, those guys must have taken some long lunches. The humour relies almost exclusively on sarcasm, pop culture references and fourth wall breaking, which between them make up the comedy equivalent of the third world, where entire families must subsist upon a single custard pie. And even that is ineptly handled, every gag is drawn out to the point of agonised death which is any length at all, and the hilarious dialogue wouldn't understand timing if you shoved an alarm clock up its flagpole. After every open quotes funny moment, characters just awkwardly react like they're waiting for the laugh track to fade. I think that humour consultant thing gives the whole game away. Comedy designed by committee, shrink-wrapped Microsoft brand fun registered trademark, all the individual elements that will in theory create fun but something was lost when they were strung together. It just doesn't have as much energy as this sort of thing needs. I mean take Saints Row 4 again, madcap fun but self-aware without being smugly self-referential. It's got plot that's more than just wacky set pieces, it's got characters that are more than just archetypes for the protagonist to roll his eyes at, like he's playing lawn bowls. And most importantly, it's got a decent fucking soundtrack that's more than just the entirety of the Guitar Hero Let's Appear Relevant to People Born After 1995 section, that thinks all you need to do to rock out is switch idly back and forth between three or four chords while strumming like a chimp with itchy bollocks. And so we return once again to another instalment of the series that beats its chest like a pirate with anger management issues, Call of Duty Advanced Warfare, or Kodor. I'm sure there's a joke in there relating to that one character from Game of Thrones, but nah, how can a huge retrograde lumbering idiot capable only of constantly spouting the same phrase possibly relate to Game of Thrones? Ha 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 ha. If it seems like I can't take Call of Duty seriously, it's because I bloody well can't. How did we get from World War II shooters to the sci-fi future again? Because this is exactly what happened to the Jason films. Next it'll be Call of Duty vs Pinhead or something. Kodor starts off on the right foot when we're introduced to our hero, taking off his helmet to reveal that he's a white dude with awful facial hair. We then turn to his best friend, who takes off his helmet to reveal that he's the exact same, identical white dude with awful facial hair. Then they start talking about their dads, because it's always dads, isn't it? There are no mothers in Call of Duty's world. Soldiers are birthed fully formed from the tailpipes of their father's restored Cadillacs. Shortly, our friend who is identical to ourselves dies in a very heroic and insecure way, and at the funeral we are introduced to his father, Kevin Spacey, who is the only white guy in the plot who doesn't have atrocious facial hair, which I suppose means he's the baddie. I'd spoiler that, since he doesn't properly villain himself until a ways into the game, but come on, it's Kevin Spacey, of of course he's the villain. He's got two faces, smart ass, and recently punched for being a smart ass. His character looks over the soldiers at the funeral and picks you off the shelf as his new surrogate's son, hiring you for his company, which is of course a PMC. And you know, PMCs being the main villain in a modern war game feels like slipping back into an old, comfortable sweater. The whole Call of Duty title speaks to a sort of inherent righteousness of fighting for one's country, and that sentiment loses something when the enemy is a real-life foreign power, presumably motivated by the exact same Call of Duty as you, white boy. But PMCs? Fuck those war profiteering assholes, Call of Looty more like. I know you're probably probably here to watch me give the bullying jock of the AAA games industry playground another well-deserved spanking, but I find I'm considerably better disposed towards Kodor than I was towards Ghosts, say. The plot moves at the usual breakneck pace, like it's speed-reading the back of a Tom Clancy book, we go from funeral to joining the PMC to destroying all the terrorism in the world to the PMC becoming evil with scarcely a pause for a piss break, but it's almost lovable for that and Kevin Spacey essentially becomes a G.I. Joe villain. The usual anomalously well-organised terrorist strike cripples most of the world so Kevin Spacey rolls in, takes the credit for ending terrorism and becomes the most powerful corporation on Earth. And then, having a 
essentially conquered the world with money and minimal force, Kevin Spacey decides his next course of action will be to invade the United States. Yeah, this is where I sort of lose his train of logic. I mean, he practically runs the world already at that point, but I guess conquest just doesn't feel like conquest till you've stuck a flag in someone else's shit. And he openly announces his intention to take over the world in a speech to the United Nations, after which the world turns against him, and I want to know what the fuck he was expecting would happen after he stopped talking. Pajama party? I'm focusing on the story a lot because I might as well. It's not like anyone expects the gameplay to do much more than connect the dots, and by dots I mean bullets being connected to faces with considerable force. You've probably seen a screenshot of the press F to pay respects moment from the funeral scene. I shouldn't have to explain why that's hilarious. It might as well have said press F to be sad. And this sort of thing needs a name, so I'm going to call it a slow time event. They don't even have the quick time events anorexically slim justification of being a reflex challenge. They're just would you like us to continue this glorified cutscene prompt to make sure you're still awake. As is usually the case with COD, the whole campaign is like being herded along the little path to the sheep dip. There's almost always an NPC support character whose actions we are instructed to mimic exactly. Always fun when you're crawling and getting a face full of flexing mud-spattered bum cheek. And what would modern warfare be without tech wank, using new vehicles and gadgets precisely once before they're forgotten about or more likely crashed just as you're achieving something important, like Windows Movie Maker. But while Kodor isn't above making us fly a jet along a linear canyon for one brief mission because apparently we've officially regressed as far back as Space Harrier, there are some game mechanics we can go hog wild with, like the jet thrusters we've got strapped to our body we can use to double jump and slow fall and with which I see no safety issues whatsoever, as long as we're not carrying anything flammable or explosive, oh wait, or the grappling hook launcher that shifts us slightly closer to the Batman singularity, the hypothetical point at which all characters in every video game are Batman. These can be used to speed around somewhat open-ended areas for the combat advantage and actually add something to the game, kind of arbitrary which missions we're allowed to use them in, but it's something. Probably make the multiplayer interesting, not that I'd know. And there's a section towards the end I quite enjoyed where your arm's broken and you have to get by with one-handed guns without reloading because it's a twist on established mechanics that raises the stakes and makes you vulnerable, although the game continues to handhold like a creepy prom date and your support character insists on pointing out every single spare gun that are always lying around like cigarette butts. So just to reiterate, I did like Kodor more than Ghosts. In other news, I also enjoy Chinese water torture more than the hobbling wheel. At the very end, we and a support character resolve things by showing up at the enemy stronghold in matching power armor and wrecking up the place. And my first thought was, didn't Modern Warfare 3 end this exact same way? Yes, I remember because it also made me wonder why we didn't just do this in the first place. All these COD story campaigns feel like they're running through the same checklist. Here's the bit where you snipe. Here's the bit where you use a drone. Here's the grizzled, morally flexible, frequently British commander. It's like what I said about Assassin's Creed turning into a line graph. Call of Duty can now be considered a contemporary of FIFA and Madden. Same shit once a year, different hat. With a press F to pay respects qualifier, implying the narrow possibility that the series has started to consciously take the piss out of itself. But if you have Call of Duty, then don't take a great big gulp on that piss and then try to give me a snog. Say what you like about Ubisoft, they're fucking masters of the soft cell. Assassin's Creed 4 won me over, how on earth are you going to build on that in Ubity, Ubisoft? I mean Unity, Ubisoft. Well, we thought we'd take the pirate ship out and make the game world considerably smaller. Uh, I said build on. Oh right, sorry, I thought you said burn to the ground and wank on the ruins. Well, we thought we'd add a co-op focus so that a game series and indeed an actual historical organisation best known for sending lone agents on suicidal surgical strikes can now have that lone agent being egged on by three of their rowdy mates. I might not bother with that if it's all the same to you, Natty. That's alright, we'll just fucking wallpaper the game with reminders of the online content in case you change your mind. This isn't so much a soft sell as a gaseous one at this point, but nevertheless I downloaded the Steam version and my PC promptly burst into tears. Why have you put this inside me? Is this about the selling your search history to the government thing? It stuttered, it bugged out, it kept shutting down, it was like how I react when an attractive stranger attempts to flirt. In the end I put a coat over my Hawaiian shirt and turned up my collar to hide my neckbeard and committed the most grievous PC gamer sin of all. I went out and bought the PS4 version, which at least didn't crash, even if the frame rates kept dropping and it still had more clipping issues than an arthritic hairdresser, and it added the lack of a PS Plus subscription to 
with a list of barriers between me and multiplayer. Between that and you, player, and some stupid fucking app thing, you can't go five minutes without the game trying to get you to sign up for something. It's like trying to find video porn in the early 2000s. And even bugs aside, none of this exists for the benefit of the player. They're squeezing money out where they can, because even 70 bucks for the game can't cover their fucking needless extravagance. And Microsoft haven't finished their new peripheral that holds you upside down and shakes coins out of your pockets for your convenience and added immersion. And it's a shame because this is the game I said Assassin's Creed should make around the time Assassin's Creed 3 was tumpty tumptying its way around the drearier of the two major global conflicts of the 18th century. The French Revolution's a no-brainer, surely. Sex and violence nonetheless juicy for its historical accuracy. Plenty of classical architecture to accidentally leap off to your death. A chance to subvert the usual Assassin's Templar's yay downtrodden boo Aristos dynamic. And none of those opportunities are missed, or should I say oppert Assassin's Creed unities. That said, the main character is basically Ezio 2.0 for the most part. Young nobleman discovers his dad's an assassin, joins up to seek revenge, and because it beats trying for a postgraduate degree, must learn maturity and self-discipline, four-letter name with an O on the end, Arno Dorian. The plot's more about his personal struggle, though. Arno isn't called upon to revive the assassin order like Ezio was, because the assassin order seems to be perfectly alright, content to wait out the revolution sitting around in their hideout, flicking their beans. And it's the Templars who are depowered and fighting among themselves, but Arno's got history with Templars, who seemed like decent sorts, because they didn't use poor widows as chamber pots, so his loyalties are divided. In fact, I'm not entirely sure why Arno joins the assassins at all, except because the franchise demands it. He doesn't know any of them, and they all treat him like a five-year-old with his hands stuck in a jam jar. This is all fairly solid stuff, but solid stuff on a wonky table will nonetheless collapse. I like that the assassination missions have gotten back to the roots somewhat. Here's an environment, here's a target, complete optional objectives to make things easier, but ultimately it's all up to you as long as knifey stabby throaty. Except for some stupid reason, an assassination only counts if you use the hidden blade. And the hidden blade is now entirely contextual, so if you've done the trademark Assassin's Creed sprint to the target, and the target has been so impolite as to notice you and pull their sword out, all you can do is sword fight them to the ground, at which point the game goes, right then, just press square to finish them off with a hidden blade and you're done. Oh, unless there are guards nearby, in which case pressing square will attack them instead, but why on earth would there be guards near the person they have been employed to protect? That's just crazy town. And the sword fighting is flabby and unresponsive, counterprompts are all very well when the frame rate isn't dropping like a Christmas number one through the January charts, and there's the usual Assassin's Creed issue that when the environment gets too complex, holding down the free run button and pushing forwards is hurling yourself into the capricious hands of fate, but it feels worse in Unity somehow, possibly because buildings actually have interiors now, and an enclosed space multiplies the chance of Arno being possessed by the urge to climb on top of a bookshelf mid-dramatic escape, and you can add taking cover to the list of ways to make Arno get inappropriate with furniture until you have to prize him off, and all up I'd say that 60% of the times I was caught by guards were due to Arno being unable to disentangle his limbs from the scenery just as the crucial phase of my plan went into action. But never mind all that gameplay shit, you want to know if Assassin's Creed is still doing the bridging future narrative thing. Tokenly, yes, future Desmond's currently arranged in some specimen jars somewhere, and future silent protagonist from Black Flag is off somewhere being quiet, so this time we, the player, are playing as a random pleb sitting at home playing video games. Now that's immersion, motherfuckers. Our signal is hijacked by the assassins who are all like, hey, assassins rule, Templars drool. And in order to convince you, we will now show you a story in which the assassins come across as a bunch of snooty weirdos in capes, and the ideologies of the two groups never really come up. Also, every now and again the future assassins make you run an obstacle course set in a different historical period, which seems to be utterly pointless except to show off some different scenery and physics spectacles, as part of the ongoing effort to be able to use the phrase next-gen without it feeling hollow and bitter in our mouths. But while I could continue quibbling my way down my list of quibbles, the fact is, Unity's issues were deal-breakers from the word go. It's not without positive qualities, but by that point it's not enough to glue the deal back together. It pranced into the room, tripped on the cat and smashed the aquarium with its head. It's not gonna mend the evening by shakily getting up and showing us its collection of football stickers. It'd at least be better than three if it weren't for its utter contempt for the audience. 
Also, I would be a lovely person if it weren't for my personality. Welcome back to the second act of Ubisoft's ongoing production of The Gaming of the Shrew, but the question still remains as to whether we're watching a comedy or a tragedy. We've had our first act cliffhanger from Assassin's Creed Unity, stabbing itself in the heart after a protracted monologue over whether twas nobler to log into Uplay first, so now we get to see if Far Cry 4 will kiss the poisoned spunk from Unity's lips or disguise itself as a big-titted bar wench and get molested by a sailor. Well, first of all, it too introduces co-op gameplay, but the crucial difference is that at the title menu you can choose the play offline option and never have to think about it again. Say that's all I wanted. Oh, and maybe you'd like to consider maybe locking into Uplay? Skip? Okay, I'll go away again then. If you ask me, drop-in co-op in the single player only makes sense when the game is incredibly difficult and you want to teach the world about the power of friendship, but who needs online co-op in Far Cry 4 when offline had all the co-op I needed? The four-player tag team of me, Colonel Tusky, Stripey Big Teeth, and Florence the fully upgraded sniper rifle. Now, while Assassin's Creed at least makes some token effort to innovate each game for better or worse, Far Cry has found a comfort zone to snuggle into and we won't be unsnuggling them with anything short of a JCB. Inexperienced American doofus gets dropped into an exotic world war zone and finds he has to liberate it from a charismatic villain with a weird personal interest in him, yes, it's Far Cry 3++. Although Far Cry 4 has learned that it's smarter to not kill off the charismatic villain halfway through and have us fight a substitute teacher for the rest of the game. In this case, our exotic setting is a kingdom in the Himalayas and the villain is the result of Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-il kidnapping Benedict Cumberbatch together and taking turns spunking into his hairdo, a kooky lovable rogue who's all smiles and level tones until sudden frenzied stabbing motions. Kuh, what antics will he get up to next? Well, since you ask, disappearing for most of the game and leaving us with a six-foot a styrene cuboid alleging to be a protagonist. See, I know Vars got all the attention out of Far Cry 3, but I could take or leave his chubby cheeks. It was the player character Jason Brody that interested me. Cause he had an arc. We witnessed his whole transformation from harmless trust fund twerp to mercenary legend, hopped up on as much drugs as he could stuff into his homemade gorilla scrotum and fanny pack. He was trapped where he was by the need to rescue his douche friends, but his devotion to them was gradually eclipsed by his devotion to murder and scrotum tailoring. Meanwhile, Far Cry 4's Ajay Gale's motive going in is the need to scatter his mum's ashes. There's a war on Gale, just dump the bitch in the nearest ashtray and catch the next yak home. Oh no, sorry, he's totally invested now in fighting to liberate a country he's never been to from a guy he doesn't know. As far as we can tell from his occasional line of dialogue, mumbled in the same embarrassed tone I used to address overly enthusiastic waitstaff, where Brody became a killing machine out of desperate survival needs and enough drugs to occupy Amy Winehouse for one lazy Sunday afternoon, Gale only does it essentially because somebody told him to and he didn't want to make a fuss. He's just a dope who does nothing but agree with the last thing he heard, and everyone around him seems to realise it. You can tell from the way characters give him mission briefings, Every single time they make some token instructing noises, give him a little encouraging smack on the bum, then close the door in his face and go back to the TV. Ajay's story eventually leads to his parents' dark secret that explains why the villain has an interest in him, but since Ajay reacts to the revelation like a Saint Bernard being told he can't have another biscuit, my first thought was, any chance we could play as your parents? Instead, they sound more interesting than you. But let's talk gameplay, and the quickest approach would probably be to list everything that wasn't copy-pasted from Far Cry 3. You still have to liberate the sandbox one stronghold at a time, and again, the instant you find a sniper rifle that can fit a silencer, the stronghold might as well line up, bend over, and timidly ask for it gentle. Until you start to memorise the locations of the free gyrocopters and acquire a grenade launcher that can be fired from a vehicle, at which point they don't even have to line up, you can bring tactical carpet bombings conveniently to their doorstep. And after a while I grew bored, like I was going down a to-do list. Next mission. Okay, we need you to tail a smuggler to his hideout. Get on this quad bike and make sure you maintain a safe distance. So, well, I suppose you could use a gyrocopter if you wanted. Tailed him! Next mission, please! Oh no, don't go to the next mission yet! One of your strongholds is under attack! Oh no, what will happen if I don't help out? Oh no, fuck off! Oh no, probably leave it then. And it wouldn't be Far Cry without some dangerous wildlife with very roomy scrotums, but while tigers attacked enemy strongholds in the last game as the accidental result of the enemy having the enormous poor judgement to be sharing the same planet as Mr Angry Whiskers, you can now encourage the process by flinging bait around. But this is a double-edged tiger, and animals seem like more of a hassle than before. The number of times I was scoping out a stronghold from a vantage point and be just about ready to start silently picking off targets when I'd hear a growl and look down to see my leg disappearing into a wolf. 
Then I panicked and pulled an LMG out and the soldiers heard the shots and it all went to wolf buggery. And furthermore, eagles. Maybe Garley looks as much to them like an unwitting sparrow as he does to me, because those fucking birds don't give one predatory shit. You never see them coming, and so they are essentially the game's way of saying, hey, we rolled a dice and now we're just going to take some of your health away. Which of your eyeballs would you say was least necessary? But it's not just BDSM Mother Nature's into. Riding elephants is one of those things I didn't realise I wanted until I had it. It's just fun to stampede into a ring of soldiers, or indeed wolves, and go, what's up, motherfuckers? The elephant in the room is that you're all fucking dead. Looking back over Far Cry 4, I remember it thusly. It starts with one half of a cutscene, it ends with the second half of the same cutscene, and in between is a whole bunch of flapping about where nothing much happens and no one grows or changes or learns anything. Secondary villains are talked up, introduced and dropped from the plot after about 14 seconds of screen time each. The main plot thread concerns the resistance being torn between two leaders, one old-fashioned and moralistic and the other extreme but pragmatic, and you have to decide which one to support. They both had good points, it was a somewhat interesting dilemma and I put quite a bit of thought into my decisions, but what I wanted was some sodding payoff. And at the end of it all, you install your preferred dictator and they go, cheers for that, smack on the bum, closed door in face. This must be what it's like to be the American Secretary of State. And then you trudge up to the main villain's house and they're all like, don't look at me, my ending's completely anticlimactic as well. So in summary, Far Cry 4 was like sitting on a flaccid cock. In the end, kinda pointless. Dragon Age must have gotten some funny looks when it sauntered into the solid gold clubhouse of the new console generation. Boy, can't wait to start wowing some eyeballs, damn it, feel good to be AAA. Then there was kind of an awkward silence before Destiny walked over and put a friendly arm around it. Dragon Age, are you sure you wouldn't be happier back at last gen house? It's just this is a very high pressure environment, I'm concerned you'd have trouble fitting in. No I wouldn't, look at my big environments and water effects, I'm more next gen than Commander Riker's beard. Oh for god's sake Dragon Age, you look like shit. You've always looked like shit, but we've been too polite to say anything. Your animation's janky as hell, three quarters of your runtime consists of watching people people explaining how they feel about things while emoting like animatronic presidents at Disneyland, and all their hairdos look like they're about to pop off like they're made of Lego. You let Assassin's Creed Unity in and his character's bits pop off like Gabe Newell's shirt buttons. Alright, fine, but I'd better see some moist looking skin textures or you're out the fucking door. It might seem like I'm giving Dragon Age Inquisition shit, and obviously I am, but here comes the second act twist, you cunt. I think it's my favourite of the series, and that's probably because unlike Dragon Age 2 it feels like stuff is actually happening in it, and it isn't just about the daily life of some fuck and his neighbourhood watch group. And unlike Dragon Age 1 it manages to do the epic scale while remaining focused on a central narrative, where the threat is something that one can sense constantly looming overhead and not some vague villainous force that we have to deal with at some point, but which seems happy to put its feet up and read Gardner's world while we dither about with distractions as long as we like. The plot is, the local equivalent of Satan is trying to blow up the world and you are the only one who can stop them. Done. Bam. Wallop. Nice strong core for everything to be built around, like an erection in a pavlova. Not Satan kicks things off by blowing up a summit full of religious and military leaders, leaving the world floundering and you the only survivor, but with a mysterious green particle effect stuck to your hand that seems to be the only thing that can counter not Satan's machinations, machin satans if you will. Off the back of this everyone around you goes, shit, we thought we were onto something with all our existing spiritual and military authorities, but your particle effects have shown us the way, and you accidentally become the leader of the Inquisition, an army of the righteous tasked to defend Tamriel or Hyrule or whatever this place is called from the forces of darkness. You become Fantasy Commander Shepard, a world famous and highly respected leader despite the fact that they can't delegate for shit, and have to personally do everything from infiltrating enemy strongholds to picking flowers for the herb garden. This is what happens when you elect as leader a guy whose main qualification is being the first random Johnny in line when the green particle effects were being handed out, should be grateful the Chief Inquisitor didn't end up being a pot plant or the guy who delivered the buns. But when I said random Johnny, I do mean random because once again you can pick from a variety of species and backgrounds when Hawk from Dragon Age 2 could only be human. So that's nice. Actually Hawk shows up in this game so everyone can bang on about how awesome he is for his whole sodding screen time, but he defaults to a generic grizzled warrior type, when the Hawk I remember was more of a snarky fop with a hankering for outlaw mage todger. So the combat's what's kinda typical for latter Bioware RPGs, there's a system for strategically placing and commanding 
including all your sidekicks in battle, which I took one look at and then never used, because you're also free to just charge in and wreck shit up in real time, and it was usually all I needed. It's like giving me a spoon and a cocktail stick and saying, now you can eat your boiled egg your way. And there's plenty of opportunity for combat, because the open-ended maps lean things a bit more with small clusters of baddies littering the landscape like cowpats, and it gets a bit samey because it doesn't seem to matter where you are in the world, you only ever seem to fight demons or human bandits, although you can go into a cave and fight giant spiders for a breath of fresh stimulating air, or should I say fresh urticating hair? You also now have a horse to ride, which is another thing I took one look at and then never used, because it takes a few fiddly button presses to bring out or stuff into your horse utility belt and you have to stop and get off every ten yards to pick another flower. You never know when you're suddenly gonna need thirty of the fucking things to craft the Inquisition a new bowling alley or pie shop. Actually, when I said it's on you to do all the flower picking, that's not strictly true. You can now send agents Assassin's Creed Brotherhood style on missions that complete themselves out of variable amounts of real time, and you can send people to gather resources, although A, there are a lot of better things they could be getting on with, and B, your horde of religious fanatics with the entire backing of a world-class peacekeeping force will come back with two shiny rocks and a daisy chain. I'm not sure I like the way you have to wait real time for these missions to resolve. Twenty minutes, an hour maybe, fine, pop off to a sandbox to amuse yourself in the meantime, but three hours? Seems a bit much if you're not planning to flog as Dragon Age Inquisition fun bucks to speed the process up. It's rather annoying when you've set yourself a personal mission that requires these missions to be completed, such as getting that spicy ambassador lady to show me her bum, because Christ knows I'd given up on the idea of actually finishing the whole game in the week I had to play it in. I like to speed through the critical path and faff with the side stuff later, and that's not an option. There seems to be a minimum faffing about quotes before you can advance the plot. There is a lot to like. I do enjoy sitting on my big scary Inquisition chair and passing judgement on dicks who pissed me off in a story mission, but I feel weighed down by a hundred different things whenever I try to move forward, like a kindergarten teacher in a school for the blind. Loading times are longer than the embarrassed silence after a loud fart in a church, and keep stacking up when you're hopping around the world looking for stuff to do. And if you're one of those mentalists who frets about whether you're fully optimised, this game will be a monkey on your back as you micromanage every single party member's skill sets and equipment through a clunky-ass menu system. To say nothing of weapon and armour crafting, the third thing I took one look at and never used again, because you pick up new improved equips fucking everywhere until you might as well start burning them for fuel. If you're boring, or somebody's dad, you might appreciate the methodical bit, but frankly I found it all too loaded down to keep the pace going after a while, and I was afraid if I took part in one more disorganised melee, my hairdo might fly off and interfere with someone's clay pigeon shooting. So all the major pre-Christmas releases have shuffled out, like the elderly residents of a retirement home queuing up for a nice restful euthanasia, and there's time for a bit of catching up before the year ends. So let's have a look at Sonic Boom on the Wii. As the game begins and the usual slew of idents plays, the CryEngine logo is accompanied by the words Achieved with CryEngine, and you know, I don't think achieved is the word I'd use. Shat out with CryEngine, maybe tortuously prolonged with CryEngine, or perhaps enabled with CryEngine, in the same way one enables a crippling drug habit. Fuck yes, I'm reaching for the low-hanging fruit, it's been a long year, and taking it out on something no one with even a passing interest in reality will defend is my equivalent of a day at the spa. Where is this invisible mob of deluded twat blasts that still buy Sonic reliably enough to bank new instalments? Because it's reached the point that even the 2D good ones have been retroactively tainted. Having said that, Sonic Colours was tolerable and some people seemed to like Generations, even a couple of people who were allowed outside without adult supervision, so Sonic Boom being a spunk bubble wasn't a given. I know the character revamp that gave Sonic a Nathan Drake scarf and turned Knuckles into a slow-witted giveaway sign probably made the fanbase moo a bit, but it made sense to me, at least they're physically differentiated the characters a bit for once, although I'm not sure what's with all the bandages wrapped around everything, maybe everyone's gotten paper cuts from signing acceptance forms for all the shit they're being given. The gameplay is based around switching between the four marginally different playstyles of John, Paul, George and Ringo, which harkens back to good old Sonic 2006, the game that learned the hard way that no one buys a Sonic game to play as one of Sonic's fucking roommates. But perhaps it'd be superstitious to blame Sonic's entourage alone for the fascinating awfulness of Sonic 06 and Sonic Boom. The far more reasonable explanation is that the games were both developed by syphilitic gibbons. The plot opens with Sonic et al. running fast and fighting Dr. Egg Robot Man Nick. 
Blimey, that's a bold stride in a new direction. No wonder we needed a fucking reboot. In short order, Sonic frees an evil snake monster from the past who claims that it was Sonic himself who imprisoned him a thousand years ago. And so the plot starts making time travel noises as Sonic is transported back to do the thing he already did. You might reasonably think at this point that we're setting up a Zelda-esque mechanic wherein we hop back and forth between two different time periods throughout the game and you'd be all wrong and a bag of chips. We go back in time, imprison the poor bastard and come straight back. It's never brought up again and we're not even a quarter of the way through the game. The rest of our time is spent going to the next level to find the power crystal that opens up the level after that, while Evil Snake Dude does absolutely nothing to indicate that they are in the slightest bit threatening or effective, unless they murdered most of the population of the connecting world off screen, which would explain why entire hub towns can contain maybe two NPCs, and I suppose the big evil snake must have nailed their feet to the floor as well. Over the weekend, an associate asked me what kind of game Sonic Boom was, and you know what, as I opened my mouth in a shower of angry spittle and rum, I realised I had no idea how to answer that question. There are the token bits where you run fast along an inexplicable running track with no apparent relationship to the surrounding scenery, where the frame rate drops like a sparrow with a plum pudding and obstacles appear about one sixth of a second before it'll be too late to avoid imprinting your little freak one-eyed hedgehog face upon it. There's also combat, or at least I think so. The characters are quite small on screen and with Parsley, Sage, Rosemary and Thyme all fighting off multiple enemies it's like watching a vibrating tray covered in Star Wars miniatures, except you're also still coming off the anaesthetic from a slightly botched corneal transplant because the camera follows you sluggishly and refuses to behave itself. I'm also not convinced that the characters are trying to hit each other when they could just as easily be trying to wipe snot off their hands. There are also platforming sections, most of which are contrivedly laid out with everything needed to accommodate the movement abilities of all the characters you're dragging along like toy ducks on a string, like the mandatory wheelchair ramps on public buildings, and I have to wonder why we're even bothering with multiple characters if any of them will do. And of course there are the side missions from the aforementioned solitary NPCs mainly related to finding or wiping snot off on five things around the map, and which I swiftly learned to ignore because your only reward is upgrades, and I think the designers must have been having some kind of drunken competition to come up with the most useless ones imaginable. Slightly increment the damage of an ability that almost always instant kills, vacuum up rings as long as they're within arm's reach, increase the arbitrary 100 ring maximum capacity, that might have been useful, if only to make the deluges of rings the game throws at you not so much golden piss in the wind, but the game arbitrarily locked that upgrade until I bought the accompanying 3DS game. One of Sonic's random witticisms for picking up rings is, can never have enough rings, and somehow he says it with a straight face. Not that it matters, since even if you die you're just spawn exactly where you were with 23 rings. Challenge must have gotten shunted down the priority list to pay for the voice actor's humiliation insurance. So again, what kind of game is this? A racer? A brawler? A platformer? A gather things for twatzer? Action adventure? You'd need either action or adventure for that. No, I know what it is, it's an endurance test. You see how much of the dialogue you can listen to before you slice your own ears off with a paper guillotine, or perhaps just turn the volume down you spaz. Getting sniffy about random quips not meeting your comedy standards again, are we Yahtzee? I would be if they were quips, they seem more like matter of fact running commentary. Bounce pad, announces Sonic as he touches a bounce pad. It's bounce pad time, he adds. I'm bouncing off something with pad-like characteristics, he clarifies. And when it's not that, it's the game weakly attempting to praise itself. This is awesome, cries a sprinting character as they face plant into another rock. This place looks amazing, they say, taking in the boxy buildings worthy of a pre-analog sticks PS1 game. But saying something isn't enough to make it true, unless you say something like, Sega are attracting derision, the massive wankers. And when the dialogue isn't awful quips or self-aggrandizement, it's just treating the player like an absolute cretin. That wall looks breakable, I notice you haven't broken it in the 2.7 seconds since I last mentioned that, that's cool, I'll check again in 2.8 seconds. What makes you think I'm this stupid, Sonic Boom? You bought me. Touché.